Hey, Liam McEnany, your friend David told me about how you thought you had to pass gas on the number four bus, but it turned out to be more than gas. Man, Liam McEnany, that has to be tough. Wearing white shorts on a Manhattan scorcher smack dab in the middle of rush hour with your girlfriend standing right next to you. I feel you, Liam McEnany. I really do. But it's a reminder of how precarious life is. One moment you think you're taking your lady downtown to your favorite Korean barbecue, and suddenly one blast out of your leaky balloon knot, and poof, everything changes in a second. Poof. It's all over. Poof. Ronnie Bilge, dripping down your legs, Liam McEnany. You look for your girlfriend. Poof. She's gone. In the blink of a balloon knot. Won't even return your phone calls. I feel for you, Liam McEnany. Reminds me of 9-11. Beautiful fall day. I was planning a walk in the park with my second wife, Judith Nathan, who turned out to be a voracious harpy. And the next thing you know, well, I don't have to tell you what happened that day. It's all in my book, Leadership. I guess the point is, Liam McEnany, never take anything for granted. Cherish each moment. You never know. You just never know. One day you're with a woman who you can't figure out where you end and she begins. And then poof, intestinal air completely (laughs) betrays you by turning solid. Poof, she's gone. Poof, all that's left is a memory. Okay, take care, Liam McEnany. And next time you're riding the bus in white shorts, remember to exercise constant vigilance because things don't always turn out the way you planned. Bye, Liam McEnany. You sound like someone I would like to get to know. 9-11. That would be... Rudy Giuliani, uh, we did a cameo. We paid Rudy Giuliani to do a cameo for Liam McEnany's birthday. And I, I believe that's Robert Smigel doing Rudy Giuliani. I believe that could be Robert Smigel. Welcome to the mop up for February 21st, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in New York City where the temperature is 44 degrees and sunny. It's President's Day. It's a holiday where we get to do absolutely nothing, just like our current president, Joe Biden. In environmental news, the government in West Wales, Great Britain, has found a novel way to maintain their thoroughfares. The Washington Post reports this morning that they are paving the roads using 100,000 dirty disposable diapers or nappies, as they are called over there. There's a smart move. The planet is getting getting increasingly hot. So let's pave the roads with filthy diapers. Temperatures are in the triple digits, so drivers, please be advised of low visibility due to swarms of flies. The good news is drivers say the dirty diapers save wear and tear on their tires now that the roads come with factory-installed skid marks. See, you don't have to... It comes because they're dirty. I could have said uh, when dirty diapers are used to pave roads, the asphalt is called ass no fault. 
I could have said that, but you're better than that. I am not, but you are better than that. I respect the people listening to this podcast on this, our president's day to say something like, for example, remember the good old days when uh, you needed cars for a pileup? See, but I'm not going to do that because uh, anyway, it's a great idea. Disposable diapers uh, uh, are bad for the environment. And this is an ingenious way to save the planet short of not having babies in the first place. You do realize that scientists can retrieve DNA from a diaper, which means after you adopt a highway, you can then find out who the real parents are. A lot of podcasters took today off for President's Day, and I think I am. I think I've unwittingly taken today off. Well, I'll be honest with you. I had nightmares last night. I did. I woke up, looked around, pondered my existence and thought, let's see if I can fall asleep and get back to that nightmare. That seems more interesting than what I pathetically referred to as my existence. Let's let's see if I can get back to uh, the nightmare that I had last night, and I'm not making this up, of getting court-martialed by the New York Mets. It was terrifying, uh, but at least it was interesting. At least it was better than living in a, an apartment overlooking an air shaft. No, I did, I had a dream last night that I was playing for the New York Mets and I was being court-martialed for cheating at poker. Anybody want to take a stab at that? Dreams are like someone reading a poem written by E.E. E. Cummings. There's always some hidden meeting and I'm fast asleep. E.E. E. Cummings, or as I called him, Double E, was the most important poet of the 20th century. He invented a groundbreaking form no use of capital letters. He didn't capitalize any of his words, which means there was no way to tell if he was a small d Democrat and a Democrat or just a small d Democrat. Very cagey man, very shady, E.E. E. Cummings. I don't know about poetry. I have, uh, I don't know. I, I, never, I don't get poetry. I don't, I don't understand why somebody wants to be a poet. How does that work? I have something I want to say. It's so important to me that I'm going to write it obliquely. So you must spend $250,000 on a liberal arts education to understand what it is I'm trying to say. Let me talk about love in a way that only a select few can understand so they can feel superior. I don't get poetry. I, I'm sure uh, it, it has some purpose in this world, although Socrates was against poetry. So I, that's another thing I have in common <laughs> with Socrates. I have something else in common with uh, Socrates, but I don't want to share that. There are children watching, but Socrates did not like poetry and he did not like music. Uh, now, there was a time when music was written uh, with lyrics that made sense. You had lyricists and there could be a tune and then it would be passed off to a lyricist or the lyricist would write something resembling a poem and he would turn it over to a composer who would add a, a nice tune to, to the lyrics. 
and then you had a song that that made sense, like like Chuck Berry's "My Dingaling." I don't know if you kids have been blessed. It's part of the American songbook. Chuck Berry's "My Dingaling," "My Dingaling," won't you play with "My Dingaling"? This was there was. Nothing obscured here. You knew exactly what he was talking about. The little bell on his Schwinn bike, my dingling. You know, you, you didn't have to read into it. It was right there. Irving Berlin, composer and a lyricist. Must you dance every dance with the same fortunate man? You have danced with him since the music began. Won't you change partners and dance with me? That's genius, right? You know exactly what the song is about, what the lyricist is trying to say. Must you dance every dance with the same fortunate man? Clearly, Irving Berlin is complaining about being forced to eat coleslaw with a fork instead of a spoon. And when he brings the slaw to his mouth, the dressing drips all over his new shirt. Won't you change partners and dance with me? Clearly, he's asking the waiter to bring him a fresh set of utensils. Why do today's songwriters have to be cryptic? Why can't they be like Irving Berlin or Chuck Berry and just say what they mean? Well, because today's songwriters can't write lyrics. So they just decide to find words that sound poetic and they have us do all the work. You, I wrote the song. It's your job to figure out what it means. I can't be bothered to know what this song is about. Was it, the fact that I wrote it should be enough. Like Paul Simon, for example, he was asked what Mrs. Robinson was about. And he said, I have no idea what it was about. I like the words, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. And then he just built words around that. And he said he has no idea what it means. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Who wakes up and says, wow, I have something really profound that must be set to music. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Really, that's what you want to say. With all that's going on in the 60s, the war on poverty, Vietnam, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Originally, this is true, it was going to be Eleanor Roosevelt instead of Joe DiMaggio. This is true. Where have you gone, Eleanor Roosevelt? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. That maybe would have made sense. But I think Mike Nichols, who was directing The Graduate at the time, I think Mike Nichols said, don't make it about anything. Make it about Joe DiMaggio. So he changed it from Eleanor Roosevelt to Joe DiMaggio at the last minute. Here's an interesting fact. Joe DiMaggio was going to marry Eleanor Roosevelt at the last minute, but then he changed his mind. Mike Nichols told him to marry Marilyn Monroe instead. I think. Maybe I got that wrong. Maybe Marilyn Monroe was originally going to marry Eleanor Roosevelt, but Mike Nichols told her uh, to marry Joe DiMaggio. I don't know. Just... If Mike Nichols tells you to do something, listen to him. The point is you can find whatever meaning you want in song lyrics these days. That's the whole point. You, it's, it's a Rorschach test. Nobody says anything with their lyrics. They let you decide what they hear. John Cougar Mellencamp has a documentary that came out about three years ago 
One of the first things he says in the documentary is the key to a hit song is making the lyrics vague enough, vague enough so the listeners can read whatever they want into it. It's form over substance. It's why Ronald Reagan could play Born in the USA at his rallies. He heard what he wanted to hear in Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. So he played Born in the USA at his rallies. George Herbert Walker Bush played Don't Worry, Be Happy at his campaign rallies. But Bobby McFerrin, who wrote that monstrosity, Don't Worry, Be Happy, asked George Herbert Walker Bush to stop playing Don't Worry, Be Happy at his rallies because McFerrin was worried about Bush winning and that would mean McFerrin wouldn't be happy. So he asked Bush to stop playing Don't Worry, Be Happy. Unfortunately, McFerrin didn't ask radio stations to stop playing Don't Worry, Be Happy as well, possibly the worst song ever written. Don't worry, be happy. And uh, Bush put up a fight. This is true. He invited Bobby McFerrin to, to uh, the vice president's house uh, for dinner to try to convince him to let him use Don't Worry, Be Happy. And McFerrin said no to the dinner, which looking back was probably a bad idea if you're Bobby McFerrin, because whenever you had an opportunity to have dinner with George Herbert Walker Bush, there was always a good chance that he would throw up all over you. And that's a story you can tell your grandkids. You know, you, you know, Monica Lewinsky kept the blue dress with Bill Clinton's DNA on it. George Herbert Walker throws up on you. You see this, you see the stains on my blue blazer with the 80s era shoulder pads. That is presidential hurl. That is vomit from George Herbert Walker Bush. Happy, happy President's Day, where we celebrate President George Herbert Walker Bush, who on January 8th, 1992, President George Herbert Walker Bush, visiting Japan at a state dinner hosted by Prime Minister Kichi Miyazawa. Halfway through the meal, President George Herbert Walker Bush vomits all over Miyazawa's lap. And it's on video. Go to YouTube and look up George Herbert Walker Bush vomiting on Prime Minister Kichi Miyazawa's lap. He vomited right on the Prime Minister's lap, not to the side of his lap, not on his own lap or on his own plate or the Prime Minister's plate. He vomited right on the prime minister of Japan's lap. And he later said he had a gastrointestinal bug, but we know the truth. Nobody, intend I mean, you, anybody who's about to throw up knows where to direct the hurl. You don't vomit on someone's lap unless you're doing it on purpose. Nobody accidentally gets their lap thrown up on. When I was a teenager watching Olivia Newton-John on MTV, I had my lap thrown into, but that wasn't my mouth. I, I was throwing into my lap. And at first it was confusing and then delightful. I, I'm too old now to throw into my lap anymore uh, by myself. I'm too old. Like I said, it's a holiday and I'm, I've decided to take President's Day off, as you can clearly see. I threw into my lap. 
but not I didn't have anybody throw. Uh, anyway, George Herbert Walker Bush, it's President's Day. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was running for re-election in 1992. And that's when he threw up on the prime minister's lap. Less than a year earlier, he won the war in Iraq and his popularity was 89%. This was in March of, of 91. It was almost the year. He had 89%. Would have been nice to have 91%, but he had 89% approval rating. Bush received an 89% approval rating after declaring victory in Iraq. Remember Operation Desert Storm? That was the highest presidential job approval rating ever recorded. America loved George Herbert Walker Bush. Less than a year later, he vomits all over the Japanese prime minister. 92, he loses to Clinton. Most popular president in American history in 1991. By the end of 1992, he's a one-term president, all because he couldn't help himself. He had to throw up on the Japanese prime minister's lap. It was a calculated move. Bush thought that if he threw up all over the Japanese prime minister, it would make him look strong. But Americans thought it made him look like a wimp. But throwing up on, on another world leader, some cultures view that as strength. I saw it as strength. It was, it was uh, you, you, what you need to understand is we're talking about 1992. It was a different time. And, and back in 1992, it was Japan, when it comes to economics, it was Japan, not China. It was Japan that was eating our lunch. And so George Herbert Walker Bush said to the Japanese prime minister, you want to eat America's lunch? Here, have some of mine. Blech. It was Bush's way of saying, I, I was busy defeating Saddam Hussein. And while I'm busy defeating uh, Saddam Hussein, Jap Japan is stealing our auto market and our, our silicon chips. No, 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 no. I'm the president of the United States. The Soviet Union fell on my watch. Saddam Hussein was kicked out of Kuwait on, on, on my watch. There's only one power here in the world, and it is America. Blech. Blech. And, you, and you vomit. You're gonna you, you vomit. I mean, I I thought it was amazing. I, I thought it I thought it was incredible. I almost voted for him just because you know I I respect masculinity. You know, you vomit on the Japanese prime minister, and the Japanese prime minister just sat there and took it. He didn't punch Bush. He didn't get up. He just sat there with Bush's warm sashimi all over his stinky lap. But. It backfired and people thought he looked weak. And later in the year, Bush lost to Clinton all because he threw up and people didn't understand why he threw up on the Japanese prime minister. They misread it. They thought he looked like a wimp. That's one of the reasons George Herbert Walker Bush lost in 92. Also because during one of the debates, one of the presidential debates, Bush looked at his watch and that's another reason he lost during one of his debates with clinton and ross perot bush looked at his watch and people said he was bored with being president 
Now, what he should have done was shouted during the debate, hey, Clinton, hey, Bill Clinton, then then looked at his watch, shouted, you know what time it is? Well, let's see. The big hand is on your lapel, grabbing your jacket towards my head, and the little hand is down my throat because I'm about to hurl tonight's pre-show lobster roll all over your lying face, Bill Clinton, you draft-dodging, whoremongering fraud. My family owns this country. You're just a tenant farmer. Blech. Just vomited on Clinton's face. The Japanese prime minister gets the lap. You're down in the polls. You go for the face. Headshot. Take him out. That's, uh, but George Herbert Walker Bush wasn't willing to do that. Wasn't willing to do that. And so he lost. Went from the most popular president in American history to losing the presidency a year later. How fickle we are, the United States. How fickle this country is. One year, you're, you're the most popular president in American history. The year later, Americans show you the door. What a humiliating defeat. George Herbert Walker Bush, 1991, was the most popular president in recorded history. Ten years later, he became the second most popular president in recorded history. Nobody had broken his record, but he was surpassed when, when George W. Bush became president his first year. This is true. George W. Bush became the most popular president in American history right after 9-11, when the World Trade Center came down and the Pentagon was attacked. On 9-11, the day after 9-11, George W. Bush became the most popular president in American history. George W. Bush got intelligence briefings that Osama bin Laden was, quote, intent on flying jets into the World Trade Center before 9-11. He got those intelligence briefings. He ignored those. He didn't even read them. He ignored intelligence briefings. He never met with his anti-terrorist experts in the White House, didn't have a single meeting with Clark. He was warned that Osama bin Laden would be his the number one thing he would be focusing on when he became president. George W. Bush ignored all the warnings. World Trade Center comes down the next day. George W. Bush becomes the most popular president in American history. He got a 90% approval rating right after the towers came down, which means the American people don't like to see you throwing up, but they love watching you shit the bed, which is what George W. Bush did before and after 9-11. He completely shit the bed. Which brings me to our current president's approval ratings, Joe Biden. They, uh, they've hit a new low. 39% of Americans approve of the job he's doing. To which I say, Joe, pull a George W. Bush. Shit the bed. If anyone can look like he can shit the bed, it's Joe Biden. You can do it, Joe. Pretend the bed you're sleeping in is your pants and America will love you again. Just shit the bed instead of your pants, Joe Biden. 
It is quite remarkable how quickly the public turns. Think about it. George Herbert Walker Bush, when he was president, the Soviet Union was dissolved and he established America as the dominant superpower in the world, kicking Iraq out of Kuwait. The Soviet Union fell on his watch. The American people loved him. He won the Cold War. He he was an American hero. Unlike Reagan, who, who lied about his war record, Ronald Reagan claims he served in Germany and liberated the concentration camps. He served in Culver City, which is a suburb of Hollywood. He just he filed films for the war effort. But Bush was a real war hero during WW2. Navy pilot shot down over the Pacific which is why right after he vomited all over the Japanese prime minister, he said, Miyazawa, what goes down must come up. That's one, <laughs> that's one for the island of Chichijima. That's what he said. When he threw up all over the Japanese prime minister, he, he said, that's, that's for the island of Chichijima. Six hours I floated waiting to be rescued, float all over this. But uh, a year later, the American people kicked him out of the White House, all because he threw up, he looked at his watch, and the economy tanked. That's why he lost. It's the economy, stupid. Bill Clinton's campaign manager, James Carville, in 92, taped that to his wall. It's the economy, stupid. People vote with their wallets, so it's the economy, stupid. And then Clinton became president, and it's a stupid economy. He became president, signed the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement, repealed Glass-Steagall, turned America over to the banks who shipped manufacturing overseas and gave the American people cheap money instead of jobs, which means instead of savings, we are a nation of debtors. People have jobs. Some of them still have jobs. Mostly they have credit card debt or student loan debt or mortgages. Most Americans can't come up. A majority of Americans can't come up with $500 for an emergency. And if you have a job, congratulations. But now I want you to think about this. Have you ever wondered how the company you're working for actually makes money? Seriously. Do you see any connection between the work you are given and the actual uh, improvement of the company's bottom line? Right? You know that the company you're working for, the company you work for, there's no way the company you're working for is making money off of what you do. But this is the new economy. You don't need to worry. You're not there to make money. You are there to clean it. That is your job. Your job is to clean, dirty money. I want you to imagine the entire world's economy. If you listen to people like the IMF, the World Bank, Forbes has written about this, Business Insider has written about this, the entire world economy is worth about $100 trillion. $100 trillion. That means the gross domestic product, it's not domestic because it's the entire world. So if, if, if we looked at the planet, the gross domestic planet, gross, dom gross domestic product of the planet 
each year is about $100 trillion. That means about $100 trillion in salaries, assets, and cash is spit out by this planet. Roughly $100 trillion for the entire world. Now, nobody knows for sure, but if you lowball this, it is estimated that about $36 trillion of that $100 trillion is stashed in offshore tax havens. Nobody really knows because that's the whole point of having a tax haven. But it is estimated, for example, that 60% of Russia's entire GDP is stored in offshore tax havens. And by offshore tax havens, I mean Nevada, Wyoming, South Dakota, and Manhattan real estate. Nobody has any idea how much money is unreported. They say 36 trillion is a reasonable expectation. So $36 trillion that we know of each year has to be cleaned, which means that movie Alec Baldwin was starring in, that's dirty money being brought into the country from some exotic island like South Dakota or Delaware, and it's reintroduced into the economy so it can be legally spent, which means, as the late, great David Graeber once wrote, your job is bullshit. Your job is bullshit. You are a front. You are fronting dirty money. Uh, this is true. Look around, wherever you're working, look around. Do you really think the company you're working for is turning a profit? There's something like five or six companies in the S&P 500. They call them the FANG, like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Apple. There's something like maybe 10 companies uh, in the Fortune 500 that are actually not in debt. The rest of them are all racking up debt, uh, something like $20 trillion in debt. We have a handful of companies, unless you work for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Apple, Microsoft, uh, the company that you work for is not, you're not making money for that company because that company isn't making money. It's cleaning it. When I was a child, my father would take me to a restaurant in New York City and the food was amazing. And my father would go there with his friends and we, you know, we would eat and they'd say to me, the food's incredible, kid, isn't it? And I'd look around and I'd see the finest and freshest ingredients. The wait staff is well groomed and clean. The chef would come out. It was immaculate. And they'd ask me, how do you think they can possibly make money serving such great dishes at such low prices? And I had no idea. And they explained to me because it's a restaurant, but that's not what it's in, in business to do. It's a front. They called them fronts back then. It was a mafia joint. It was owned by the mafia. It's not supposed to make money. It's not supposed to make money. It's there to show an incredible profit. So drug money 
can be reintroduced into the economy or, or gambling money or prostitution money. You make millions dealing crack cocaine. You can't spend it because the minute you deposit that money into a bank, the feds will know something is up. But if you open a restaurant and then you deposit that dirty, filthy cash into the restaurant's bank, then the restaurant shows a profit, not the drug dealer, right? And suddenly you're no longer a drug dealer, you're a restaurateur. And that is what practically every business is in America right now. It's a front. Again, think about your job. As David Graeber said, it's bullshit. The work you do has nothing to do with the bottom line. You're a front. Up front, everyone is shuffling papers or you're folding sweaters or you're selling a convection oven, which nobody needs and nobody buys, but everybody acts as if it's a business. You look around, which you're not supposed to do, and you realize uh, these papers I'm shuffling, I have no idea why I'm shuffling these papers. Nobody has bought one of these sweaters or convection ovens in a month. But somehow they pay me. So I'll go along with it. Don't ask questions. You pretend it's a business. I have no idea why they're paying me or what I'm doing. And you're not supposed to. As long as you don't ask questions, you can get a taste of it. Comedy clubs. I would uh, play restaurants that had comedy and they would book me and they would advertise me. And because it's David Feldman, nobody, and I mean nobody showed up to see me because who would want to show up to hear me do comedy? But the owner couldn't have been more thrilled to see me. He loved me. He paid me. He would say, at the end of the week or the night, great job. When can we have you back? And I'm looking around, the place is empty. How can you want, I didn't say this, how can you want me back if I don't sell any tickets? Because it wasn't about stand-up comedy. It wasn't about, it wasn't even about selling drinks. That's, that's what stand-ups like to say. We're only there to sell drinks. No, you're not. You're there to front a mob money laundering organization. You're there because some mobster needs to convince the government this place is about food, drinks, and stand-up comedy. And so the money I was given was drug money. I was paid in drug money. My salary that they paid me not to fill the room, to tell my horrible jokes, my salary was the price the mobsters had to pay to make the place look legitimate. So when they do their taxes, they're going to claim that they paid me a hundred times the amount that they paid me. They're going to claim they sold a hundred times the amount of drinks that they sold. And that way they can put that money 
that bad money into an account. And as far as the government is concerned, the place was packed and I'm a hit. David Feldman is a hit. And I went along with it. They make us all complicit because it's really the only way to get a taste to dip your beak into this economy. So we all take the money. You work for a company in Manhattan, any company that you work for in Manhattan, it cannot possibly be profitable. But you take the money because in order to survive, you're in denial. You pretend all those staff meetings are about improving morale or bumping up sales. And I'm pretty sure the person running the meeting kind of believe that's what he's trying to do. But the person who hired that person, they're thinking, sure, you want to turn a profit, you're ambitious, try it. I, that's what he's thinking. If this guy can turn a profit, that, that's, that will make the company look all the more legitimate. But you really don't have to, because we're going to say you're turning a profit, regardless of what the truth is. Just make the place look legitimate. Make everyone unhappy. Make sure everyone is working long hours and hates the boss and hates their job. Exhaust everybody. Make everybody tired and hate their job. Make sure this electronic store looks like we're moving merchandise. Keep it open 24 hours. Abuse everybody in the workplace so it looks legitimate, even though it's not. None of these places are legitimate. As David Graeber said, your job is bullshit. Now, I can't stand David Brooks. Uh, he writes for the New York Times. I really, really, I loathe him more than Thomas Friedman. David Brooks, you know, just a horrible, horrible human being. But I accidentally read him yesterday by accident. And, uh, I thought I was, it was instructions that how to give myself a fleet enema. And I was reading the instructions for how to give myself a fleet enema. And then I go, oh my God, this isn't how to give yourself a fleet enema. It's David Brooks's column in the New York Times. Anyway, he wrote about Fiona Hill's new book in which she explains how Vladimir Putin works. And Brooks says, Fiona Hill writes, see what I do here? I'm telling you my sources. It's a, a novel idea that uh, telling you my sources. I would have loved to have left David Brooks out of this, but this is where I got it from. So Brooks says Fiona Hill in describing Vladimir Putin, how he operates. She says, quote, everybody's wealth is deliberately tainted in Russia. So Putin has the power to accuse anyone of corruption and remove anyone at any time. Let me read that again. This is what Fiona Hill writes about how Russia runs. Everybody's wealth is deliberately tainted. So Putin has the power to accuse anyone of corruption and remove anyone at any time. That is how a kleptocracy works. See, there's one guy at the very top who is the most corrupt and he controls the police. The only people in a kleptocracy who are allowed to get wealthy are criminals because 
criminals can be locked up by the police when they when you want them to be when the guy on top wants them to be locked up so you get a compliant under you get a compliant force underneath you if everyone can be locked up they obey you the police become the kleptocracy security guard in russia anyone who has money has committed a crime you can't make money unless you've tainted yourself so they are all compliant to succeed in a kleptocracy the people in charge must have something on you otherwise they can't get you to bend to their will and that's how the trump administration operated it was a kleptocracy trump wouldn't hire anyone who wasn't a fraud in other words trump only trusted someone if they couldn't be trusted now that sounds cute but it's true trump only trusted someone if they couldn't be trusted i don't trust this guy he's too trustworthy that's why all our bosses are difficult and we delude ourselves think about your boss now think about all the bosses you've had and how you've deluded yourself we say things like my boss hates me because i'm honest and i remind him or her of how immoral they are so they don't like me because each day i show up to work they see me and i'm a reminder of what they're not and it makes them feel gross that's what we tell ourselves to explain evil in the world but the truth is your boss is a monster that's why he's in charge because he's a monster and he's corrupted and because he's a monster he doesn't mind being corrupt the reason your boss hates you is because you're not corrupt that's it and because you're not corrupt he doesn't trust you he's worried you're going to turn him into the government or the board of directors but most importantly he hates you because he has nothing on you and if he has nothing on you then he can't destroy you so he leaves you alone doesn't like you in Serpico the movie Serpico Frank Serpico this is based on a true story Serpico wouldn't take the bribe he was a patrol officer in New York City and the cops hated him because he wouldn't go on the take and they would insist take the money just take it show us we can trust you that's what they said to him take the money take the bribes so we can trust you you don't have to spend the money give it to a charity but take the money serpico we need you to be one of us otherwise we can't trust you that's why your boss doesn't trust you for a criminal enterprise to stay afloat everyone involved must live in fear of being exposed and you have to have something that you don't want exposed to be at the top i have something on you you have something on me now come work for my bank that's how a kleptocracy works that's how american business which is now a kleptocracy that's how it works if your management 
and suddenly you show a soft spot for labor, if you're not willing to engage in something like wage theft, you're not to be trusted. You're a mistake and they get rid of you. That's how a kleptocracy works. In America, you do not rise to the top unless the people at the very top know that you're compliant. And the only way you can signal your compliance is by proving to them just how corrupt you are and willing to be. So sharp elbows, rudeness, harassment is rewarded just as long as your business interests don't interfere with mine. If they do, you're whacked or they give you your own criminal, criminal enterprise to run. That's how it works in America. Uh, somebody like Les Moonves, the rapist who ran CBS for decades, he would, uh, he would identify sharp elbows, uh, predators, harassers, vicious, corrupt women and men, and he would nurture them and then give them a smaller network to run. He recognized this person could be just as corrupt as I am if given the opportunity. I can't keep this person around my C-suite. He'll slash my throat. Better, I should give him his own network to run. And then when that network becomes too profitable, I whack him and bring somebody else in to take it over. That's how all of corporate America is run. Surround yourself with only people willing to commit crimes. The criminal who's as big or potentially as big a monster as you are, you give him something big, but not too big, so he doesn't compete with your criminal enterprise. You want him to stay under your thumb. You give him a few years to get successful, so he's kicking money up to you. And then when it looks like his record label is uh, too, too profitable, he's coming for you, you turn him in to the police or to the board of directors. That's how it works. I was reading last week about Antonio Horta Osadio, who was brought in to run uh, Credit Suisse. It's a bank in, in Switzerland. He became the chairman. I think last year, two years ago, Credit Suisse needed a new chairman because they ran into some problems. There were two scandals. So they brought in Antonio Horta Osadio in as chairman because he was legitimate. Supposedly, he ran Lloyd's of London, got knighted by the Queen. They needed an honest face to front Credit Suisse, which is a Swiss bank. It's a criminal enterprise. The minute he got there, he made the mistake of trying to clean up the place. He fired some lawyers. He lowered compensation packages for some of the quote unquote executives who had been with Credit Suisse for decades, and he became quickly became unpopular. He was trying to clean up Credit Suisse. And what's the point of running a Swiss bank if you're going to clean it up? So the old timers at Credit Suisse went to the board of directors and claimed he was misusing the corporate jet, flying his family to soccer games all over the world, vacations and people complained that he sometimes didn't wear a mask. He was rude and they fired him and told the world he was dirty, which is why they hired him. He was dirty. That's why they hired him. But they didn't know 
that he would try to clean up the place. So they accused him of doing what he was supposed to do, misusing funds, flying the corporate jet all over the world. They uh, they hired him because they knew he was corrupt and they had some stuff on him. So when he was interfering with their own business, they fired him. Jeff Zucker used to be the head of CNN. He had to resign, they say, they say, because he failed to disclose an office romance. His failure to disclose an office romance compromised CNN's lofty journalistic standards. CNN has former generals pitching war, and they never disclose that they're lobbyists for the military industrial complex. They have uh, Joe Lockhart on all the time, uh, who's introduced as uh, Bill Clinton's press secretary from 23, 24 years ago. They never reveal that he's a lobbyist, that he's there to lobby for whatever company is paying him. But CNN feels Jeff Zucker must disclose an office romance. Our journalistic ethics were violated. No, somebody wanted to get rid of Jeff Zucker. CNN has a new owner, the Discovery Channel. The new owner was either threatened by Zucker, who felt Zucker wasn't making uh, enough money for the company and too much for himself, or he was making too much and he was a threat, whatever. Uh, all they knew is they had something on him, so they used it. You can't get to be head of CNN unless they have something on you. If they don't have something on you, they won't hire you because that means they can't fire you. I suspect Jeff Zucker's office romance was the least of it. The failure to disclose the office romance was used to ease Zucker out gently. It's like Al Franken being forced to resign. Leave on these accusations, Senator Franken. Otherwise, uh, we're going to expose a lot more. Leave now with just enough to make you look kind of like a victim here so you can spin it or stay and we will destroy you. And I'm sure the same applied to Zucker. You, you resign on something as innocuous as not revealing an office romance you leave and your dignity is intact, or you don't resign, you stay, and we'll release some stuff about you that's not so nice. Does anyone honestly believe Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, had to resign because he didn't reveal an office romance? Jeffrey Tubin revealed an office romance with himself on Zoom, and he got his job back at CNN. An office romance? Brian Williams lied about getting shot at in, in Iraq. Brian Williams is a serial liar guilty of stolen valor. And NBC didn't fire him. He's gone. CBS is trying to hire him now. Joe Rogan is getting $200 million from Spotify. It was revealed last week that he gets $200 million from Spotify. He's lying about ivermectin, COVID, using the N-word. He's getting $200 million from Spotify. Dave Chappelle traffics in hate speech directed at the transgender community. Netflix just signed him up for another brand new batch of specials. 
But Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, has to resign because he failed to disclose an office romance. Wasn't rape like Matt Lauer, wasn't sexual assault like Charlie Rose. He was having consensual sex with a woman he fell in love with at work and he's got to go. Do you honestly believe that? Are you serious? The first thing I thought when I heard Jeff Zucker, uh, when it was reported he had to resign because he compromised CNN's journalistic ethics, the first thing I thought was CNN has journalistic ethics. When I when I saw that Jeff Zucker was forced to resign from CNN because of an undisclosed office romance, I I, I started thinking, wow, he what did he do? That's far worse. If if it's this, if it's an office romance that was undisclosed, trust me, they have a file on Jeff Zucker that's thicker than Justice, Justin Bieber trying to learn calculus. They had a lot more on Jeff Zucker. You don't step down because you didn't reveal an office romance. Zucker ran the Today Show. He ran NBC News. He ran NBC and then he ran NBC Universal. Trust me, you don't get to the top of that food chain unless they have stuff on you. That's how politics, business, nonprofits, that's how it works in America. You get to the top because you're corrupt and the people on the top all know you're corrupt. You surround yourself with other corrupt people because you can trust them. They won't turn you in because their mere existence is the poison pill. If I go down, you go down. The people who are somewhat honest you're at the bottom of the pyramid because you can't be trusted. There's no poison pill. In America, there is a direct correlation between how much money, power, and success you accrue to how many moral and criminal crimes you're willing to commit or have committed. That's why Trump still walks free. He's surrounded by poison pills. He surrounded himself with people who are just as corrupt. There were the openly corrupt, like Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, Paul Manafort, uh, the people he had to pardon. And then there was Michael Cohen, who went to prison. Uh, there was his accounting firm, his children. We all know about all the corruption. You couldn't get close to Donald Trump unless you were corrupt. And it is why nobody in the Republican Party will stand up to him because he's got stuff on everybody. Everybody bends to his will because this Republican Party, every member of the Republican Party has disgusting, repulsive dirt. They got dirt on them. Lindsey Graham, I'll talk about Lindsey Graham. You know, Lindsey Graham runs to He's a lapdog to Donald Trump because he's afraid that Donald Trump is likes men's laps and, and he'll do anything to get Trump not to out him. Uh, now, those are the people who are afraid of Trump. They're they're all corrupt. Uh, and then you have a different type of person who uh, Donald Trump surrounds himself with. And those are the people with a storied history of domestic violence. I'm running five minutes late. I don't know if 
our guest is here yet. Steve Bannon has been charged with domestic violence. When he, when he was living in Santa Monica, the police had to come out. Steve Bannon was his campaign manager. The campaign manager before him, Corey Lewandowski, was arrested on misdemeanor battery charges, assaulting a woman. They were dropped. Then there's the other campaign manager, Brad Parscale, who was uh, a campaign manager. He was arrested two years ago in Florida. A SWAT team was sent out after his wife called the police saying her husband was drunk uh, and he had 10 assault weapons and was threatening to kill himself. And his wife, when the police came to the door, his wife was covered in bruises, mysterious bruises, and she refused to press charges, claiming spousal abuse. She didn't accuse him of spousal abuse, but the police knocked him to the ground and detained him for mental health evaluation. Rob Porter resigned his position as Donald Trump's White House staff secretary after, after domestic abuse allegations from both of his former wives surfaced. Porter had been dating former White House Director of Communications, Hope Hicks. No word as to whether or not he sexually or physically assaulted Hope Hicks. But Stephanie Grisham was Melania Trump's press secretary, and then she became President Trump's press secretary. Grisham dated former Trump White House aide Max Miller, and Politico says that in 2020, Miller accused Stephanie Grisham of cheating on him, and then pushed Stephanie Grisham up against a wall and smacked her in the face. Donald Trump has endorsed Max Miller. He's a, now a candidate for the Republican nomination for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, Ohio's 13th congressional district. Uh, Miller uh, is running, uh, saying that the 2020 election was stolen, that it was rigged. Big supporter of Trump's. Trump's a big supporter of him. He's also, according to Politico, they interviewed 60 people and 60 people have come forward and called him aggressive and violent. Politico looked at court records, found numerous incidents of his being arrested for drunk driving, smashing his car, fistfights and all sort of frat boy behavior. There's a lot of domestic violence going on in that Trump, immediate Trump circle. According to the medical journal Lancet, 25% of all women in the world will experience some sort of domestic violence by the time they're 50. The world is made up of violent men and women who too often uh, refuse to press charges. They make excuses for them. And that's why there's a Republican party. That's why there's a Republican Party, because the world is made up of violent men who sexually assault, physically assault women, and there are some women who make excuses for them. Donald Trump is a self-confessed rapist. He admits to grabbing women by the pussy. That's sexual assault, by the way. His first wife, Ivana, accused him of rape but then was convinced, was talked into retracting the rape accusation in exchange for a better divorce settlement. At least 26 women have had the courage to come forward and say they were sexually assaulted 
by Donald Trump. That's 26 women who are willing to come forward and bear the brunt of this monstrosity. Now, when asked about this flurry of provable sexual assault accusations against Donald Trump, the deeply religious White House spokesperson, Mike Huckabee's daughter, Sarah Huckabee, said after the election, when she was asked about all these rape allegations against her boss, Donald Trump, she said, quote, the people of this country at a decisive election supported President Trump, and we feel like these allegations have been answered through that process. Let me repeat, when asked about all the women who claim Donald Trump raped them, Sarah Huckabee, a spokesman for Donald Trump, said in 2017, the people of this country at a decisive election supported President Trump, and we feel like these allegations have been answered through that process. So instead of pressing charges, the American people have voted on these rape allegations. These allegations of rape, according to Sarah Huckabee, the deeply religious Sarah Huckabee, these rape allegations have been answered through the election process, which means if Donald Trump wins, then those were those women were not raped. And that's why people vote for Trump. That's why people vote for Republicans, because if they win, then I'm not a rapist. I'm not a bigot. That's how the Republican Party works. We have a serious problem with men who rape, who harass, who sexually assault. We have a, a, a problem with some women who believe they deserve to be treated this way, or they're in a relationship that they're too afraid to get out of. For them, rather than change their behavior or turn themselves in or get out of an abusive relationship, they vote for Donald Trump and he makes them feel okay. The president's a rapist, Melania stays with him. How bad can my marriage be? You're not voting for Trump, you're voting for yourself. If he's the president, how bad can I be? That's who votes for Trump, people who are rapists, people who assault women, people who believe women, maybe you didn't assault a woman or you didn't rape a woman, but you believe women deserve it. Uh, you'd be amazed at how many people either have, uh, have sexually assaulted, sexually harassed a woman or, ha uh, or, or, or have been sexually assaulted and, uh, or neither, but think it's not a big deal or, or, or kind of happy to hear about it. Donald Trump sues the consciences of really bad people, of deplorables, as Hillary said. Don't get me started on Hillary. When Donald Trump gets elected president, then it's we all do it, even the president. No, we don't all do it. Just the people who vote for Donald Trump. Uh, unlike Donald Trump or Bill Clinton, uh, we don't hang out with Jeffrey Epstein. We don't look the other way with Jeffrey Epstein. But Clinton, 
look the other way with Jeffrey Epstein and the people around Bill Clinton, Hillary looked the other way around Bill. And that's what Clinton and Trump has. That's what they have to offer the ruling elite, like Bill Gates, who also hung out with Jeffrey Epstein. They get elected president and they normalize adultery. They normalize sexual harassment. They normalize sexual assault. That's why Bill Clinton was so popular with some women and men. They, Clint, the Clintons normalized a bad marriage. They normalized sexual harassment. Remember the, uh, before the debate in 2016 when Trump held the press conference? Uh, he was about to debate Hillary and the, uh, the grab the pussy video came out. So he held a press conference featuring Juanita Broderick who claimed she was raped by Bill Clinton, I believe her. Uh, Paula Jones, who was sexually assaulted, assaulted by Bill Clinton when he took her up to a hotel room and whipped his dick out. That's sexual assault. And he lied about it, then settled and was disbarred for lying about it. All those women, uh, Trump and Clinton, sexually assaulted and harassed all those women, uh, that wasn't a, uh, a demerit for a lot of voters. It was a reason to vote for them. I'm not so bad. And if he wins, then I'm really not so bad. That's how you rise to the top in America. The Biden crime family is no different from the Clinton crime family, which is no different from the Trump crime family, which was no different from the Bush crime family, which was no different from the LBJ crime family, which was no different from the Kennedy crime family. But here's the thing about the Republicans and Donald Trump. Trump is different because he does it right out in the open. He's sloppy. And it's not just unseemly, it's more dangerous. This is the problem with these Republicans. We know that you can't get to the top unless you're a criminal, but we've never seen the kind of criminal behavior we've seen in, in the Trump White House and this Republican Party. They are different from all the other criminals because they celebrate crime. They celebrate the assault of women. They, they celebrate keeping women down. They celebrate the hatred, the bigotry. They celebrate the guns and the contempt for the community. They celebrate hatred for our government, hatred for America. The other politicians from our past who rose to the top took what didn't belong to them. But this is a whole new level of depravity. This Republican Party is about destruction. It's about people wanting to take, not for themselves, but a wrecking ball to the entire government, the country, the people, and the planet. They are sui generis, whatever that means. This is the most dangerous iteration of criminal enterprise we have seen in America, Trump and the Republican Party. You have evangelicals who think the apocalypse is a good thing, that Jesus will return if we can make the planet catch fire. You have Republican sociopaths 
in love with their assault weapons and want to use them to kill, not to steal money like all the other crime families, to kill just because they want to kill. You have psychologically foul Republicans who wake up each morning feeling gross and nothing will make them happy unless they know that other people are suffering. This is different. This Republican Party is more than just criminal. It's racist. It's homophobic. It hates women, blacks, Jews, Arabs, Hispanics. It is about watching people suffer. They want people starving, living on the streets, terrified, uneducated, ill-clothed, and stupid. That's who Trump is. That's who Kevin McCarthy is. That's who Mitch McConnell is. And that's who all three Supreme Court justices that Trump nominated, that's who they are. Now, the bad will always rise to the top. Evil always rises to the, to the top. But in the past, they never normalized the N-word, ivermectin, rape, greed, racism, and contempt for the rule of law. I hate Biden. I hate the current leadership of the Democratic Party. They are corrupt. They are capable of evil. But unlike the GOP, they are not pure evil. Unlike the GOP, when you get Pelosi, Schumer, Biden alone, they are not rooting for the destruction of our planet. They want to make money off of it, but they do not want to see everybody dead. They may be dragging their feet on saving the planet, but unlike the Republican Party, they don't relish the death of this planet because that means people will suffer and Jesus is on the other side. That is why I voted for Biden and why I will vote for him again in 2024. And that is why I want the Democrats, as bad as they are, to keep the House and somehow get a filibuster-proof Senate. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We will be right back. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments, too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He Lefty from way back. He's a union man with an enemy right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your Yes, it's time right now 
on the David Allen Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Chairs in this Bessemer shop. Back in our day, don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are coming, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away. <laughs> got me some books, I'll read them someday. Right now, I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts. If I can make it to Christmas Eve, the kids will have nice gifts, and the big boss will have more money so he can go up into space. But there still won't be no chairs in this Bessemer place. Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemore floor. I'm hoping the union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Oh, my God, <laughs> Professor Mike Steinal, ain't no chairs at this Bessemer shop. Bessemer, the, the, they're voting on whether or not to join a union down in Bessemer. 
And if you want to help out, uh, we're going to talk about uh, our friend Christian Smalls, who's forming the Amazon Labor Union. Go to AmazonLaborUnion.org to find out how you can help Christian Smalls unionize the Amazon workers out in Staten Island, New York. Jason Miles is co-host hey. of This Is Revolution. And hopefully, sorry to keep you waiting, my friend, uh, you are, are a welcome addition to this crazy community. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for letting me hit lead off. Uh, uh, yes. And sorry for keeping you waiting. We're going to be no, running a little no, no, no. I was, I was watching the I was watching the rant and uh, I, too, have have my my ranty moments. Sometimes, yeah. The space is for. I will hurt somebody if I don't. <laughs> I really, I will put my fist through a wall and then the mice will come out through the hole in the wall. So let's talk about a couple of things. One is you were, uh, you were on Ben Burgess's show. Give them an argument. Did you? Yeah. So uh -huh. before we talk about your video mm -hmm. essay about mm -hmm. Bill Cosby and mm -hmm. the Showtime special, Mm -hmm. uh, I kind, I may, I don't want to disagree with you, but let's uh, let's talk about the use of the N word. That mm -hmm. gone with the wind. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I was a kid, I used to watch Gone with the Wind, and I think, I think somebody told me this wasn't the way it was. With and you were like, F that, this is the way it was. Well, it's nicer to think that's the way it was. Uh, here's what was the N word? Did they use the N word in Gone with No, them? they did not. Uh, apparently, the NAACP pushed back on the usage of the N word uh, in the script and they negotiated to use darkies instead. So, um, I forget how many times Darkies was used. Uh, Burgess might remember uh, what Teray uh, Reed had said, but they used Darkies instead. So Ben recently cut a clip of the conversation we were having about a totally different movie. We we're talking about Get Out originally, but if you ever get Ben Burgess, me and Teray Reed in a room, the conference definitely me and Teray are going to tease Ben for a little bit. And then we're going to go off on these other tangents. And we went in on the tangent about the NAACP and the film studios negotiations of what that would look like to get a inward to darky ratio in the film. Right. Right. Uh, one of the misconceptions about pre-war Hollywood is that we didn't know. And yet, when Birth of a Nation came out... There, oh, there, was, there was huge pushback on that from really? like Monroe Trotter. and Who was w Monroe Trotter? Trotter? Harvard graduate? Was, yeah, yeah. Harvard grad. Uh, I believe he came out around the same time as uh, Du Bois. Um, and what was the pushback? To, first of all, tell people, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. how horrific the Klansman was. Which which became Birth of a Nation. I, I know <laughs> that which which becomes which becomes uh, Birth of a Nation. The, the Klansman is a book basically glorifying um, 
the clan and and kind of the ideas that you see in movies like um uh, uh gone with the wind and birth of a nation is, is pretty pretty vile film um where the clan is the heroes you know black people or just i think it's just white people in blackface you know raping white women and um kind of viewed as, as ignorant mongrel monsters um who was the president at that time? Was it Woodrow Wilson? Wilson? Well, he screened he it at the White House. He showed he his a special screening at the White House and said, "This is uh, this is." He said, "This is this is it." It's it's catch. He called it capturing lightning on the screen. He said, "This is exactly." And that, it was what a, it was a big time book. Uh, I mean, I think we're we're we're. There's a few things that you know we're not really capturing is that moment when the Klansman comes out. It's a, it's a huge book, especially in the South. Um, and there were a lot of technological advancements in filmmaking when Birth of a Nation comes out. So right. Birth of a Nation is like the shit, uh, God, Avatar of its time, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's doing D- things. D.W. Griffith, right? Yeah, D.W. Griffith. And D.W. Griffith grew up in an environment where, you know, this kind of language was very, very commonly used. And he looked up to, to these people. I'm not saying this to give him any sort of pass at all. Uh, I'm just giving some historical context to the moment because definitely, regardless, it's not like D.W. Griffith grows up in some sort of weird Tarzan world where he thinks all these things are totally right just um, because there is a massive movement to you know ban this, this movie uh, from the uh, NAACP at the time. Underreported story because most people say Woodrow Wilson was a creature of that time. And looking back, he just didn't know. But he knew, he knew enough to segregate the federal government. After mm-hmm. Plessy versus Ferguson, he segregated Washington, D.C. When, when he became president, Washington, D.C. was integrated. He segregated it. Mm-hmm. He, there was pushback. Uh, so what kind of pushback did... Uh, when you read about the pushback to Birth of a Nation, it makes Birth of a Nation even more horrific because they knew, they knew that this was offensive. Wrong, so to speak, offensive. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think... I think when we look back at history, we tend to look back at look back at it as like this flat line of everybody had the same mindset. Um, we recently did a show about free people of color that actually own slaves. Um, definitely some of them own their family. So they kept their family out of bondage and there were others that did not. Um, There's, you know, also black people, uh, free people of color that have owned property uh, pre-Civil War. Um, right. and that property has gone down generations and generations passed on through generations. So it's, it's history's a, a bit of a complex narrative and, uh, getting into the weeds on, on birth of a nation is kind of an interesting story right. because, uh, Monroe Trotter, if I'm not mistaken, is also part of that kind of talented 10th era of, uh, of race management, which is somewhat problematic as well. Um, especially when you look at people like Booker T. Washington and the way he viewed uh, black education. Uh, uh, so what do you mean? 
and my, and my co-host can go into it. I, I don't okay. want to get into it because I mean, he would he would be so pissed at me because I'm going to do a disservice because he's been going off on these crazy tangents. He's actually writing an essay about it, uh, about Booker T. Washington and, and how he's kind of corrupted, uh, 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 quote unquote, black education through through HBCUs for generations. Right. So let's talk so, about uh, uh, the, the Bill Cosby documentary. Is it my imagination? Did they? Did Kamau Bell go after Step and Fetch? Was he unforgiving when he was talking about Bill Cosby? Yeah. Was he? Yeah, again, was it's, he it's unfair to Step and Fetch? It again is through that lens of like, um, look, you're you you've been doing comedy longer than I've been breathing air. It seems right. that way. I don't say that to try to be like mean or, or fun. Like I'm, I'm saying the fact that you've been around this business for a long time. You've seen crazy ebbs and flows in this business. Yes. And, and. Mostly ebbs. Some, so you said mostly. Mo mostly ebbs. <laughs> Not too many flows. Um, so there's some documentaries that put that first wave of black comedy on a bit of a pedestal, like, well, these were the guys that had to get through the door. So these other people could get through the door and there's other people that definitely are just like, well, this isn't, this isn't, this was never necessary to do. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of like, he's not my guy kind of thing. And Kamau Bell also made a, it, it's not a, I love Cosby piece, but it's definitely kind of an, I love the idea of what right. I think this man was piece. Right. So the, of course the, you have to crap on step and fetch it. How was, do we know how step and fetch it was uh, treated during his day? Because it was of a time when America couldn't get over the fact that we had immigrants, that we were, that there were all that comedy was making fun of people's ethnicities and their problems speaking, learning the language, that it wasn't just step and fetch. You know, Albert Brooks's father mm -hmm. was Park Your Carcass, and he was a like a Yiddish comedian who kind of made fun of uh, being Jewish, lovingly made fun of being Jewish and spoonerisms and not mastering the English language. And there was, uh, you know, Italian comics of that time. Do you think perhaps Step and Fetch it thought he was of that ilk, you know, where you make fun of, it was okay to make fun of yourself? Or this is probably going to sound bad. I mean, I'm just asking the question. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, this is probably going to sound bad, but ultimately it's getting you in the door. And I'm not saying right. it's right. I stress the imagination but it's getting you in the door and it's acceptable and you're going to give people more of what they want. Right. When you get that big, you're giving people what they want. Right. Right. You want to, you want to see me talk like this, then you're going to yeah. talk like that. Right. Right. So Cosby, a lot of young people don't realize that Cosby at one point may have been one of the, the most transformative civil rights leader in America. Is that a fair statement that at one point yeah. culturally? I'd push back on that. 
Because because he wasn't black, you push back. In other words, he was saying, <laughs> because Cosby wasn't black. Well, then, black in other now. words, in other words, the a lot of people criticize him because he gave white people what they wanted, which was a a, a black <sighs> I, I, comic who was white. This is what I'll say about that, and and I and I I don't think so. I think Bill Cosby gives you a conservative vision of successful black people. And I think he's always wanted to give you a conservative vision of successful black people. And that's a very black, almost nationalist vision of what success looks like. But in his world, it's been very, very multiracial, um, which is kind of one of the beauties of the show. It introduced me to people like Tito Puente. You know, I I only made a 15 minute video essay, so I couldn't really get into the weeds of it. I will say this. I thought this was funny. Malcolm Jamal Warner watched it. The guy that played Theo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, and I guess he dug it, but um, we got to remember that Cosby's playing a spy doing covert ops and I spy during the era of COINTELPRO. And we have to also remember that he's not going against the grain like, um, God, now I'm forgetting his name, the other black comic of the same era. Dick Gregory. Yes, thank you. Oh, God, thank you. Almost said Flip Wilson. Dick Gregory. <laughs> um, and Dick Gregory's, I don't even know if I would use the word dangerous because they're both very, you know, well-dressed. There's a similar delivery. Um, but Dick Gregory is making fun of the racial era that we're in the times that we're in he's calling it out and bill cosby is not right i'm not saying he's not funny i'm not saying he's not black he's just not the noah bit that i put in the skit i i laugh at it every time i I had to you know watch it 15 times before i got the cut right and it made me giggle every time right right um we can't take away from the fact that he's actually a funny uh, talented individual. Um, my issue is more so like parasocial relationships and the way that we look at um, someone like Cosby, especially because he's been pretty conservative throughout his throughout his career, throughout his life. Right, conservative in terms of uh, telling uh, black kids to uh, bl- you know blaming. You're talking about personal responsibility instead of a lot of, of personal responsibility. Instead, you know, pull your pants oh, oh, up. Yeah. Because we have to remember where that sh- that show kind of takes place in a fantasy land. So the guy that writes the book about fatherhood, um, who becomes quote unquote America's dad, which I thought was like brilliant marketing, whether it's his people or or NBC. Um, I always found that really, really fascinating because as New York is going through as a, as a New Yorker financial hardship the city as a whole the state as a whole crazy racial tension this show starts off in 84 when bernard gets shoots three black kids in the subway we're cutting programs left and right in new york there was no subway cops you had the guardian remember the guardian angels they're still around curtis that's was on the damn that's was on the damn subway back then right. he was, and and how reactionary are they Right. They're vigilantes. They're glorified vigilantes. Horrible. I can't think of the guy's name that started him. Curtis Sliwa. Oh, was he? Didn't he? Isn't he running for mayor? Yeah. Yeah. He's got a he's got a radio show now in New York City. 
He's on the right, and it's so typical of radio. On the left, Anthony Weiner, the guy <laughs> who got out of prison. Yeah. He's he's the lefty. He 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 speaks the Huma Abedin's uh, husband who couldn't keep uh, away from young girls. That's who they. Oh well, that's who represents the left. No, nobody else can represent the left. It has to be the insane Anthony. The guardian Weiner. angel or the or the, or the Weiner man. Yeah, I, I, I mean. Uh, I guess the way I see it, uh, I'd like to think that Anthony Weiner is America's dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was hands-on with his kids. He likes his kids. Joining us, let's uh, bleed into this segment, if, if you don't mind, since we're running a no. little. Uh, joining us is Professor Ben Burgess, host of Give Them an Argument, where you were just on. He is also the author of Christopher Hitchens' What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still matters go buy that book go buy christopher hitchens what he got right how he went wrong and why he still matters uh let's stay on the cosby documentary mm -hmm. for a second professor ben yep. did you see the cosby documentary on showtime uh i i did see oh no i did not see the cosby documentary on showtime i watched jason's video about you know, you know yeah, I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't see the showtime thing uh, how do we watch the video, Jason? We're, we're gonna... uh, YouTube.com backslash This Is Revolution Podcast. So why did Kamal... I'm sorry, I stepped on that. Say it again, please. Uh, YouTube.com backslash This Is Revolution Podcast. Okay. The, I thought the documentary mm -hmm. was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. What did I get wrong about Kamal Bell's documentary about Cosby? I mean, there's a few things I really didn't appreciate. Number one, I never appreciate the whole um, he's leaving these breadcrumbs to tell you that he's a serial rapist. Mm -hmm. um, ben, I don't know if you remember, there was a Cosby show episode where there was this uh, barbecue sauce that he had made. There's like two. It happened in two seasons. And the barbecue sauce, when you, whenever you had it, it would stop couples from fighting and they would make love. Right. And they play this clip and they're like, he was telling us he was drugging people. Then they went so far as to say, do you remember what his profession was in the show? And there was he was a baby doctor, right? A gynecologist. He wasn't looking up at vaginas on the show. It's a family show. He's supposed to be the family man. So, of course, he's going to deliver babies and give advice to families. That was so disingenuous and painted this really ominous picture that was just silly. And, and, that, and that does go to, you know, one of the big points that you were making in, in your video, with, which is that, I mean, as, as simple as this is, I mean, you just like what somebody like the persona that somebody puts out for the sake of entertainment or, you know, whatever, like that that's not, you know, that's not them. Right. I mean, like that's that maybe it's them. Right. But I mean like that, there's no, um, there's no guarantee that it's them. I think people, people always feel the need to do this. I see this all the time, right? Like after, after someone becomes an official bad person, either for silly reasons or for sometimes extremely good reasons, like somebody turns out to be a serial rapist. Um, people always do this thing where they say, oh, see, I always knew there was something off. It's like, no, you didn't. Well, what about you the did. Spanish fly routine? That was a thing. Tone Loke. Who Funky you Cold Medina. Funky, you, you know. You know Funky Cold Medina. I thought Funky There's Cold been... Medina was uh, Colonel William Calley's boss who ordered the massacre in my life. 
Maybe it was a different Medina. Funky Cold Medina. If that's what that song was about, then I'm going to walk to Los Angeles right now and hug Tone Loke. Uh, okay. The song was about rape juice. But the difference is Tone Loke was never accused of giving anybody. Well, but that's but that but that's the point, right? Because like if if he was, he'd say, "Oh, aha, see, right?" You know, he was confessing <laughs> in this routine, and it's like, no, he he wasn't. I mean, I don't think Bill Cosby had any interest in people finding out that he was a serial rapist. I actually think that he was like very interested in people not knowing that yeah. uh, about him. And and I think I think it is a little bit of an important point because this there's this sort of widespread belief that like whatever like cultural expression someone has is is a like inventory of their soul right you know that 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 that's like that tells you who they are as a person which both means that like if you're a bad person you have to find breadcrumbs in the in the in the cultural product but also that like this is also how you know Bill Cosby tricked everybody, right? Because they thought that they thought that like you know Doctor Huxtable was like really him, you know, and or for that matter the uh, the character that he played, you know, the Bill Cosby character that he played after the show. He was like writing books about fatherhood and stuff. His kids you know? weren't perfect. His kids, but his, his it, daughter, it, okay. So all right, all right. So that's let's give Kamal the benefit of the the doubt. He's a comedian and. That's kind of funny about the Spanish. He wasn't trying to be funny. I don't think he was trying to be funny. Okay, but but this is a what a four part documentary. What else? He he had a budget. He had a budget, and he had four parts. And in this movie, they reiterate that this is America's dad, and we're so crushed it was America's dad. He never gets into the fact that Bill Cosby, with his own children, granted his son did get murdered. His own children had some drug problems that were public. And he doesn't even talk about it because it ruins the narrative of father of the year. And it's like, well, dude, apparently it wasn't 2014 or whenever the pound cake speech is. I got speeches from 1996 of this dude telling me to pull up my pants. And don't steal the pound cake. That that comes later, but I'm saying in '96 he was saying pull up your pants and stop naming your kids these stupid names. This is who he had become, because as Ben says and other people have said, what a great way to cover up the fact that you're going around, um, you know, raping starlets. But is he entitled? You know, let's take the the criminal sociopathic behavior off the table. I mean, we can all agree. Unless Professor Ben Burgess wants to debate that <laughs> drugging women and having your way with them is yeah. If we, if we are going to have a debate, I'd like to request the the anti-rape side. You want to be anti-rape. <laughs> we, we we agree that is bad. Is he completely wrong saying to young black men the mm-hmm. same thing that Barack Obama said? Mm-hmm. Pull up your pants you know, personal responsibility. I know, I understand that mm-hmm. it's not about personal responsibility. It is about systemic racism. It is about police. It is about locking black men up because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment, free prison labor. I, not, I'm not, but is it completely wrong to, to preach assimilation? Is that well, wrong? 
my my pants are pulled up, but I, I do just want to say that the um, that I think what's wrong with it is that it it, it misdiagnoses uh, a problem about the distribution of material resources as a as a um, as as a moral problem about like underclass individuals, right? I mean, like that this is uh, every you know, like that. In other words. Like, what's the message of the Cosby show? Like, because because they like it's essentially that the way and like it's the same message as the 1996 pull up your pants stuff. Right. I mean, that like it's it's that you should the solution is to, you know, you know, whatever. It's like Jordan Peterson, you know, sit with your soul shoulders, you know, shoulders straight and, you know, study and become a doctor, you know, like 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 Bill Cosby's, you know, character. And, you know, and, is that the worst? And, and is that the worst advice to give to anybody? To? Uh, is, is it is it uh, is it terrible advice for an individual? Maybe not. But I think it's terrible if you think that that's a solution to poverty, right? I mean, like you can't have upward mobility for everybody. It doesn't work that way. I mean, I can I can only tell you my own true anecdotal stories. Right. Right. And I am from a poor working class neighborhood in Richmond, California. You've lived in the Bay area. I'm sure you know, where Chevron. Richmond yeah. And I got to go to school in a city called Albany. Next door to Berkeley. Right next to Berkeley. Kamala, I think Kamala Harris grew up in Albany. Right. I think she grew up in Berkeley, but probably close. if she did, I wouldn't be surprised because right. I went to school with a lot of uh, PhD students, kids. Right. So I'm going to school with all these kids who have super educated parents. Everybody goes to college, black and white. Right. And my black and white classmates, because it was the nineties, it was the style. We had our pants around our ass. We had big baggy pants and they hung around our ass. And that's just what we did. But not everybody can pull up their pants and just go get a job. Not everybody can do drugs in high school, not get arrested, not get prison record, can fight in high school, can cut class in high school, not get arrested, not get a record, and then go off and do pretty good things. Right. So to say that all you have to do is just simply pull up your pants, it's kind of missing the point. And you're making it all about the individual and not so much about the systems that these individuals may exist in. So while these these individuals, you know, there is some personal responsibility people do have to take at some point, right? We can't sit here and say you can go through life robbing and stealing, beating the shit out of people, and not think there's going to be any consequences of this shit. That's yeah, just I mean, crazy. okay, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're Bill, Co- again, if you're Bill Cosby, again. <laughs> this is a guy all raping aside, all, right? raping, all raping aside, all raping aside. Uh, well, it's hard to, you really can't disentangle the rape from the politics. We're speaking you? in the magical land of if, right? Yeah. So let's just speak in the magic. There, there, so if, there's, if, Bill, if Bill Cosby wasn't a racist, it would, it would still be the case that he's telling people, you know, wasn't a rapist, you know, it would still be the case that he's, he's telling people like, the problem is that uh, that you know because of underclass culture, you're not you know you're not joining the middle class. And look, I mean, don't I, I mean I agree with Jason. Like it is actually you know, I mean one on one, sure, right? You know that like that that do you, like uh, if you you know I have no problem with you know saying like yeah you want to like if you 
you know, encourage people to make good choices, sure. But the reason why you have um, people living in poverty is not because they were listening to the wrong music or because they weren't pulling up their pants or, right. or, or any of right. that, you know, or, or any of that stuff, right? I mean, like I, uh, it's um, systemic racism. And the reason there's well, systemic you know, racism is you need a permanent underclass of African-Americans to mine. You, they mine African-Americans well, for work and putting them in cycles of debt to pay the municipal expenses. We saw that in Ferguson, Missouri. Ferguson. I'll, I'll raise you this, but I'll raise you this, right? Because yeah. that, that's, that does happen. I'll raise you this. White kids were getting a similar message in the mid-80s, downwardly mobile. White kids were getting a similar message in the 80s with heavy metal music. And that's why they weren't doing shit with their lives. It was the music they were listening to. Right. You're right. There's always going to be an excuse. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and, and I would, and I would, and yeah, and I mean, like, so it's I think- the depoliticization. The, like, Go ahead, I'm on sorry. The, on the cultural thing, I would say, I think if you look at the history of a lot of white immigrant groups, at times when those groups being recent immigrants were like very poor, there were all sorts of narratives that people told themselves about that was because of their culture, right? And then everybody sort of forgot about it, right? Irish culture didn't really change. Uh, it's just that the, you know, it's it's just that Irish people were disproportionately poor anymore, so people didn't link the uh, right. the two things, and and I wouldn't even say. Look, I mean, I think that you know, um, that phrase systemic racism could mean a lot of things, but I mean, the way I would put it is, I think the, you know, the fact that the United States was up until relatively recently an apartheid country is why black people are disproportionately likely before, but. The reason that the poverty exists, which I think is useful to disentangle the two, because I hope that our conception of a just society isn't that you have exactly the demographically per correct proportions of each group living in poverty, right? That they, like that they, uh, that like the poverty itself, you know, exists just because you, you need that, like, you know, structurally. Capitalism needs it. Yeah, exactly. You can't, <laughs> right. like, like it doesn't, you know, if everybody, if everybody, you know, studied hard and, you know, and, and, and became a doctor, you know, and, and had that nice house, then, then, you know, everybody would starve to death because nobody would be growing food. And, well, you know, remember we had that in the 80s and, and through the 90s when there was too many lawyers. There's always too many lawyers. <laughs> always. <laughs> Don't, I don't know only, if you remember that Ben when they were, when they were like uh, like don't even bother going there's just there's the only time there aren't a too aren't too many lawyers is the bottom of a ditch that you're about to pour <laughs> lie into then there's a shortage of of lawyers mm -hmm. is there any value uh, how, how we how we do it on comedians are there are there uh, the right number of them can't get enough comedians it's okay. lawyers right. Right. We, we, okay. uh, unfortunately Shakespeare was being sarcastic when he said let's kill all the lawyers. It was like, what do you want to do? Kill all the lawyers? It's always misquoted. He was pro-lawyer. But here's the thing. There are, in, in, in America in the 90s, uh, middle class uh, people of color who are upwardly mobile and mm -hmm. what, and, and they, they there's no no role model for them who's who says uh ignore <laughs> ignore where you came from take yours and pull the ladder well, up there's well, no there's the no need for what, what but, but, but what becomes 
there's 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 the idea of a monolithic black culture. Right. When I say white culture, all of a sudden every everybody goes, "Well, I have an ethnicity." And my culture isn't isn't just this thing that you can call white. It's not that homogenous. But for black culture, for some reason, there always wants to be these people that define it in one singular way. And that's kind of what you end up getting with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air after Cosby. Because the one thing Cosby does do, it, it, it destroys the inner city narrative, which is black life written through the lens of, of white Jewish dudes, right? Right. And, and then we get the Cosby show, which the pushback on that show for the, a lot of the time that it was on the air was it was it lived in fantasy and it lived in a fantasy. But the fantasy that people were critiquing was that it was a black lawyer and a black doctor living in the same house. Like, that's just right. crazy. And their kids weren't pieces of shit. Like, that's just crazy. Um, so after he walks off stage during the riots, that programming is kind of done. So from then on, any programming, if you look at it, that, that exists around black culture has to always have a tinge of the inner city because that has to be the authentic experience of, of black life, right? Moesha has kind of middle-class parents that are aspirational. D.L. Hewley has a show with middle-class parents that are aspirational. Family Matters is a show about middle-class parents that are aspirational, which would, again, because the dad's a cop, you get little sometimes tinges right. of this of this inner city life, but uh, but after Cosby, it kind of sits on its own as well. This is what perfect family life is for everyone, right. especially black people. But is and that uh, uh, I? Uh, I'm not arguing with you. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I you're right. I mean, I, I come from I come from a generation that believed wrongly that uh you're in america this is what why people liked cosby that's that everybody well forget it um haven't we just in general culturally turned our back on uh lower middle class people was it was it just uh african-americans who were in the hood that we were turning Bro, back brother, brother, I'm going to talk to you like Cornell West. Brother David, yeah. <laughs> there is such a resurgence of crack era glorification right now going on in media. It's blowing my effing mind. There's, there, there's a, a prequel to New Jack City in the works. Okay, but in terms of aspirational TV... Mm -hmm. are, are, I, I don't watch enough TV. Are we seeing, we used to see like all in the family. We, we saw mm -hmm. middle-class, lower middle-class families being depicted. Is that, do we see that on television these days? Or kind of, but weren't okay. they, wasn't, wasn't Archie Bunker kind of surrendered to the Nixon generation? I mean, when you yeah. think about all in the family and I'll, I mean, again, me and Ben only know it through reruns. You know it because you were there. When you think about All in the Family and when it comes out, Archie Bunker's blue collar dude, is he from Queens? Yeah, Canarsie, I believe. Okay. okay. And his kids are kind of, or his kid and her husband is an idealist hippie that lives in a fantasy world. And that becomes the left. Right. Watch any movie from the 80s 
there's leftists portrayed in movies like License to Drive. And there's just silly, idealistic idiots that don't understand the real world. And Archie Bunker is the real thing. So I think that real thing character does persist, especially throughout the 80s. He, he's a little more dressed up. He's, he probably works in finance or the private sector. Uh, uh, growing pains. The father's a private uh, psychotherapist, I believe. Um, it, Professor, ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess, mm. is there anything wrong with presenting a fantasy world to a television audience to say, we know this isn't the way it really is, but for 30 minutes, we're going to give you an escape from reality. Is that is that wrong? I mean, I used to watch Battlestar Galactica. Thank I'm pretty you. sure that that's, you know. But was <laughs> there something wrong reality with the Cosby show or uh, any, of the, uh, any of the shows that we've been talking about? But is, is uh, there but, no merit but, but, but to no, something I mean, like look, the, Leave it to Beaver, the Brady Bunch? The idyllic family that doesn't yeah, exist. Sure. I mean, that's fine. I don't I don't have an issue with that. I, I, I do think it's worth thinking, though. I mean, enjoy what you're going to enjoy. I, that's you know, that's fine. Right. You know, but I, I, I do think it's worth uh, taking a step back sometimes and thinking about what it is that you're that you're saying. Right. You know, like, like in other words, like is um, not because I think that, like, you know, anything that happens on television is going to, you know, like that people are going to, you know, have, um, you know, become, um, you know, the people are good. I don't, not that I expect like sort of good left politics to be spread by television, right? Like, like, like that's not, that's not an expectation here, but like, I think that the, but I think it is, I think it is sometimes worth like taking a minute and thinking about like, okay, to the extent that there's, it's not just entertainment, that there is something being said here what is being said and should we think about whether that thing that's being said uh makes sense right so so i i, I think that like look i mean is it nice to have you know whatever parents who have good middle class jobs and live in a nice house and all that stuff i mean it, yeah right it is right you know but but i think i think with something like the um you know let me go back to to the uh to the cosby show like in that was like the very first episode of the Cosby show, right? Where he's like yelling at his kid because, you know, cause he, he doesn't, he's like, ah, oh, dad, you know, maybe I don't, you know, maybe that's just the, <laughs> me, for um, me. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to become yeah. a doctor like you, you know, like, that's not me. Why don't you just love me for me? He's like, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> shut up and study and be a doctor, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, okay. I, I guess, I guess the thing that I think is worth maybe thinking a little bit critically about is like whether the sort of, basic message is that the the problem with like the reason that people are are um living worse lives is that they haven't like studied hard enough you know that they can they can become a doctor and and i think that you know i mean you know maybe in some cases if you grew up in that household but like in uh in general right like I, I think it's I think it's really important to realize that it's not because this is a and and that this is a message that's not just in television. Like you mentioned Obama earlier. And and Obama was like explicitly uh stating this message all the time. There's there's one of his State of the Union addresses, there's a line in there where he says to be a the best anti poverty program in the world is a world class education. Right. Really, you know, claps. 
And then like, but you actually take 10 seconds to think about it. It's like, okay, so wait a second. So the idea is that like, you know, the working poor will no longer exist because everybody's gotten a good education and, you know, and, and, and like ascended into the middle class. I mean, I think that like structurally that just doesn't work. I mean, not every cheerleader can be on top of the pyramid at the same right. time. Right. You know? <laughs> and what do you do with people who, what do you do with people who don't want to go to school? Should, should well, we Obama just, rode that narrative all the way to the White House and for for two elections that people just believed that because he was a colored kid with a white mom that she was the you know the the, the fodder for a lifetime movie right that she was this, some sort of working class <laughs> single mom and and the story was we, definitely yeah. not let, let me let me ask you this and we we have to go to Howie Klein in three minutes hmm? Obama and the daughters. I remember thinking they'll be, you know, they're like Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret. They're, they're American royalty. You know, we have the Kennedys. And I always knew that the Kennedys were completely full of shit, but they were something to aspire to. The There was the idea of the Kennedys. It was the even the Bush family, the idea of the Bush family and the idea of the Obama. Don't we need this fantasy no, no, we don't need monarchs. Keep your fantasy in the Star Wars universe if you want monarchs. Princess Leia is a great role model. There you go. You're, you're I know you're right. <laughs> I'm a, I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with yeah. this. Two fictional lands that got a lot of respect from black people to the point where there were people going to the theater in tears and dashikis for Black Panther fictional land of wakanda is a monarchy there's a freaking bloodline now granted everybody's supposed it's like the most technologically advanced country in the history of technologically advanced countries in the fictional land of marvel but also no one really tripped at the fact that the black technologically advanced warriors were riding animals and had spears People went to the theater in dashikis to see glorified Shaka Zulu. All right. <laughs> Who's your hero in real life? Is there anybody you model your behavior after? Me or Burgess? Both of you. Go, you go first, Burgess. This is a tough one. Yeah, David Feldman. Well, people should model. <laughs> I, I actually think people should model their lives after me yeah I, I well think he's I, got a house and good lighting so he's doing something right i don't have a house i have an air shaft <laughs> uh don't you need heroes like woody allen uh <laughs> chuck berry good fa good family men don't we peeing on everybody no honestly did, honestly, did you say peeing uh, on everybody i'm having I'll be honest with you, even though I'm having some beef with the, with the guy right now, personally, my dad has always been someone that I look back on uh, things that he's told me growing up that have kept me very, very grounded, that have definitely kept me out of trouble. He was always involved in making sure I didn't fuck up too much. I got in a fight in school with a now friend, a classmate, and my dad was there with this kid's dad. And they sat there in the office with the vice principal and said, well, the principal giving us permission. If you guys really want to fight, we can take you off site and you can handle it at the Y or 
you two can just shake hands and quit being punks about it. And, you know, that's, that's my dad. Right. So, well, that's, that's my, that's my hero. I I hope to be able to have that level uh, of understanding with my own children. If they get into that level of trouble, Jason, you'll come back next week. If you want me, I want you. Jason Miles is co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. Professor Ben Burgess, can we talk about what you've got planned or just is that a secret? Uh, Yeah, let's hold off on that. Something. He has a big announcement to make. Oh, you can't announce it yet? No. Yeah, I got to got to got to wait a few days. It's also bad luck because he and I don't know if we're getting a boy or a girl. So we don't wait for the ultrasound. You know, yeah. let's 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 you know. Happy birthday to your wife, Professor. <laughs> Didn't your wife just have a birthday? Uh, my wife had a birthday like a few months ago. <laughs> Didn't she just have an anniversary? Uh, our anniversary is in July. I have no idea what year. This Valentine's Day a couple weeks ago. Is that what yeah, you got pictures of your wife all over social media. That's what it is, Ben. Are you sure? Because yeah. I, I could have sworn I was. Uh, ben don't realize he got pictures. Of, you got pictures of your wife like you done fucked up all over social media with good ass glamour shots. So I don't know if you didn't take out the trash, or whatever you didn't do, but you no. got them. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Ben Burgess is author of Christopher Hitchens: What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Go buy it right now. I just blew my nose. Uh, I'm, I'm allergic to uh, success, and you guys are <laughs> making me very insecure right now. Thank you both. I hope to see All you right. next week. Thank you. All right. Peace. Thank Thanks, you. David. Well, now let's go, I hope, to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein is standing by. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive candidates. And he writes Down With Tyranny, which is must-reading for all of us. Hello, Howie. Hey, how are you? Good, good, good. We're running on time today. Let's talk about President's Day. Bernie Sanders, happy President's Day. We wish. The best president of your lifetime would have been Bernie Sanders, had he been yeah. right? Absolutely, no question about it. One year into the Bernie presidency, let, let's imagine that he's president. Would you, how do you see this going? We'd be making excuses for him because there'd be no way he'd get any support from the Democrats or the Republicans. He'd be completely on his own. And he'd have assassins around every corner. Is that a fair statement? No. I mean, I don't think so. I, I don't. I don't. I, how could how could you say that? How do you know? How does how would anyone know? Because I saw Jimmy Carter was not a leftist. He was a trilateral commission, middle of the road. Jimmy but, Carter was a conservative Democrat. Right. And they destroyed him. Washington destroyed him because he was an outsider. And Bill Clinton was even more conservative than Reagan. But because he was an outsider, they destroyed him. What? Clinton was more conservative than Reagan? Yes. I, 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 I don't know where that comes from either. 
Well, economically. More conservative than Reagan. I mean, I'm no, I, don't, I don't want to be put in a position to defend Bill Clinton because I don't like any of his policies. But he wasn't more conservative than Ronald Reagan. Reagan didn't he, get he was Re- Reagan conservative. Didn't. He turned into a conservative. I mean, look, he was a hippie. He was a, this guy was a hippie. He, he won election the first time as attorney general running on the left. He got his ass kicked. And then he went conservative to, for the sake of his political career. And he, he stayed as a conservative, and, uh, but a conservative Democrat. A conservative Democrat is very, very different from a conservative Republican. I, 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 don't, I don't know where – I've never heard anybody say that, that Bill Clinton was more conservative than Ronald Reagan. This is the first. I'm, I'm, my jaw is on the floor. Okay. Uh, well, I hope your, your floor is clean. Uh, of course Clean. I don't want to debate you. I want to get to uh, the 14th Amendment because you wrote about it over with, with, down with Journey. But well, there's a better there's a much better um, segue from what well, I'm, let me just what, let me let me just defend that statement. Then the uh, wait, one second. But, uh, OK, go, you go. I'm sorry. It's your show. Uh, appealing, uh, repealing Glass-Steagall. Uh, which, like I said, I don't want to defend uh, him after the passage. of He was NAFTA. terrible. And welfare, t- throwing people off welfare. He got rid of welfare, as we know. Terrible. He declared not, he the era of big government is horrible. over. He's horrible, but not worse than Reagan. Reagan was worse. And 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 by the way, NAFTA was a Republican policy that they tried to pass and that failed. And that uh, and then uh, Clinton let Rahm Emanuel loose on Congress, and he went and you know beat the shit out of the Democrats who who voted against it under. Bush, and then they voted for it under Clinton. I would say that when you look back at conservative achievements, I would suggest that Bill Clinton racked up more conservative achievements than Ronald Reagan did. Uh, I disagree. Okay. I mean, Ronald Reagan destroyed the whole taxation system of the United States. He destroyed it, but he still didn't lower taxes, despite what. Yes, he did. He lowered uh, corporate taxes, but he raised uh, sales. Taxes went up under Reagan. Taxes went uh, went down, and they went up, and they went down. I mean, it was they were playing. Uh, you know, they 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 did lower taxes, and then they uh, played footsie while uh, to keep the keep him in office, so that the economy wouldn't completely crash, but. Did Bill Clinton do uh, bad things? A hundred percent, yes. Did he also do some good things? Also, yes. Did Reagan do bad things? Yes. Did he good do good things? No. When, when, I don't even think that it was really close between who is more conservative. Did you just make this up, or did, is this something that's going around in your circles now? I, I just kind of pulled it out of my, you know. Okay. Mind. But thank God. Name one good thank thing. Name one good thing. Me. Name one good thing Bill Clinton did. He he started the whole era of allowing blowjobs in the Oval Office. That is true. That is true. Can you name one good thing Bill Clinton did? Uh, ah. I would I would have to look it up on Google, <laughs> but yes, there are a lot of good things that Bill Clinton did. I can't. When you think of getting rid of welfare. 
Oh, I'll, I'll give you one that's even worse than, well, I don't know if it's worse than getting, well, he didn't get rid of welfare, but he, he drastically cut back on welfare. Yeah. But I'll tell you something that's really, really bad, maybe not that as bad as that, or maybe as bad as that in, in the long run. I don't know. Uh, in the long run. He allowed Fox. He allowed Fox News to happen. The Telecommunications I mean, Act, and and allowing Murdoch to come in and own a, a, an American broadcasting network that had never happened before. He he allowed that to happen. Has Fox News destroyed America? I I think so. So okay, he's worse than he's worse than uh, Reagan. I take it back. I, if somebody can think of in the chat room, if they can think of something good. There were tons of things that he did that were good. One thing, one good thing that Bill Clinton did, he, I, I can't think of it. Well, let's talk about the 14th Amendment. And wait, wait, wait. Yes. Doug, can we do a different segue than that? Did you, did you read the Danny Goldberg post at Down With Tyranny? About punching hippies? Yes. So, uh, uh, why don't, yeah, I mean, so that sort of segues much better into, into okay. what you were talking about. Because um, what, what he's, why don't you read it while I babble? Last week, Joe Scarborough. Oh, I'll read you the opening paragraph. Last week, Joe Scarborough, host of MSNBC's Morning Joe, compared truckers who were blocking streets in Canada to quote unquote hippies. It was both an ahistorical use of the word hippie and an unhelpful frame in the context of efforts to keep the anti Trump coalition together for the midterms. Right. So that so that's you know that's a decent um, introduction, but it gets much much better as it goes on. And I I, I, w I really really recommend first of all that people read it. Uh, it's at the top of my blog right now, so people should should read this post by Danny Goldberg. And second, David, I would recommend that you have Danny come on your show. I have have Danny ever been on your show? I, I'm going to reach out to him tomorrow and have him on. Okay, great. Yeah. So you do that. You don't need me to help. I love what he wrote about uh, John Lennon's song "Revolution." He's yeah, the yes, I mean, he he did a lot of Beatle a lot of Beatle references in this in this post. He's the only uh, person I know who who uh, I've been saying this for years about Lennon's song "Revolution," which mocks radicals. Right. It it does kind of yeah. And do you see what's right under that on, on, on that page? Well, there's a lot underneath it. Well, there's a little graphic. There's Bill Clinton and Hillary at Yale no, Law below School. It. Not on the side of it, but below it. Below All the way at the bottom. Alan Grayson, you may say... Now, let, before you read it, let me just say something. So Danny's right wrote this post over the course of three days. So I've been waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. It finally comes. So I'm, I'm doing the scheduling, I'm putting it in, I'm finding the, the, the pictures and doing all the editing and all that stuff. And, and while I'm in the middle of doing that and racing the clock to get this up on time, Alan Grayson sends me a note saying, this is a Facebook ad I, I want to uh, put out today. Can you take a look at it and tell me what you think? And, and what I thought was to put it right into Danny's post. Now, right. now, now read, the, uh, read, read the ad. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Yes, a nice, simple uh, Facebook ad. And, and you understand, if, um, I know you understand the reference, but do you think all the readers understand the reference? Yes, yes. Oh, good. Yeah. You're wrong. <laughs> You're wrong, but I'm glad you think that.
I, I, I would imagine that people below your age probably don't know what that is a reference to. Oh, I think everybody's. You're so kind. Imagine? I mean, how can people not know imagine? Ask your chat room. They, my chat room? Believe me. Yeah. I wouldn't let them in if they, they wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> they, have to, they have to sing that song before they are allowed through the doors, right? <laughs> All right. So we can't name one good thing. I'm being, this is, this is a question I, I'm very serious about. Tell me, I, I brought you in. Um, Bill Clinton again? No, no. Joe Biden. Oh. Tell me one. Sell me on Joe Biden. It's now, we're coming up on March 1st. Texas is voting in the primaries for the midterms. Sell me on the Democratic Party. Me? Yes. Tell me. me I, I didn't vote for Joe Biden, and I, 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 I would never vote for Joe Biden. Why are you asking me a good thing about Joe Biden? There are no good things about Joe Biden. Well, you have a piece about the 14th Amendment and take, how rebelling against the Amendment is about stopping uh, 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 Jim Jordan from uh, becoming the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. That's that's all that's about. But you do agree that they are okay. So before we get to Jim Jordan, anything <laughs> Biden can run on anything. What if Ukraine? Yes, he'll run. He'll run on on bullshit. He'll run on uh, this uh, transportation bill. Uh, you know, that's what he'll run on. Oh, look what we did. We built bridges and fixed highways. He'll run on that. He uh, kept us out of war. He did? Suppose Putin doesn't uh, invade. He did. He invaded while, you were, while your last guest was on. Did he declare... He invaded. His troops are now occupying pieces of uh, of the Donbass of of, uh, of Ukraine. He orders troops, troops into they're Ukraine. In the, they're, they're shelling and they're 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 shelling Ukrainian troops and they're in they're over the border. They're in they're inside Ukraine now. Russian. Oh, this is just thank, Russian President Vladimir Putin recognized two breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine as independent. Ordered the Russian army to launch what Moscow called a peacekeeping operation into the area, upping the ante in a crisis the West fears could unleash a major war. So he's gone into two breakaway regions. He, it, it, it's like, you know, it would be like, uh, you know, uh, Russia in, invading uh, uh, Texas and Louisiana. I mean, you know, they're breakaway regions too. I mean, these these are two parts of uh, of Ukraine that are, and they're you know they're you know you have to cross the Ukrainian border to get to these two breakaway regions. But they're, they're you know they're not breakaway regions until Russia just recognized them as, as sovereign countries. Uh, no one else in the world has. I'm, although I'm sure Belarus will before the end of the day. Belarus, whatever they call it now. Um, yeah, I mean he, he has invaded he has invaded uh, Ukraine. What, do you, what 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 is there's a little corner of Ukraine left in in, in the uh, the northwest part of the country? You'll say, well, it's still it's still uh, not war. He said it's they, a peace. Been, he says it's, them. it's a peacekeeping operation. That's what he said. Yeah. Don't you trust Putin? All right. Yeah. So yes, he's ordered Russian's defense ministry 
to deploy troops into two Russian-backed separatist territories in Ukraine. All right. I'm looking at a map. All right. I mean, this this was always about the Donbass uh, area that, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, you, that Russia would like to to reabsorb. And that will be the compromise. Do you remember this thing that happened in, in Czechoslovakia just before World War uh, World War Two? Yeah. When the uh, to let the Sudetenland be absorbed yeah. by Germany? Yeah. Yeah, that's what just happened. You have Russian speaking people living in, and you had German German speaking people living in uh, in Czechoslovakia. Right. So, do you think he? What do you? What do you think he does now? Do you think he invades Ukraine, all of it, Kiev? He goes for the whole thing. Does he really want to occupy all of? I I don't know if if he will do it or not. I have a suspicion that uh, you know, um, not wanting to sound like Neville Chamberlain, uh, Biden and uh, the rest of the Europeans have uh, told him just take take those two regions and then stop. That's what I think that they did, you know, backstage. Right. Okay. It's kind of like what Trump did with, uh, with Crimea. He, he let them, uh, you know, he let them get away with that. Was that Trump? Who no, did it? it was Obama. Oh, Obama. It right. And then Trump. 14. Yeah. Uh, you know, cheered it on. Well, yeah. Uh, okay. You know, and I, I don't know what the answer to this is, by the way. Uh, but you know, they, it was a, a sovereign country. I mean, Ukraine is a sovereign country and yes, there are people who, who speak Russian in, in Crimea and in the Donbass without, a, without a doubt, but he just went in by force of arms and, uh, and, and took those parts of Ukraine away. So, you know, I mean, what are you going to say? I mean, he's saying there are Russian speakers. Well, there are Russian speakers in Lithuania. There are Russian speakers in Estonia. There are Russian speakers in Latvia. Plenty of them. What, what is he going to go in? And, and in fact, some of them are oppressed. Some of these Russian speakers are oppressed, which gives uh, Putin, you know, in his mind, the right to go in and, uh, and take over those countries or, 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 you know, cut them up. Although they're so small, you could hardly cut much off them. Uh, and, uh, and then what happens? They're, they're members of NATO. What happens then? You know, I, there's a funny thing about, like, you know, giving in to dictators. Uh, you know, it, it just sort of whets their appetite. You know, just the way, I mean, when you think about Hitler, you know, peace in our time, and he got Sudetenland, and we got peace in our time. And then what what happens, you know? I, and then what happens further? We, you know what happened with Hitler. We'll see what happens with Putin. My 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 guess is that if the West would have cracked down on him in some way after Crimea, this wouldn't be happening today uh, in uh, in um, the Donbass. You know, I don't want to give it, give my whole thing away because I'm sitting and writing this piece right now that I'm very excited about. But David. I fancy myself a, a kind of a history buff, and I never heard of this before. Have you ever heard of this? The, the, don't look it up. The Corwin Amendment. The what? 
the Corwin Amendment, C-O-R-W-I-N? No. Anyone in the chat room heard of it? Uh, they say it was a, a song that Yoko recorded oh, with no, no, John no, no. Lennon, Get it. the Corwin. Get it. So, uh, no. so the Corwin Amendment, uh, which was named uh, after a Republican in, in Ohio, although it was written by, he, and he was a Republican rep, a congressman, and it was written by him and uh, Seward, who is the senator from, uh, also a Republican senator from uh, New York. The Republicans were kind of the good guys in those days. So this is just, this is in 1861. It passed both houses of Congress. So it passed both um, the Senate by two thirds and the House by two thirds. Well, so it failed had, in is the this House. Something to do with Alaska buying something from Russia? Oh, no, 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 nothing to do with Alaska. Okay. Seward went on later to become Secretary of State and buy Alaska, but this is something completely different. I'm going to explain what it is, and you'll see the connection to what we're okay. talking about. So. Um, the purpose of this was to do something incredibly fantastic, like incredibly fantastic. Had it passed and been ratified, it would have, and it did pass, but it just wasn't ratified. Uh, and, and Abraham Lincoln said, yes, I'm for it. Go for it. And so what it was supposed to do was to stop the Civil War. So first of all, a few states had already seceded, uh, but not all of them. And it was supposed to get them back into the Union and prevent a war. Now, is that a worthy goal? Yes. Yes. So this was, this was the compromise. And so you don't secede to the South. You don't secede. You don't go to war with us. And what we're going to give you is slavery in perpetuity. We, we will write into the Constitution, the Corwin Amendment, that there will never, and it would have been called the 13th Amendment, by the way, we will never, ever interfere with your uh, domestic uh, decisions to have slaves. I mean, they didn't use the word slaves. They said, you know, bonded laborers or something like that. But that, the whole purpose of it was you could have slavery forever. Just don't secede. And it, it passed the Senate, passed the House. Uh, it was signed by Buchanan. He was so excited about it. And then, and then Lincoln made an announcement that he's fine with it too and sent it on to the states. And the, the states didn't ratify it in time before the war started, before the, the uh, South Carolina started bombarding uh, Fort Sumter. Now, the reason that I bring this up just now is because, well, first I want to ask you, what do you think about that as a compromise? I hate to imagine what I would say and do to avoid war. It's just too scary a thought. I don't know. I don't know. Um, my, my God, I, I, I didn't expect that answer from you. We're talking about having these people, millions of people in, in, in slavery forever. And, and I mean, it says specifically in the amendment, it could never be changed. Perpetuity can't be changed. So, uh, yeah, uh, and it was a bad war, but I, I just don't think I, I just don't go. I mean, I am all in favor of compromise. I, I like compromise, but not that you, you don't have the compromise to give away that. Right. Slavery forever. We would have slaves right now. I'm just trying to think of what the argument obviously uh they didn't care. They didn't consult with black people. They right. didn't have a poll of the, of the slaves. They had no say in this. Right. 
That was the point. No say it whatsoever. Well, the reason it, I'm bringing it's it up, kind of like oh. saying uh, Hitler will. You can leave Hitler alone. He'll kill all the Jews in in Germany. But if he goes no further, uh, we'll be okay with that. I think most. <laughs> I mean. Uh, I don't know. Well, I, I don't know what the yes, argument would Jews be. would have gone for that. I don't think Jews would have gone for that, but European, some Jews might have gone for it as long as they weren't in Germany. Right. Yeah. So how does this um, tie into Ukraine? Well, it, it ties into the, the discussion that we were having about uh, about presidents and about, uh, the, the like, like right now, there's this whole thing about how uh, we all have to get together to stop Trump. So never Trumpers and conservative Democrats have, you know, their, their new thing is not punch the hippies, but shut up the progressives. Right. The progressives have all these ideas. They're too radical. We need to we need to unite around these nice conservative ideas. The Democratic Party has to become a nice conservative party and not a uh, not a progressive party. These progressive ideas have to be jettisoned. And then we will be able to stop Trump. That is the compromise. That's what the, you know, the, the, I don't know if you've ever heard of this outfit, but the Progressive Policy Institute, the Progressive Policy Institute is the, the most conservative or the Lincoln Democratic project. Speak. Yes, that's part of it. Yeah. But, but they're, they are horrible. They are absolutely, they take the word progressive and, and, uh, and they've turned it into a, a curse word because that's what they are. They are the worst of the worst, and they use the word progressive in, in what they are. So people will get tricked and think, oh yeah, well, progressive policy must be fine. But they are one of these organizations, one of these conservative democratic organizations that is saying we must uh, unite with uh, uh, so-called moderate Republicans. Now, I've never met a moderate Republican who wasn't a conservative. They're all conservatives. They're not fascists, they're conservatives. None of these people are fascists. Trump and his people, they, they are fascists. But uh, conservative Republicans, is this what we're going to agree to? No more, no more fighting for Medicare for all. No, forget the Green New Deal. No more fighting for uh, increasing the minimum wage. This is what the Democratic Party has always stood for. This is what progressives are about, this kind of elevating the, uh, and, and uh, elevating the aspirations of the working class. Well, what these these conservative Democrats and, of course, Republicans who don't like Trump are saying is we have to uh, we have to forget all that stuff because we have to unite uh, to, to stop Trump. And the only way we're going to do that is by, uh, you know, giving up on these ideas. Right. And you have people like uh, Congressman. That, by the way, isn't on my isn't on my blog yet because I'm writing it now and I'll probably use it tomorrow morning. You have people like Sean Maloney, who he's the head of the DCCC these days. Sean Patrick Maloney, he is the head of the DCCC. He is Cherry Bustos in, uh, in, in man, Mandrag. And he cherry picks left-wing policy and blames that for losses in the Democratic Party. For example, like the school board in San Francisco wanting to rename a school, take Abraham Lincoln's name off a school. He says, that's why we're losing. Or defunding the police is the reason we're losing. We're being destroyed by AOC. But he doesn't have the balls to say... Uh, 15, 
or or the or the you know the fifteen dollar minimum wage or universal health care or free tuition. Yeah, well, why did these things fail? These things failed because of conservative Democrats. That's why they failed. They didn't fail because of Repu- I mean, yes, they, all the Republicans were obviously terrible about this, but it, it, but the Democrats had the power to pass these things. We would have a fifteen dollar minimum wage. No, the point wage I'm now. making is that the one in Republican, we don't need one of them. The, the point and we don't have. The point I'm making is, and you've pointed this out. I'm repeating the point you've made that the the conservative Democrats blame fringe issues on the left yes. for their losses. Yes, but, but the and that, could, that's the, the CPI thing that I was just talking about. Yeah. That's what it does. It's like you know, pages and pages and pages. Blaming, uh, you know, defund the police as though that were what the progressive movement is all about. The progressive movement is not all about defund the police. Is it about uh, it's way more about uh, raising the minimum wage. It's way more about providing health care to the country. It's way more about uh, saving the country and the world from climate change. That's what it's about. This other stuff, you know, is is. Still being debated. Let's put it like that. Yeah, I mean, no police force is being defunded, you know, and and it's just a bad slogan. It doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't mean anything. And the conservatives have turned it into some something to define the Democratic Party, and now we have conservative Democrats uh, using it as so-called hippie punching. Yeah, hippie punching. That's right. Are hippie you? Puncher? Uh, yes. Any candidates we should donate to before you go? Yes. So uh, did we already have uh, Ruth Luevanos uh, on the show? No. Let's get her on next week. She is running against a Republican. Well, she's running against, you know, we have a jungle primary here, I always tell you. Uh, so she's running against two conservatives, a conservative Republican who's the incumbent, in, uh, just north of uh, Los Angeles, and a conservative Democrat who already lost to the conservative Republican three times in the DCCC thing four times for the fourth time is the uh, charm somehow. Right. And and Ruth is incredible. She's fantastic. And her name is, is like there's an Evan in between, like Evan. So it's Lou Evan Os. Lou Evan Os. Great woman. Great. And I would say go to... Uh, Go to Blue America's main page, the congressional page, and donate to her campaign. Thank you for asking. Thank you. Everybody should go to the Blue America pack and donate just blindly. Just if you want to feel good. <laughs> Seriously. Instead in future, of. The way, when you, we have a candidate on, instead of saying, because Howie says, can you please just say, because Blue America says, I'm, it embarrasses me because my, uh, my two partners in Blue America are left out. We watched. Nina Turner speaking at a fundraiser on Friday night in Los Angeles during office yes, hours. In Jerry's fr- house. Whose house? Jan and Jerry. Jan oh, and Jerry. The- yes. And John Hayes streamed it into our office hours, and she was fantastic. She and, is fantastic. Yeah. I unfortunately have a 430 that I'm already a minute Goodbye. late for. Thank you. We love you, Howie Klein. Go to Down With Tyranny and read Howie Klein over at Down With Tyranny. Thank you, Howie. He's gone. And follow him on Twitter at Down With Tyranny. When we come back, we will be talking to David Cobb, 
former presidential candidate for the Green Party. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Chairs in this Bessemer shop. Back in our day, don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my rate and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins that said, vote no. But maybe this year union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemer floor. I'm hoping the union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. AmazonLaborUnion.org. Ain't no chairs on this Bessemer shop. Uh, uh, that's Professor Mike Steinell, the brilliant Mike Steinell, Professor Mike Steinell, who will be joining us 
little later on, and people should donate to AmazonLaborUnion.org. They're voting in Bessemer. Meanwhile, Christian Smalls, who I think could be one of the great Americans of the 21st century, has formed the Amazon Labor Union. Go to AmazonLaborUnion.org. Learn about our friend Christian Smalls and give him money. You will feel good. Instead of buying a scratch-off ticket, you will feel better. Please welcome David Cobb. He is a an activist, environmentalist, working for things like public banking. He ran Ralph Nader's presidential campaign in Texas and ran for president on the Green Party ticket. Hello, Mr. Cobb. You look like you're uh, the amazing Randy. <laughs> well, my beard is a little more full and it's the lighting. I I'm I love it. Visiting my mama in Texas. Oh, so, uh, this is the setup uh, that she has. Uh, so uh, you look great. I, I look like I, that's a great look. Body head. <laughs> so you're down in Texas, and they're voting. They are. What do you hear? Listen, um, you know, it, it's an interesting thing uh, in Texas. You have the the Republican Party double tripling down on rising fascism, and really. In Texas, at least uh, as I've been able to interpret it, uh, as is happening everywhere else, uh, Democrats are still in sort of a fight for the battle. There are the what I'll just call the neoliberal uh, Democrats who are continuing to tail and chase uh, after the Republicans. And there there are emerging genuine progressives uh, who are challenging uh, those those neoliberal Democrats, because the voting now, of course, uh, is the primary. And I do want to take this opportunity to really underscore that this the like, is not Democrats versus Republicans. Right. What you're what I believe that we're seeing is a disintegration of the various polls uh, that that used to exist the, in the Republican Party. You have the leadership of the Republican Party. Uh, basically now falling into lockstep into what can only be called uh, a uh, an embracing of neo-confederacy and uh, neo-fascism. The leadership, the rank and file of the Republican Party are still uh, up for grabs. In the Democratic Party, uh, the big fights are between the neoliberals uh, and the corporatists uh, and uh, the progressives. But then you have about half of the country who still doesn't vote. And I think that's something that you re- that we really need to take into account, uh, that even for those of us who follow electoral politics uh, and believe that you know th- this is the deciding moment uh, in U.S. electoral history, and still about half of registered voters don't vote. That is the great untapped narrative. That's point one. Point two, we see the uh, corporate Democrats have created yet one more political action committee uh, called Team Blue Pack and are literally raising money now to fight off progressive challenges rather than closing rank to defend the swing states uh, for either the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate. So I just feel like this whole D versus R thing, it, it, I, I say this every time I come on your show, uh, David Feldman, but the, the whole Democrat versus Republican is sort of missing the point of 
the progressive populism versus right wing populism. Right. And you that and, and you don't market. fetishize politics, which is such a, a relief on this show that there are ways to change the world without uh, resorting to voting. <laughs> well, I, I th well, thank you for that. And I, 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 I will say this. I do believe in engaging electoral politics, right? So it's not that I say without resorting to vote, but I, I do vote. But I don't have any illusion that me going and pulling a lever or pushing a button next to one person's name, uh, even if I do it collectively with lots of other people, uh, really exercise that much power. You know, David, like you, you say in the introduction all the time how I did, in fact, uh, run for president of the United States on the Green Party ticket. So, and it's true, I did. And I got the opportunity to vote for myself for president, right? Click that lever. And to be honest, that didn't feel that powerful either, right? <laughs> I mean, it may have been an ego boost, but I'll tell you what did, does seem powerful is when I take ordinary people and we walk through a process to help them imagine how they can become owners of a worker-owned cooperative and have both the power and the responsibility for making the decisions about how they're going to raise their own money, set their own price points, and control their own economic destiny. That feels powerful. To me. Let me ask you a question, because I asked this of Ralph Nader. When he was running for president in, I believe, 2000, there was a moment, it was brief, he packed Madison Square Garden. Oh. And I, were you there? I, I was there. Uh, in fact, I, I, I went to many of, we, we called them super rallies. This was, remember Ralph did it before Bernie did. Nobody had done what, what we were doing. Nader 2000 was the, really the high point for electoral politics uh, in, in, in my experience. I mean, for others, it would be Bernie. Uh, and I, I totally respect that. But yes, Madison Square Gardens and the Staples Center and right. the LA Forum. Like, remember, we were drawing 10, 15, 20,000 people all across the country. So I said to him, when that was happening, did for did were you capable for a moment of thinking I might win this? And he immediately said, "No." Like there was, <laughs> he knew exactly. You know, uh, I've done I've done last comic standing, and I did Star Search. There is no way I am ever going to win Star Search or last comic standing. I go into it knowing I can't win, but I get like one or two rounds into it. And I start going, I can win this thing. And it's like, what, what were you thinking, you idiot? Uh, they, they got me again. Did you at any point when you were running for president on the Green Party ticket, did you have like a nanosecond where you thought you could win this thing? No, never. Not. I knew I could. I knew okay. I couldn't win it. But I also want to take the, the question a little deeper and say, I was prepared to serve as president of the United States of America. Uh, and I mean that sincerely, and not just because the former occupant, George Bush, had set the bar so damn low. <laughs> I, and so could Ralph. And in fact, if Ralph had been president uh, in 2000, uh, we would have had a different world, uh, no doubt about it. Everything uh, he said was right. Everything he said about Clinton and Gore and the Democratic Party, he was, a and he's still right about the Democrats. He absolutely is right. And not just about the Democrats, he's also right about the progressive populist uh, policies that, that people would flock to. Uh, and the polling data shows it, right? Like folks get so wrapped up in like one election or the other, right? Or even multiple elections. But remember that that's actually not 
in my estimation, the, the right temperature gauge, right? The, the right temperature gauge is to actually see whether or not we're building the, the society that we want to live in. I, I also think it's important to recognize that part of the reason that both Ralph and I immediately answered no, there's no reason, is because we were kept from being allowed to participate in the debates, right? So there was no way that we could possibly win because there weren't enough people who even knew that we either of us were running. I will say this, and I mean this sincerely, uh, if Ralph Nader had, an op- had had an opportunity to be heard by the American people to speak common sense to NAFTA, uh, to the World Trade Organization, for the need for a living wage, for health care as a fundamental human right, you can go down the list. Like The policies that Ralph was putting forward were consistently not just supported by majorities most of them were supported by super majorities right like these are the policies that the american people want and just like with bernie ralph would have been able to gather a whole heck of a lot of people uh who either didn't uh, normally vote in elections or who were uh who would have voted for the republican but would have voted for for ralph out of a sense of integrity and a sense of of authenticity and sincerity right right by the way just very quickly and then i want to talk about whatever you want to talk about what i hear is no ralph nader no george w bush no iraq war and what people don't remember what they don't know is the democrats had the majority in the senate before the war authorization. Tom Daschle was Senate Majority Leader. The Democrats could have blocked the war authorization and they didn't. You didn't need- Right, I mean, so, and and remember that, uh, uh, th- that the, uh, look, it's- Anyway, let's, 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 yeah, let's talk about, we have limited time and I wanna talk about what you're working on. Uh, are you able to relax in Texas and enjoy? I am. I, I look. If people who know me know this about myself, and I'm not embarrassed at all to come on this national uh, podcast and say I am a straight up mama's boy. I I love my mama. Uh, you know, she is 81 years old now. So you know, every chance I get uh, to to visit, I do, and I stay as long as I can. I uh, I was at a national conference uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, bringing together other people who are doing the kind of local organizing work that we're doing to knit together a national network. Uh, but since I was here in the South, I, I, I told my mama after that I would come here. So I'm staying here for the full week uh, and uh, you know, just spending time with her and loving on her and appreciating the fact that I got what every human being deserves, but I now realize too few get. And that is as an infant and through my formative years, I was love bombed. My mama, my mama, and my papa, that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, Southern for grandmother and grandfather who raised me. My mama and my mama and my papa made absolutely sure that I knew without doubt that I was wanted, that there was a place in the world for me and that my gifts were meant to be shared. You know, I was disciplined, don't get me wrong, uh, but but I was actually encouraged to be the best version of myself that I could be. And, and I was encouraged not only to receive hugs, but to give them. Uh, like I really believe, David, that part of my 
natural optimism and my tendency to to have faith in the world. Part of it is my white whiteness and my maleness, right? Those are privileges mm-hmm. in this society to be sure. But it's also a function of the inner resilience that they gave me because I was wanted and I knew it. That's the difference between you and me. I was told love is something to be earned. You mm. want love, you must earn. I'm joking. Sort of. I think there's a generation of people who Listen, are I mean, conditional. I, I couldn't love. tell if you were joking because partly, you're, always, partly. You're, you're always so quick with a wit, right? But I can tell you this what you're like, the reason that joke is kind of funny, but also poignant is because even if it didn't happen to you, you and I know it happened to countless people. Like right. that is a thing, what you just described. Whether well, it happened to you or not, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm being serious. People think I'm joking. I would rather be loved because I'm rich and famous than be loved because I'm just a nice guy. Anybody can be a nice guy, but to be rich and famous, Listen, that would be... I, 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 I've been dirt poor, as in literally emptying a, a five-gallon bucket of my family's uh, excrement at the end of the day. Right. I'm not trying to be whatever, but like literally that was my uh, upbringing. So I come out of hard scrabble poverty, right? And then I was a successful trial lawyer. I never got like crazy rich, but I got very comfortable. So, right? So I've been dirt poor and I've been comfortable. Without doubt, I am here to tell you comfortable is better. Having more money is better than having less money in this capitalist economy. No doubt about that. But the point that you were making is both of them were, I'd rather be loved for. Here's the thing. Everybody deserves love. And I'll tell you this. I do believe, and I'm not taking credit for it because I'm not the one who said it, but I do believe that at our core, all of us are motivated, all of our our conduct ends up being motivated by either love or fear. Now, to be clear, there are some things that we should be afraid of and it should motivate us. I'm deathly afraid of the ecological collapse. I am absolutely horrified uh, by the fascists that, that are emerging. And I'm motivated by my love of people and the planet. I am motivated by, and I do have a genuine undying love for ordinary folk. I, I trust people. Right. Uh, and I'm happy about that. Right. Uh, one ugly <laughs> thought that's, that, I don't know. I don't you know. can't help yourself. I can't. Help. You can't help yourself. Go ahead. In 2003, I stayed at a Four Seasons hotel. I was traveling with a boss and he put me up at the force. I would have rather taken the money, but I think he had some kind of, but I, I was at the Four Seasons Hotel for four nights in Chicago. And I called my children and I on the second night and I said, this was 20 years ago, this is not love. It's something better than love. Listen, this is better than any love you can give me. I just want you to know I would take this in a second. I, I, I had a, I, I had a, a, a dear friend when I was practicing law uh, who got married. And so I've also stayed at a Four Seasons Hotel. And let me tell you, it's really nice. It's really nice. And, and they convince you 
that they're happy to see you. And, well, they do. And, and, they do. And, and that you can do no wrong. And I'm thinking this is and they empty your trash and they make your bed and they don't whine or complain. You come back. They don't say, why didn't you call? Where have you been? I was worried about you. My mother's sister's uncle is sick. <laughs> well, listen, <laughs> let me tell you how my day was. It's interesting because actually the uh, Four Seasons as a, a hotel chain right. is actually studied because one of the things that they do is like, remember that the, uh, each Four Seasons is very unique. So it's it's unique architecture at every single location. Uh, they, they create a different unique atmosphere at every single place. Uh, but what they are absolutely known for is a, a an incomparable level of excellence of service, right? Like th- what you're describing uh, is is part of the entire ethos. And, you know, it's funny because I remember talking to a, a lefty friend of mine about the Four Seasons, and I said, it was so good. It was so amazing. And I felt really guilty about it. And this was my friend, Jerome. Uh, and Jerome said, you know, David, don't you think that working class people deserve a taste of that too? And it really made me, it, it shifted my gears. It's like, oh, you know what? That's right. Actually, like, I don't think anybody should live like in opulence 24 seven with people waiting on them hand and foot every moment of the day. But you know what? Everybody should get a taste of that. Everybody should get a little bit like there's enough to go around, David. That's the thing that gets me right. Like we don't have to actually uh, allow some kind of cannibalistic like, you know, Lord of the Flies economy where one person gets everything. Like we could literally share this, right? And and we could have a, a, a an economic system where we're incentivizing love and compassion and kindness. We ensure that everybody has a base level, and we can even say, oh, and you know, look, here are ways in which there are these you know wonderful little treats, right? That, and there's enough of them that they that they actually get get shared as well. So why uh, why yeah. don't we? What 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 is it? What, what, I, I always I go for walks and I think there are all these skyscrapers that are empty here. I understand that homeless people need more than just some homeless people need more than just a place to live. They need food. They need some of them need and they need medical and psychiatric help and all that kind of stuff. But why couldn't you just take one skyscraper and just fill it with beds and food and because David, this is the problem because you're actually approaching the 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 the, the, the crisis of houselessness as if it's a problem uh, that we can just solve. Because remember, right now in the United States of America, in the state of New York, in every city, in every town, in every village, here is a true statement. There are more empty housing units than there are houseless people, period, full stop. That's true nationally. It's true in every state of the union aggregate, right? It's true in every city. Why is it happening? Because capitalism. The same thing is true uh, about healthcare. Housing is not broken. It's working exactly as it's designed to work right. because it treats housing as a commodity to be bought and paid for as a, at a profit. 
The healthcare system is not broken. It's working exactly as it's designed to, which is to treat access to healthcare as a commodity to be bought and paid for at a profit. I can go down the list. This is why, hello, Dr. Fraud, you came in at just the right spot to, to hear me like, you know, shaking my fist at the universe uh, because capitalism treats everything as a commodity to be bought and paid for at a profit. And what I believe and what every socialist I know believes is that human needs should be human rights fulfilled as part of the social contract. It's just that simple. And so things like housing and healthcare and education and art and culture, if these things were treated like a human right rather than a commodity to be bought and paid for to profit, then we would simply create policies, governmental policies, to ensure that human needs were met. And like that's why a, a truly post-capitalist economy literally it could be, and I wanna say this, it literally could be paradise because with the technology, with the, with the knowledge base, with what we know how to do, we literally could all be living in paradise. Because, and, and everybody, and get this, everybody would be allowed to work, not forced to work. Because if you actually created systems to allow people to, to engage in meaningful productive activity uh, and, and, and characterized it as the gift that you're offering to your community for which you will be respected and acknowledged, then people would flock to it because everybody wants to work. What people don't want is a job where their labor is commodified and the surplus value of their labor is extracted to benefit somebody else. Oh, and, and by the way, you're bossed about, uh, ridiculed, mocked uh, uh, by the, by the owning class and the ruling class. Like, when you ask the question, why don't we just fill up the skyscrapers that are not many of which are empty and allow houseless people to live there because capitalism, because capital, but other countries don't do to its citizens what we do. Other capitalists. Well, that's because and this is the thing, David, like I, it's, it's a good question. Remember that there are different types of capitalism, right? Uh, just like there are different types of socialism. Uh, you know, like one could argue that the authoritarian uh, left is a type of socialism, right? Uh, just as there is a social democracy and a post-capitalist, but then there is also laissez-faire capitalism. So social democracies can still be capitalist, but they are much more humane versions of capitalism. Right. And regulated versions of capitalism. Highly regulated. That's why they're more humane. Not Look, it's not that G Americans are genetically defective and Scandinavian people are just genetically superior to us. They've, they are capitalist countries that have actually highly regulated. They, they protect labor. They protect the environment. And they don't just protect it, but they empower it. Do you know in most of the Scandinavian countries, by the way, it is a requirement uh, that uh, labor actually have seats on the board of directors, right? So we could go through the kind of policies that could be enacted right now that would that would make capitalism eminently more humane. But the reason that they did it is because they have powerful socialist and communist movements that forced it because capitalists don't get regulated unless they have to. Oh, that's right. Like, make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. The, 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 the capitalist ca class is a predatory class. Yes. Like they've never, ever done anything for other people because they care about other people. Mm -hmm. Like that, which is why I am 
like I'm a revolutionary. I'm a peaceful revolutionary, but I am a militant peaceful revolutionary. I understand power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has, and it never will. Frederick Douglass said that famously. Uh, and the second part of that phrase is, you show me the exact amount of injustice that any people are willing to tolerate, and I will show you the exact amount of injustice that will be visited upon them. And that's part of the thing that gets me is so many uh, liberals and progressives have allowed the Democratic Party neoliberal operatives and leadership to chain their ideals, to, to contract their demands. And I think in this moment of historic conjuncture, now is the time to make bigger and bolder demands because we need it. That's right. And demand for a different party that is outside the corporate co- culture and the commodity culture. There's no doubt about it. And uh, Dr. Fraud, I was just sharing with David Feldman uh, that I'm in Texas now visiting my mama. And I told her that uh, I would be 30 minutes uh, on this program and then I'd go have dinner with her uh, because it's seven o'clock here central uh, time. So much love to you both. uh, But I'm going to go visit my mama. Enjoy your mom, and then you, she's lucky. You look great. Oh, you, look, like you, you look great. You look like you're a cult leader telling us to put on our Nikes and <laughs> go. Go. We're all going to go visit the Comet Cahotec. <laughs> on the way out, I'll let you know. Uh, you know, one comic to another. My brother has been calling me Papa Smurf because of my cobalt blue. Uh, you look great. I love it. I love it. I would. I would follow you. To the ends of the Follow earth. Follow me to socialism. Follow me to socialism. How do people contact you, David Cobb? Yes, I hit me up on Facebook, David Keith Cobb on Facebook. Yeah, I'm David uh, K Cobb on Twitter, and I do want to say thank you to the couple of folks who did reach out to me uh, because they specifically named the David Feldman Show. I promise you, I, I will get back to you. So, as Art Linkletter famously said, keep those cards and letters coming. Great. Thank you, David Cobb. Let us now go to New York City. I think you're downtown. Dr. Harriet Fraud is standing by. She is the host of It's Not Just in Your Head, Capitalism Hits Home. She has a new show on Pacifica Radio, WBAI here in New York, Wednesdays at 2.30. And she is a psychotherapist who filters all our problems through the prism of capitalism Welcome. What is the name of your show on WBAI? It's called Interpersonal Update. And Wednesday the 23rd, it's usurped by another program. Otherwise, and I'll be away for a couple of weeks. But starting March 16th, it will be at 2.30 on Wednesdays. And it's called Interpersonal Update. So I have a new... I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, obviously. And if you're in our chat room and you want to talk to Dr. Harriet Fraud, raise your your hands. I always get complaints that I never let people talk to you. And then when I say, raise your hand, they just want to listen to you. So you can't win. So Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America, wrote in honor of the anniversary of FDR's Bill of Rights, Economic Bill of Rights, a 21st Century Bill of Rights. If you can indulge me, let me just read to you because I have this scrolling on the screen in on our YouTube channel and for Zoom. It's a 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. It would establish that all Americans are entitled to one, 
the right to a job that pays a livable wage. Two, the right to quality health care. Three, the right to a complete education. Four, the right to affordable housing. Five, the right to a clean environment. Six, the right to a secure retirement. And that's an economic bill of rights. Everything else is noise. If you're not talking about these six things, then it's gossip, it's weather, it's sports, which, you know, that's fine. But every all the sturm and drang that goes on with political confrontation and arguments, if you're not talking about these six points, you're not news, you're not information, you're not political, you're not policy, you're nothing. You're nothing if you're not talking about these six things. Is that a fair statement? Total agreement. And I would also say that entitled to healthy food, right. clean, healthy food, right, and clean water, although that comes with the environment, and clean air, which comes with the environment. You, you, you look at the news, you listen to conversations. It's a given that these economic bill of rights are it's it's why do we even have to talk about this everybody has this why are we why are we talking about this we should be talking about you know whatever. we should be talking about how to get this if we don't yes. have it yeah. and everything else is noise right. except that that's like so much else is repressed and our entertain our news is often distraction and entertainment and certain things even where it's trying not to be Certain things are always cleaned out of the news, even on public radio uh, and WNYC and so on. A class perspective is excised from the conversation. Right. It has been since the 50s. Let's talk about racial division in the United States, because this is what I hear all the time. Joe Rogan will... Here, you know, somebody would put a clip together of Joe Rogan saying the N word 32 times and then referring to Harlem as Planet of the Apes. And then the next thing is we need to, we finally need to have a conversation about the N word. As to, you know, we, 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 let's have a teaching moment. That's what Joe Rogan said. We need a teaching moment. This, hopefully, my use of the N word will be a teaching moment. What, 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 we don't need to be taught about the N word, do we? No, we don't. Yeah. We all know what it is. So, why do we get forced into this, uh, this racial division in the United States? What, what's going well, on here? It's very, very deliberate. One of the things that has blown my mind recently is researching who we were as Americans from the very beginning. Because all I heard in public school nine and public school 81 is those same pilgrims over and over again. They were a tiny minority between a half and two thirds of the people who came here, came here as indentured servants. Shipping companies brought them over here and then they had then sold them at markets. And insured them. And they were insured. 
well, they, a lot of them died because just like the slaves, they got crappy nutrition, yeah. crappy water. If they were sick, they were thrown overboard. And then they were sold when they got there. Now, they weren't slaves because they weren't sold as persons. Their labor power was sold for the periods of between four and 10 years. And children were taken off the street in England, shipped here. They had 330 little petty offenses for which you went to jail or you could ship out and they could populate the colonies. And that was in England in the 1600s and 1700s and the 1800s, the Irish and the Germans. These were white people. Their labor was sold. If they ran away, they could be returned. Our constitution has a few lines that guarantee the master's return of their bonds people. And then they had to serve longer and were punished. They had the right to appeal their harsh treatment, but they weren't allowed to serve on juries. So you can imagine how well that went. In any case, um, that was most of our ancestors. They were hardly plantation owners. And then most of the others came over with the great immigration of immigrants who were told that our streets were paved with gold and then came to be exploited in the factories. At any rate, one of the things that was amazing for me is to learn about Bacon's Rebellion and the 1800 other rebellions that happened at the time. 18, um, Bacon's Rebellion happened between 16... 66 and 1667. And that was an amazing thing. Some aristocrats were who were pissed that they got the poor Indian lands instead of the better Indian lands that were given to the richer aristocrats signed up and joined with the bonds people, the men and women who were semi-chattel and the freed black people and the slaves, and together they fought and almost made a revolution. After which the British government enforced, created and enforced special privileges for you if you're white to prevent that unity from ever happening again. And um, in his latest book, it's a 2022 book, Adolf Reed, the famous black Marxist it's in his last chapter on a book called the South. He talks about how even the Jim Crow laws were much more designed to divide dispossessed whites and blacks from one another than they were out of any just racist idea. The racism was chained to the division of the working class to prevent them from rising up together against capitalism. And that is a deliberate racism. And I hadn't realized that. Naturally, I never learned that in history class, even though Howard Zinn discusses it a little bit. He discusses Bacon's rebellion. But it is very hard to find out about what was happening to people who were bondsmen and bondswomen. Right. A lot of the women came here because they had to serve as wives for all that time, bear children, do everything else, and all the right. sex work, too. So you... Um, that was our, these are our ancestors, hardly Mayflower or Puritan idealists, you know, right. that's right. who we were. That's who we are. And we were prevented from rising up and claiming this nation for ourselves by the deliberate introduction of racism. 
which has flourished and which a lot of people have taken seriously. And it's been challenged. The Communist Party was big on challenging that. And in the 30s, the Communist Party organized white and black tenant farmers together to take over their farms. Those were very powerful unions that were not divided racially. So that I think we have to just understand, stop the racial dividedness. We need class consciousness here of all people. And we need to realize it, that racism is a hoax and so is sexism and they have to change. There's money in segregation that yes, there is. if you cannot rent to a black person in a white neighborhood, that creates an artificial scarcity that causes property values to go up. Not because you can't rent to black people, but if you have fewer, white people have fewer choices. So they and have so to rent. People, I'm sorry? Course. And so do black people. And black course. people, there, there are a whole, uh, if you look at Florida, the the hotel business thrived because of Jim Crow, because there was there were Gee, black, black labor. There, there yeah. was and there was black hotels. You had black hotels, right. and that was a market that was artificially created and sustained because of segregation. So, the the idea behind race, it's in the end, it's about class struggle and and profits. That's why race exactly. was. That's why race was invented. That's right, and racism was deliberately invented. I that blew my mind finding that out. But it's deliberately in, and it's ridiculous. I know. I had a client who told me a story that showed me how foolish it was. She was blonde and blue eyed, and when she was little, when she was seven, her father was ill, and they thought he would do better in the warmer climate of the South. So they moved to the South. And she saw a water fountain that said colored fountain. She wanted to see the colors. Right. So she turned it on and a white woman came over and slapped her face. Right. I remember I remember as a kid, we used to drive to Florida in the 60s. And this was after the Civil Rights Acts. But there were still colored water fountains. You could see it with the paint. They they tried or they attempted to pretend to paint over. I still remember seeing colored uh, water fountains. And that sustained the hold of the wealthy people as poor people were divided from one another. Right. And white people could get a little bone for being white while right. they were oppressed and take it out on black people pretty much un, um, unaccounted for. Right. The the worst thing you can do, Professor Adnan Hussein has talked about this. The worst thing you can do if you're Malcolm X or Dr. King is reach out to white people. Then you That's are the right. most dangerous. When when Dr. King started talking about uh, poor, yeah. poor white people, he had to go. He, had to he go. was killed just like Malcolm X after he did it. He yeah. was killed. Yeah, you can always find some low life who you can pay to kill people. Yeah, and that's what happened. Yeah, or if you if you get enough guns in enough people's hands, it may not be in Memphis. It may not right. be 
on the you know upper west side of manhattan but one day one yes, of, somebody's right. going to get lucky that's right and, and, and i think they will be encouraged if people speak out if great leaders like malcolm x and martin luther king with enormous following start speaking about the importance of black and white together and one of the things adolf reed points out well i must say to be black, to be born in 1947, and to be called Adolf, I just wonder what his parents were thinking. But that's another topic. In any case... Um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, well, whoa, wait a minute, why? Adolf. But in any case... Well, you, you know, know what it is? It's kind of, I, I, I suspect uh, you don't own that name. Maybe. But I know that the names Adolf and Benito were not popular at the time. But I think his parents were probably saying, you're going to no. take that name and make it good. I'd like yes, to think yes. that. He has. Or they were inveterate anti-Semites. <laughs> I want yeah, to know. <laughs> I don't think so. His father was progressive I know, I know. in a black college. But I think... That, that's that, putting a burden on your child to say... I'm going to give you the worst name imaginable, Absolutely. and you're going to you're going to clean that name. Yeah, it is a burden. Yeah. But in any case, he shows how segregation helped the ruling class, and I think the more people who realize that, and the more people who realize we all came here, or most of us, as chattel of some form or another, right. and you know how many plantation owners could there be? Not too many. Right. And the rest are wage slaves or were slaves or wage slaves. And there was a difference. If you are property, it's worse than if your labor is owned and bought and you're packed into boats and sold when you get here. No fun, but not the same. Nobody's equating them. However, the commonality exists. And then after World War II, that segregation was enforced to sort of break the New Deal. Levittown in Levittown you weren't you had to be white. These are for veterans mortgages. You had to be white, even though black people were drafted too. You had to have no black friends over. You couldn't have more than two children. Your wife couldn't work. And you had to buy all your appliances through GE. You know, whoa, whoa. Later they built Roosevelt, the black segregated. Levittown equivalent, but it was so deliberate. And I think if people understood that, both black and white, we'd see we've been hoodwinked and we need each other. And that's why it's so important that this was a deliberate tactic of the ruling elites. Yeah. I want to talk about your work as a hypnotherapist, a psychotherapist. I should mention that one of the great myths about integration and sending your kids to uh, schools with people of color is that uh, you will, your kid will end up a drug addict. They've done study after study that shows you're more likely to find kids turning to drugs and alcohol in predominantly white upper class public schools than inner city schools. You're more likely to find drug addiction and alcoholism in private schools, like where 
the rapist, what's his name? The Supreme Court guy, Kavanaugh. Oh, Clarence Thomas, too. Uh, uh, well, he, was, uh, no, he was the porn addict. He was the porn Sorry. addict. But the rapist, where, the rapist Kavanaugh, those private schools have higher incidence of drug addiction and alcoholism than inner city schools. So all these parents who spend $60,000 not to send their kids to a school with a person of color, you're, you're, you're going to need another $60,000 to send your kid into rehab. Uh, we have. Well, you know, when I had clients in a very wealthy suburb of New Haven when I practiced in New Haven called Cheshire. And one of the proud things of those kids is we can afford drugs our teachers can't afford. Right, right. And it, it so, was rampant. Uh, one of the infuriating things about neoliberal Hollywood celebrities is we want to remove the stigma of uh, mental illness. People should be open. So, you know, Oprah interviews Prince Harry and who I like, you know, and we, yeah, you need to be better. open about your mental, but they don't tell you where to go. And no, because there's nowhere to go. There's the nowhere mental to go. Health, mental health as a commodity is utterly corrupt. Their whole, their the diagnostic statistical manual was written with the cooperation of the pharmaceutical companies to plug each of these definitions of mental illness into a psychotropic drug. And the diagnostic, there's no biological basis for those diagnoses. They're just agreement on the part of some psychiatrists. It's terrible and it's corrupt. And yet it's the vehicle for diagnosing, getting insurance coverage and getting hospital coverage. So it all works together with the capitalist hospitals, the capitalist medical care, the capitalist pharmaceuticals companies, and the capitalist insurance companies working together as a system to give the most expensive healthcare system in the world and 17th in terms of quality, yeah. even though we are the richest country. There's a story in uh, the Washington Post, I think yesterday, about phantom ghost mental health networks, that there are a lot of insurance providers who say, oh, there are 73 mental health providers on a list that yeah. you can call, and none of them take that insurance, that, they, mm -hmm. that these insurance companies insist that they're providing mental health doctors, and yeah. they give names, and none of those doctors will accept that insurance payment there the insurance the insurer it's they're called uh, ghost networks ghost providers so you have to go out of pocket to get a a shrink but everybody's so busy about saying we have to remove the stigma of mental illness no nobody can afford nobody can find a shrink who's in network if you're lucky enough to have health insurance and this isn't discussed. It's like a joke. If, if you're doing stand-up and you say something like, good luck finding a shrink who's in network. And ah, in New York, everybody laughs, but nobody does anything about it, which is why comedy really is overrated. It, you know, and you it, know, those people who are looking and who have insurance, they have created a two-tier system. There are some therapists that take insurance now, Many of them are just new therapists, so they have no experience and they need clients. 
Others are people who are bad. So they need insured clients. So that more and more, the most experienced therapists at the top don't take insurance. You know, that I'm in an advanced hypnotherapy group of all people who've been practicing for like 10, 20, 30, 40 years. None of them take private insurance. What I do is I will give somebody a letter to submit as an out-of-plan provider. And one of the reasons I don't take insurance is the insurance companies hound you to try to get you to medicate people. You have to have an excuse why you don't medicate. You have to talk about their private lives, which is a violation of them. Better to have a sliding scale and take people. But it's a, on the surface, they provide mental health care, but they don't. Right. That's the bottom line. In a commodified healthcare system, you're screwed. Drug addiction. All I hear is about, you know, seek help for, you know, uh, suicide prevention. If you right. or anybody you know is call this number, and you call that number, and <laughs> there's no play. They don't, I don't mean to be discouraging to people who are addicted to drugs. Yeah. Uh, but what do you do if you only have, you know, if you can't afford to go out of pocket to treat your child for drug addiction? Are there basic, somebody somebody was telling me what he was going through with his kid and just spelling out his child's addictions and what it's cost him over the years. It's all private equity uh, Mitt Romney, Bain Capital, it's all private equity, these these uh, drug rehab centers. And, you know, it's 20 grand for a month, 40 grand, private beds. Well, once it was on affordable health care, all the, also all these incompetents came in and set up rehabs with no qualifications so that your kid may really be in a terrible place. You have to look very hard to find a kind place that's affordable. Very, very hard. Are there, are there, I do know that AA is, is for, for alcohol is better than any private. Uh, AA, NA for narcotics, SA for sex abuse. And, um, and it's free. AA is free. AA, and so is ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics. It's ACA, DF. So it's adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, which is just about everybody. And it's less God-oriented than AA. So a lot of people prefer it. But would you say that, again, this is dangerous territory. If you are an alcoholic, they will steer you towards a for-profit rehab center to treat your alcoholism and you will have relapse after relapse after relapse because you don't cure addiction by going to a spa. You cure addiction by going to AA meetings, getting a sponsor, and meeting people from all socioeconomic points on the spectrum and helping them, being their sponsor. You need to sponsor somebody and take care of somebody else. You need to buddy up with somebody. Isn't it true that that's the only way to, 
Uh, no, sometimes other things work. However, ACADF and AA and all the 12-step programs do what rehabs don't do, which is they give you an alternative family, but one that works for you. And if you're lucky enough to get a really honest, good sponsor, there's someone you can turn to where you usually can't in most families. So what they do is they replace the inadequate family and family system with a system of caring, a system of listening, a system of truth telling, and a system of non-judgmental listening. That's really important, the non-judgmental part of it. And it, it, and it, it, you know, it, it, what's so infuriating is that AA, I know you, you, you seem to have a problem with AA because of its surrender no, to a higher- No, I don't have a problem, but I do think that it helped. I, in my experience, some people are turned off by the God-centeredness of it. Well, so surrendering to a higher power. power, surrendering to a higher power. That's right, surrender to a higher power, but there's still a lot of God inflection in AA, which there isn't in ACA, for example. Okay. ACADF, but but hey, they, they, it, drives, it drives Bain Capital crazy that there's something called AA, which is free, which is free, and it cures alcoholism. And, and so if you were to ask Mitt Romney, what do you do if your your kid is an alcoholic? He would say, oh, there, you, why would you go to AA? We have doctors, we have psychiatrists and psychologists, and we, they would they would poo-poo the, the thing that works and send you to something that doesn't work. It has worked better, and the reason it works is part of the reason that people turn to substances to mute their experience is because they're disconnected and because they haven't felt any kind of sustaining connection in their families of origin. And it provides a support system and a non-judgmental support system. Right. And it's organized, ironically enough, though they hardly claim it this way, according to communist principles, from each according to his ability to each according to his or her needs, so that there is no money exchanged. It's free. And people, once they are in it for a while and they become experienced with it, they mentor others. The only thing that costs money is if you want to buy literature. And that is really a communist organization. No money is allowed. And nobody has a hierarchical position over other people. It's very democratic that way. You cannot shake, I don't believe, you can shake an addiction until you learn to give yourself to somebody else, to, 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 to help somebody else and get out of yourself and paying 20 grand to, to go to a spa for a month, staying in a private room, and then you know, having meetings in between uh, many petties is not, your no, kid is gonna- No, and they don't give proper therapy, because one of the things that, the 12-step programs do. And of course, one has to shop around to find a group one's comfortable with. There are a lot of groups, but there are so many of them you can find it. And in every little dinky town across this country, there's AA, even if there's nothing else. And that's important because they're everywhere. And that there's non-judgmental acceptance of everyone who's sincerely trying to get better. And there is no hierarchy 
That's very important. And you are accepted. And if you come into a meeting and you're drunk, you can just sit in the back and and they hope something gets through and you get a free cup of coffee, you know? And after a while, the message can get through. They have better success in 12-step than they do in any other rehab program. Much better success. It's not 100% because also you have to come to the meetings and you have to be honest and you have to admit that you have a problem. Right. Dr. Dr. Harriet Fraud is a hypnotherapist. She filters all our problems through the prism of this economic system we're forced to live under. How do people contact you if they need help? If they want to look at my website, H-A-R-R-I-E-1-T-F-R-A-A-D.com. If they want to reach me, H-F-R-A-A-D at gmail.com. And I don't, you know, I don't filter all the problems through the lens of capitalism, but I don't, I don't think it's just in your head either. Right. It's in the society too. Yeah. I, you've been a tremendous help to me and my listeners. I can't tell you the number of times I go, this isn't me. This is not me. This is this miasma of greed I'm surrounded. I'm engulfed by. It is engulfing. It is engulfing and destructive. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you. Thank you. So much. We'll see you next week. I hope to see you next next week. week. Great. Bye-bye. Coming up, Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. I'm thinking we do community billboard, if it's okay with you, after Professor Adnan Hussein. Does that? Uh, yep, that works for me. That works for me too. Okay, we will be back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Join us. I'm traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. Got a saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. 
sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high-speed parallax motor because I'm into robotics. And my little red Speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket in case I get a chill. I'm traveling late. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number. I want to change my gender, I'm traveling light. And my expensive wrinkle cream My Emmy statue For my self-esteem I'm traveling light I got my podcast mixer And a fancy microphone My exercise bike So I have a place to hang my pants My very valuable Hummel collection A menorah made of fish heads A Christmas tree I like to keep my options open Don't you know A shoe shine kit A skill saw A crossword book a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. That is the music of Professor Mike Steinal. He's a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019. We'll talk about him later on. He's going to be with us in about, I don't know, 90 minutes. Go pick up his album, Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckerd. Let's now go to Canada, Kingston, Ontario, where Professor Adnan Hussein is standing by. He is the chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, host of the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History with our very own, well, not, he's not our very own, uh, Henry Huckamacki. Let's claim him, why not? We'll claim him. We own him. <laughs> so welcome, sir. I want to ask you who's on the Mudgeless podcast this week and the Guerrilla History. But first... Trudeau. We don't like Trudeau, the prime minister, but I have to admit the thought of declaring an emergency, going in and arresting 
the the truckers to me satisfied a a liberal left-wing authoritarian itch that i have like we have the muscle we're going to use it either we use it or they're going to use it am i wrong for thinking that way that we have the muscle right now it's time to start arresting these right-wing fanatics and letting them know that the government is in charge you're not well yeah i mean i think uh it went on for a really long time it was incredibly disruptive um i think for me the tragedy is that it accomplished absolutely nothing for anyone other than probably uh launching some careers uh some politicians maybe a leadership uh candidacy by uh pierre polivier uh he might you know with his trenchant support he's he's a kind of ottawa area mp a conservative Conservative who has made a big point of um, uh, supporting the convoy, uh, he might launch himself. And clearly we're seeing, you know, political consequences, but we're not seeing any real changes. None of the concerns of the truckers, um, you know, uh, either the specific mandate issues or wider concerns that they have about working conditions will be addressed were even really on the agenda and as this became a kind of political fight um to try and bring down the trudeau government um and so you know it went on so long and was so disruptive uh, eventually it had to had to um you know the law had to be enforced and that's essentially what they did but i really wonder it's an interesting debate about whether the emergencies act um the first use of it since it was passed in 1988 to replace an earlier far more kind of thoroughgoing draconian uh, you know set of powers under something called the war measures act um it was meant to replace that um, you know, I'm so I'm still, you know, not so sh not completely sure that it was necessary. But I do think that um, people's patience was at an end. And so it might be seen as a pretty popular move for Trudeau. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I mean, um, you know, he may have enhanced his authority by finally using it, but um, and, and ending um, the siege in, in, in Ottawa. Uh, but I think there are a lot of people like yourself who are, you know, quite uh, sort of happy to see these right wing people finally be pushed out of the city. Right. The fact is, is that they, you know, I think, you know, Trudeau may have felt that by invoking it on last Tuesday, that that would be perhaps enough. Um, but in fact, actually, um, once they started making arrests and actually bringing tow trucks to come in and pull these big rigs out, things moved pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it was a couple of days and pretty much they've been dispersed. Rodrigo, who does a summation at the end of every episode. Uh, he's down in Mexico. He said something really interesting at office hours that changed my mind, because at first, not knowing enough about this, I said, this should serve as a template for union activism. These are truckers, they're teamsters. Let's make them our allies. Let's you know, I don't agree with them on the pandemic, but let's reach across the aisle and bring them into a movement that will shut down the roads and bring Wall Street to its knees until they pay us what we deserve. 
And Rodrigo disabused me of that Friday night at office hours very articulately. He, he said, no, these are bad people being funded by really bad people who have hijacked whatever labor movement you think is out there and are turning it into a fascist right wing uh, threat. Much, you know, the same way the CIA got the, the truckers to shut down Allende's government. The Teamsters shut down Allende. They, so, uh, but it's been compared to Zuccotti Park here in in uh, in New York with Occupy ten years ago, and I don't know if I'm pronounced. I didn't pronounce Zuccotti Zuccotti Park properly. I'm certainly going to ruin. Ge is it Gezi Park in Insta in Istanbul? What was yeah, Gezi Park in Istanbul? Istanbul. What was what was that yeah, park Gezi, in Turkey? <laughs> yeah, it was it was Gezi Park, and it was in this um, district of Istanbul, uh, which isn't the capital city, but it is the largest city in Turkey. Um, you know, 15, 20 million population in the greater, you know, Istanbul region. And it was one of the very few little green patches in one of these major center uh, city districts uh, that um, was approved by the government under Erdogan to um, be turned into a mall or converted to some uh, commercial purpose. And so a number of young people, neighborhood residents, residents um, occupied the park, um, you know, for environmental reasons, to stop, you know, commercialization, to have some green space in the city, um, to have, a, you know, um, you know, a park and um, refused to move. And it spawned something of a kind of serious movement that it was similar to Occupy. It was also similar in some ways. Some people um, connected it with what we saw in Egypt and Tunisia with the start of the Arab Spring were these kinds of popular movements by people against um, government abuse, uh, overreach, and also I would say privatizing of public spaces and of public industries, like a real response to the privatization of what should be in the common, you know, common good for the common good. So fascism, if uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. There's some white noise that only comes on this Zoom call that I have with you. I'm not sure exactly what's happening, but it goes away when I mute or maybe also oh. when you're you're muted. So, OK, let me see. Fascism. So if I were president, if I were Joe Biden, I would say to the American people, we have a problem in this country. We have white nationalists who are terrorists they are killing more americans with their guns than any foreign terrorist group out there they want to secede they want to become sovereign nations we are this is the rule of law and we're going to enforce it we're going to come down hard on the oath keepers the the uh the uh the proud boys these militia, we're, we're going to crack down and we may even arrest uh, the wrong people. Sometimes that happens when you're trying to save the country. We'll try not to violate people's civil liberties. 
The other thing we're going to do is uh, we're going to uh, strengthen unions. We're going to raise the minimum wage. We're going to give you Medicare for all free tuition at all public universities, whether you like it or not. Threat mm -hmm. of fascism, gone. Cannot fight fascism with just muscle. You have to, you fight it with both muscle and carrots, right? Right. Well, that's the missing component, I think, uh, that we've seen in the Democrats' response, uh, typically. I mean, I'm talking about the mainstream establishment Democrats, the leaders of the party, uh, the current administration. Uh, there's been some work on that, but, you know, far less than was, you know, uh, required and predictably far. You know, you know, I predicted in right after the election that you would have 100 days and you had to make massive progress. Otherwise, we would see, you know, uh, a return to uh, power and Congress of the, you know, of the Republicans, and we'd have a failed Biden presidency. And, you know, that's the problem is that it's been insufficiently, you know, the carrot has been has been missing. And this is what we see also with the liberal government here, uh, you know, in Canada is that uh, while it did more initially in the beginning of the pandemic, now, um, you know, even as it's trying to promote business um, and economic recovery and all of this, it hasn't really done enough for people and they're still you know maintaining you know various aspects of the mandates um which i think they really need to do i mean on some level because the pandemic isn't over but they've tested and tried everybody's patience without offering what would be the bargain in a kind of compact you know that um you know, you make some sacrifice that you don't get to live exactly the way you would like to um, under normal circumstances when we don't have this this health scare, or this health problem. Um, but as you know, we will do what we can to make sure that your life is comfortable, your kids can be educated, you still have a job and that you're uh, able to stay at home. I mean, I think that's the the hypocrisy of the way in which some people are so comfortable with the mandates continuing because they can work from home. You know, I'm one of those. I'm working on Zoom and, you know, life in some ways is difficult, but in some ways, eh, you know, it goes on. And in some ways, it's even been better because look, right. now I've got the David Feldman show and I've met all these interesting people. Uh, but that's not the case for everybody who right. are struggling to put food on the table and have to work, um, you know, on the front lines and can't, you know, be at home at Zoom. And I think Trudeau made a big mistake in not addressing that reality right away and also in not um, trying to turn, um, you know, I mean, Rodrigo might be right. And in fact, actually, I think he is absolutely right that the intentions of the leaders of this movement and what it attracted um, was something that was just instrumentally capitalizing on the frustration, but actually had a very serious political purpose and is unleashing the real extremism that is actually behind uh, this movement. And we've seen it, you know, we've seen who these, this leadership is, how racist, how homophobic, how anti-immigrant they are. They found an issue that actually could resonate a little bit more beyond its typical base but really what's driving it are these extreme far-right sorts of ideas. Um, and the only way to combat that, of course, is by taking it seriously from the start, addressing certain concerns that you could to, to shape the political debate 
in, act, in an actual productive direction and also deploy the police, you know, from the start to enforce ordinances and make sure that the city isn't, you know, completely shut down and occupied. And it's the unwillingness to do anything in the intervening period that I think really forced his hand and has given this movement a real taste of, you know, its kind of success. Not that it actually achieved any, um, you know, what it achieved is culturally polarizing the debate and of providing some people with uh, the kind of January 6th experience of, you know, um, you know, creating a kind of culture of resistance, of testing the boundaries for when there are more serious actions proposed by some of these far-right organized groups, uh, they'll be more prepared for it. And They've also, with this Emergencies Act, I also created the conditions where, you know, the Emergencies Act is not uh, like martial law. It's not, I mean, it's bad. I don't think really you should have had to resort to it. It should have been possible to actually enforce the law um, and use available resources, the police and so on um, with laws that exist. Um, but what they've done is they've actually been able to create now uh, something that they will remember for years here and continue to organize around by actually forcing Forcing Trudeau uh, into the position of being the first to actually invoke the Emergencies Act. And, you know, I think, again, just like the Democrats seem not to get it and aren't politically savvy. This is one of my biggest complaints with them. Of course, ideologically, they're not as committed to, you know, these universal policies as I wish they were. But I also am concerned that they actually don't seem to be good at politics and really recognizing the mood. So, you know, this is you know, something happened in Ottawa. Ottawa is the capital of Canada, but it is also a city in the province of Ontario. Unlike Washington, D.C., that has its own authority. It's not part of a state. Um, it's this, you know, special district that, you know, it's in the province of Ontario. Doug Ford, the premier, i.e. the kind of governor of the province, had already declared emergencies before a week or so before. And he's a uh, conservative, uh, isn't he? Yeah, and he's a conservative. And here is the problem is if you are an intelligent politician, it seems to me what you do is you say this is a provincial matter. We seriously urge Doug Ford to deploy the Ontario Provincial Police to enforce the laws and cooperate, provide assistance to the Ottawa police under the direction of the mayor and try and, you know, kind of resolve this and, and open up the city again. Apparently what happened, and this wasn't something that Trudeau really made a big deal of, he should have, is that Doug Ford really didn't want to do that. He's a conservative. I think the conservatives, you know, both provincially and nationally are split on this issue. He didn't want to make the courageous decision of bucking, you know, the rising right within his own party that is against, you know, the mask mandates and the other public health mandates and so on. He didn't want to make the courageous decision of enforcing the law. So he asked the federal government to use the Emergencies Act to invite uh, you know, the or, or to gather uh, police forces and the needed extra, you know, additional officers from Quebec, which is a different province. They could do that under the Emergencies Act. But Doug Ford could have done it, too, if he had communicated with Quebec ministers and said, bring us police. We, they could have done it. So why didn't Trudeau make a big deal publicly before he was pushed to do the Emergencies Act saying, why isn't Doug Ford handling this? He needs to do this. 
if he wants to resolve this. Then a week later, if he's pushed to do it, he can say, you know, Doug Ford has asked me to step in because he's not you know, willing to do the job. And he can look strong and he can look like he has addressed it in the proper procedures, and he could have done harm against a conservative premier right, in, in right. Ontario. It's like, you know, why do you let, and now, actually, very interestingly, that you can only keep this Emergencies Act for a week before it has to come up for a vote to extend it for the full 30 days that is allowable. They just had the vote right before I came on. They, you know, they started the vote taking at 8 p.m. I was watching the countdown, and two minutes before 8.30, they announced that it had passed with the participation of the NDP, but um, the conservatives voted against it. Um, and uh, immediately upon its passage, um, they put forward a motion to rescind it because you're allowed to if you can get 20. And so they're going to make political hay out of it. And what concerns me is that the NDP has really, I think, played this We'll see. I mean, I, I, I can't predict, but I was very disappointed to see them supporting it without conditions. What is like, the NDP? The NDP, the New Democratic Party, is basically like the left party. If that's there was Singh. a progressive. Yeah, that's Jagmeet Singh. It's uh, started off as a worker party in, you know, Manitoba, Alberta. Um, uh, in in the west in the prairies as uh, it used to be called social credit um it was like the populist farmers party in kansas and, and places like that it grew up in, in in that in that sort of period in that context and it's kind of the left party uh left of the liberals um and you know they've supported the liberals in continuing um and extending it for uh the rest you know for another 21 days potentially but they're trying to have their cake and eat it too by you know making some saying we're um reluctantly supporting it well don't be reluctant either decide or not whether we actually need it put conditions and you know uh, you know, f establish what are the terms of the debate? What do we need to see for this to be allowed to continue? Um, I don't think they've communicated it well. Instead, again, they've ceded uh, the ground basically to the conservatives who are really going to organize around it. The question is, is whether that will resonate with the Canadian public. But um, I'm just a little, you know, I'm disappointed that the po opportunities politically to actually you can break up the protest. But what are you going to do about the underlying political conditions and the way in which it's been exploited and used to the benefit of right wing forces? That is the real problem that has to be addressed. This is like January 6th. Yes, we need to enforce the law. It needs to be investigated and so on. But it was sort of a sideshow to what is actually percolating, which is broad, broader and broader organizing on the far right, using the mandates and the, the discourse and language of freedom um, in order to accomplish a right-wing agenda that's anti-immigrant, that's ultimately pro-business, addresses none of the actual genuine workers' concerns. That's the, really the problem. We're talking with Professor Adnan Hussein, host of the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History. We'll plug your guests um, uh, momentarily. Is it possible to have a party behave like the NRA or APAC? Seems to me that the NRA says 
Ukraine, uh, 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 Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, we're about guns. Does this affect gun ownership? Uh, APAC will say, uh, what does this have to do with Israel? How is Israel, uh, if it doesn't affect Israel, we have no comment. Can a political party, it seems to me, a, a successful political party would take, and I have this scrolling on the YouTube channel and in the Zoom room. It's the economic, the 21st century economic bill of rights written by Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky. They wrote it for the Progressive Democrats of America. And indulge me, I just want to repeat this. 21st century economic bill of rights. These are the, the six points. All Americans are entitled to the right to a job that pays a livable wage. Two, the right to quality health care. Three, the right to a complete education. Four, the right to affordable housing. Five, the right to a clean environment. Six, the right to a secure retirement. Period. That's what we stand for, an economic bill of rights. Does Singh have to have a... a a position on the truckers? Can't, can't a political party, what is Singh's party called? The, ND the NDP, New Democratic Party. If you were the leader of the NDP, don't you think you'd accrue more power if you said, unless, it ha unless this has to do with these six economic bill of rights, no comment. That's what the NRA does. That's what APAC does. Unless well, the difference is, is that the NRA and APAC don't need to win elections and they don't need to govern. So this is the problem is that if you only I agree with you, they should have laser focus. And actually what they should do um, is, a, you know, adapt exactly what you're talking about to party politics, which is find ways in which the, these party platforms can be um, interjected into uh, understanding what the solutions to the current problems are. If this is what's happening because the truckers, why, why don't we have strong unions? And of course, these people deserve living wages and they've been exploited. Uh, you know, we can put aside the mandate question and let's solve the, the things that we all agree on that truckers deserve, you know, uh, you know, honest pay for an honest, honest job. So there are ways in which you could do it, but you have to deal with uh, present uh, concerns or issues that arise if you want to at least make the claim that you are a governing party, that you could be in government. Now, if you're a single issue kind of party, and sometimes those work at least to transform the political landscape, they don't necessarily expect, you know, to win the presidency or even a lot of seats or people in Congress, but you put a certain, um, you know, position or an issue, a policy on the agenda, that can be also very effective. But I, then... I, I, I I am utterly convinced that if Trudeau said, unless this, what do I, what is my position on the truckers? If they want to talk about education, healthcare, retirement, a livable wage, the environment, 
I'm all in. You want to come? Come. come. Except he doesn't want to talk about those things. I know. Except when it's election time and he's worried that the NDP's agenda is more popular with with Canadian people, then he'll start talking about those things. But now that he's won the election, he's got three years ahead or whatever, you know, before he has, you know, tech might have to worry about it. He doesn't want to talk about those things. They so want he, to talk about these cultural issues. He just wants to demonize the people, call them names or dismiss them. Um, and this is just not, you know, taking us anywhere, I think, you know, and actually, as far as the, the 21st century Bill of Rights, I know we don't like to read as much anymore. So, you know, 10, you know, 10 rights may sound like it's too much, but, you know, having six, I would like to see, I would have wanted to see 10 rights. So tell Harvey JK and Alan Minsky to give us four more. Um, right. There's these are really great. And I think you could probably get, you know, four more. Let's make it a full 10 rights uh, like the Bill of Rights. Great. Professor Adnan Hussein, uh, who was on the Mudgeless podcast this week? Well, I'm recording uh, Wednesday with uh, Professor Donna Olwan of Syracuse University, who just recently published a book about the transnational politics of honor crime. So looking at gendered violence and how it is, um, you know, used and how it circulates, um, you know, and looking at the politics around how to deal with uh, gender based violence uh, in the Middle East and in North America. It's a very transnational um uh, study. So I'm really looking forward to that discussion. And of course, I have at the end of the week, we'll be talking with uh, Professor Juan Cole, and that will come out a couple weeks afterwards based on his, this recent book, Peace Movements in Islam, History, Religion, and Politics. It's a set of essays, and he's the editor and wrote a contribution as well as the introduction. So we'll ask him a little bit about the interesting um, you know, work that he and others have, have, have produced. Um, and on the... Um, on guerrilla history, um, we have uh, recently, um, I wasn't actually part of the discussion, but Professor Ruth Wodak, who wrote a book called The Politics of Fear, and it's about linguistics and far right movements and the, lang you know, the language that they use, uh, how it works. So it's the politics of, of um, you know, right wing discourse, um, looking really very broadly transnationally at many different countries. And it's actually a brilliant conversation. And the book is, is really outstanding. So I encourage people to go listen to that um, uh, on guerrilla history. Before you go, we're coming up. Joe in Norway wrote to me last night and he said, we're coming up on the second anniversary of office hours. And it's just been, I look back at the two years and it's just been incredible. The people who we've met and you are, so integral to it and your your uh your teaching in the mornings and uh it's you know uh, everybody should come and listeners you know it's been two years if you haven't come now maybe it's just not the kind of thing you want to do on a friday or saturday but there's so much um great community so much learning and exchange um it's been really wonderful it's it's um helped so many of us through the pandemic uh, engage with others learn a lot and have a sense of community so yeah um, i really recommend it you just need zoom and go to my website what i love i'll let you go i know you're busy but what i love is 
I check out like two, you know, I have it going, I fall asleep. This thing goes on all Saturday and it reminds me of when I was a kid, my parents would have friends over and I would fall asleep underneath the coffee table because I felt safe. They were laughing, they were talking, uh, they were communists planning to overthrow the, no. Um, that may be partly true, but uh, no, that's not true. That's that's not true. My mother will kill me if. Uh, anyway, speaking of mothers and fathers, Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. If we don't ask for much on this show, I promise you, if you have five dollars and you want to feel good, go to Rahima.org and give money to Rahima.org. You want to buy a, a, a scratch off lottery thing you're not going to win. You're throwing money away. $5 will change a person's life. Tell very quickly, uh, we, I'll get Peter B. Collins to talk about it. So we thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Appreciate it. Thanks thank so you. much. Joining us in San Rafael, California is Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer, Peter B. Collins. We're going to talk about San Francisco. We're going to talk about the uh, the the right wing Democrats who are using the school board election recall in San Francisco as some kind of cautionary tale for Democrats to abandon AOC. I will get to this in a second. How they're they're twisting this the 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 Budin, the the DA, and how. Republicans, but more, most importantly, Democrats, conservative Democrats are using San Francisco to paint a narrative that it's the left that's destroying the Democratic Party's chance in the midterms. We'll get to that in a second. But tell us about Rahima.org, Peter B. Collins, and why people should give money to Rahima.org. Well, thank you, David. Uh, Rahima.org was founded by the parents of Adnan Hussein. It's based in Silicon Valley, and it's a nonprofit that supports uh, refugees and other newly arrived persons uh, here in California. And I discovered it uh, only on Adnan's birthday back in uh, January when he put up a post on Facebook. And I think it's a great organization that is helping people that uh, are getting even less support from our government these days. We have a whole new wave of Afghan uh, immigrants and refugees. Not enough. Who are being, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, many of them are now leaving the military bases where uh, they were parked after the hasty exit from Afghanistan. And they're just the latest example of uh, groups of people who I welcome to the United States, to the melting pot, to the dream factory. And, uh, you know, it's very unpopular post-Trump to support refugees and immigrants. So the work of Rahima, I think, is more necessary than ever. And I do appreciate your support of the organization. And I hope people will chip in uh, to the extent that they are able. And if Adnan is still on, I see he's still plugged into Zoom. I just had a quick tech support note for Adnan. That white noise that he's hearing, I believe, is coming from his computer. 
And it's a fan that is reacting to a kind of overload in his RAM. And Adnan, if you're on a Mac, uh, do a search for activity monitor, and it will show you the peak in uh, the load on your RAM that is occurring that causes the fan to kick in. And I've actually heard it only when you're on the show uh, for the last two to three weeks or so. So it could be that uh, you need to close the Pornhub browser uh, <laughs> before you come on the Feldman Zoom. Technical and ethical advice from <laughs> Peter B. Collins. I love it. It's so useful. Hey, turlets and tech support. I, I do what I can That's for right. my fellow man. <laughs> By the way, I do have a Pornhub channel, David Feldman. Uh, I have a hit video on Pornhub where a, a beautiful woman, topless, delivers a pizza to me. I say, how much? She says, $20. And the money shot is me negotiating her down to 12 for the pizza. <laughs> so it's, it's, very, it's, it's a specific fetish, but it's <laughs> give, go to Rahima.org. Give, instead of the scratch off lottery ticket, which is going to make you feel like crap, give $5 to Rima.org. And you you look at the website, it's beans, it's lentils, it's yogurt, no junk food. It's a food pantry for people who need to eat. And it's, help, it's food that I approve of. You can... So let us talk about San Francisco, unless you want to talk about, very quickly, Ukraine. And do you fear, do, can I ask you about Ukraine in a second, or for a second? Right now, sure. So they're now saying that we're on the brink of uh, European violence not seen since World War II. We're seeing the biggest, we're about to see the biggest armed clashes in Europe since uh, World War II. Uh, today, Vladimir Putin recognized two new republics i guess they're two new countries i don't know if they're countries uh, they're no they're they're uh special zones uh he he has not annexed them he has recognized them and it's ruined my summer plans i was going to club med luhansk and uh, now because of the sanctions uh, americans can't do that david it's but donetsk and luhansk they're, they're two russian speaking uh Provinces, provinces of Ukraine that have seceded from Ukraine and they identify with Russia. And today, Vladimir Putin said he will be sending troops in as peacekeepers to make sure that Ukraine doesn't uh, try to get it back. And I, I would only say that the uh, secession is an aspiration. I don't believe that that is recognized by either the government in Kiev or Moscow. And uh, just by comparison, Crimea and Sevastopol, those are basically settled issues. The U.S. is still griping about it, uh, but nobody is going to change uh, that part of the map. OK, so I don't want to I'm not going to argue with you. I really don't want to do value judgments here. I, I just want to explain to our listeners and you're so great at it you know what is going on Unfor you know unfortunately 
people are so accustomed to two people arguing to find out what the news is. So I'm going to ask you this question. That's not an argument. Is this do you worry that this is tantamount to the Sudetenland? We were talking to Howie Klein earlier that we some Americans poo pooed Hitler seizing the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia, where there were German speaking people who welcomed the, the Germans. Uh, do you worry that Putin may be more dangerous than we think? That this is the beginning of maybe uh, an asymmetrical cyber war that he's going to conduct? Uh, I mean, we're, we're threatening sanctions. Do we know that he's not going to pull the plug on our Internet? Well, uh, there are many unknowns here, David, and anybody who really who tells you that they solidly know what's going to happen, uh, like the Biden administration, uh, I think is is engaged in heavy speculation. And the advantage is to Putin here. Uh, there's simply no question about it. I don't know what his ultimate objectives are. He says that he wants the West and NATO in particular to agree not to recruit, recruit Ukraine, not to further expand NATO. Uh, I believe beneath that he wants to splinter NATO. And I believe that objective has largely been achieved. And despite the talk from Washington and from uh, uh, Germany and Paris uh, about the West being in lockstep, being unified in confronting Putin, that is very far from the truth. And the power that he has over the energy supplies in Europe and all the way to Istanbul, there are uh, huge complaints that, uh, you know, they're risking spiraling inflation because energy costs are already uh, have already escalated sharply this winter. So, you know, does, and, and you asked about a cyber war. Well, Russia has uh, aggressive, offensive cyber warfare capabilities, and so do we. And we don't know, for example, if the recent cyber attacks on the Ministry of Defense in Kiev and on other, there were banks and other targets in Ukraine, those well could have come from Moscow. But the weasel words we heard from American uh, security officials interviewed on the captive media outlets was using the same weasel words. We believe it's consistent with, it looks like. But we have to allow for the possibility that the United States or other nations operating in a provocative manner may be conducting these kind of cyber attacks that we have seen to date. So we're, we're in a hall of mirrors and we're being fed a lot of fear by the Biden administration. And they gave us assurances a week ago that the attack was going to occur on Wednesday. And you know what simple observation I made that established that no fool would launch an invasion last Wednesday? It was the full moon. And with a snowscape beneath, you have no cover of darkness 
to launch a cross-border attack. Now, I cannot make any uh, Plus, it's hump day and the weekend's coming up. (laughs) Well, and the Olympics were on. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I'm binging screeners for the SAG Awards. I don't have time for a war. Right. Uh, But, you know, number one, it proved to be false, a false alarm, at least. And now, you know, Biden has said that Putin has made the decision that it's going to come any day or any week now. That could be true. But the way the sabers have been rattled, the way that false flags were uh, uh, talked about, and now you can see activity on the ground where they're moving uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians into Russia for safety. There are, according to our satellite uh, eyes in the sky, uh, columns that are moving from Russian bases toward the Ukrainian border. But until we have a clear signal, I think that we need to respond to this as a confrontation that requires a diplomatic end. And Macron had apparently arranged uh, to get Putin to set up a summit with Biden in the near future. The, uh, and Russian Biden has foreign, agreed to it, right? Well, they're hedging now because they're saying, well, we don't know if Russia has reinvaded Ukraine. But before so, that, he agreed, Biden did in defense of Biden, which yes. he did agree to the summit. Well, that, that was reported. I, I didn't hear it coming from him. So I think there is some, uh, you know, intentional ambiguity here because they're trying to read Putin's intentions. And he's really good at, at obscuring that. He gave a nearly hour long harangue today. Putin did when he signed the documents to recognize the two uh, provinces of Ukraine. But that's not the same as an invasion. And I still believe that Putin wants to use his leverage here to settle the issues about NATO, about offensive missiles in Poland and other neighboring countries. And I, I do think that you can't use World War II and the run up to it as a model for what's happening today. And so we're hearing about appeasement and, you know, who is the Chamberlain who is going to give away. Right. But but Biden has already signaled that we will not take any direct military action. And I don't think the sanctions have nearly the the threat level that we are told. And, and of course, they don't specify. They say, well, you know, if we tell Putin exactly what the consequences are, he can calculate uh, whether it's still worth it to him. Well, I submit that there is nothing that we can do financially to Russia that would change the mindset in the Kremlin. And so we're playing a lot of head games with non-Russians. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, it's very difficult at this stage to say with any certainty what is going to evolve. It's brinkmanship. And then we'll talk about San Francisco. It's it's brinkmanship. Biden is saying Putin's going to invade. So he's saying it's a fait accompli. So Putin has no choice 
but to invade. Otherwise, he looks weak. If Ukraine joins NATO, the agreement is an attack against one of us is an attack against all of us. So you belong to uh, NATO, Russia attacks you and the whole, all of Western Europe and parts of Eastern Europe are all in. The brinkmanship on Putin's uh, ha side is that, look, I've invaded Ukraine and the West isn't coming to your defense. You still think NATO is a good idea? Look at look at what I'm able to do right now. You haven't joined NATO, but they they want you. They say they want you. But look, I've already invaded two independent, you know, two republics. Nothing. You still want to join? He, so I think there's a part of him that's trying to convince Ukraine that the West won't be there for them if we attack. So well, and, and he used the language that has been used to describe American occupations and puppet regimes. <laughs> Even used the R word that the government in Kiev is a regime, and so so much of what Putin is doing is the kind of rule bending and rule breaking behavior that the United States has engaged in over the past twenty years, and we really don't have any high ground to stand on here. Tony Blinken at the UN last week had to say, yeah, well, you know, uh, we fed you some bullshit before about Iraq, you know, but uh, hey, I'm here to feed you some bullshit to stop a war, right. not to start a war. So you got to believe me. Right, right. And, and we don't have any credibility. We're a paper tiger and Putin knows that. We just left Afghanistan with the paper tiger's tail between its legs. And now we're over, we could be overreacting. We're, we're embarrassed. We feel weak. So we're kind of standing up to Putin in Ukraine saying, don't mess with us. We, we still have it. And uh, we, we and, don't. And David, the Washington Post had a piece that echoes what you and I have mentioned over the past few weeks that this is a very uh, uh, a valuable distraction for Biden to feed to Americans. Right. And they they flipped it around saying that, well, Biden's leadership is, uh, you know, galvanizing Americans and uh, changing the subject. Well, yeah, it's changing the subject from the obvious failures that that have occurred on his watch. Let me let me just alert Dave Cyrus. We're 10 minutes behind. Is that OK, Dave? Dave Cyrus, thumbs up. So I'm going to turn your video off. Thank you. I hope I'm not screwing up your day. He looked pissed. He was trying to psych me out. I know that, man. OK, it was blue. I think it was blue steel. Yes. Yes. So San Francisco School Board, there was a recall last week. And it's kind of being treated the same way Yunkin in Virginia and Terry McAuliffe, that this is a sign that Yunkin beating Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, school board recall, this is a sign that the Democrats need to get their, their, their act in order, stop listening to AOC, 
Is that true? Oh, they're playing it to the hilt, David, and we're getting it from uh, both the far right and the Democratic near right. Uh, Mike Pence, who is struggling to find his identity, got his mommy's permission to give a talk at Stanford's Hoover right wing institution uh, on Friday or Saturday. And he said, yes, three woke board members were recalled from the San Francisco school board this week. And then James Carville piles on to try to cancel progressives, uh, which is a long, uh, long running goal of his. He whispers to Maureen Dowd, 70 percent of the people in San Francisco tried to warn us <laughs> they're not popular, he said, referring to the woke left. Well, you need to understand a few things that the issues that drove to this recall in San Francisco are local. <clears throat> They're not related to the Democratic Party or anything else. And this was a collective exercise to try to clean up the embarrassment that we felt when this board, which includes some incompetent people who were recalled by the voters, uh, failed to reopen schools, spent its time talking about changing the names of over 40 schools to be, you know, more politically correct in the modern sense. But there were other issues at play. The Asian American community was uh, moved to anger because this same Board of Education voted to change the admission standards to the college prep school, Lowell High School and to allow people to enter uh, via a random drawing. Well, this really was a pushback against the high achievement levels of Asian Americans who have dominated the student body at Lowell in recent years. There's also a scandal over the uh, uh, murals from the Depression era at Washington High School that depict George Washington with slaves and also dominating Native Americans. It has historic value, but there are is a small group of people that want to just paint it over and make it disappear. Now, on top of this, a woman named Collins, who I hasten to add is no relation to me, was uh, stripped of her, her committee assignments on the Board of Education because she, who, she's... Um, an African-American married to a white guy. They've been accused of various types of uh, uh, building code fraud that's separate from the Board of Education, but it, it's germane to who she is. And she was called out for some tweets that she made against Asians uh, saying that they were using white supremacist tactics. So when she was stripped of those board seats, she then filed an $84 million lawsuit against the school board that she had helped uh, run into red ink. That could buy you a studio apartment in San Francisco. <laughs> but not with a view. Right. Uh, so this is much more complicated than the issues in Virginia, and it is extremely local. And there's one other factor that has not been included in any of the coverage. And David, we talked about our own views about labor unions last week. And I support labor unions, except when I don't agree with their actions. And 
the biggest driver of discontent in the electorate that led to this 70% vote. But keep in mind, the turnout was only about 33%. And turnout occurred in the kitchen because every registered voter was mailed a mail-in ballot. So only a third of the people really cared passionately about this, but that 70% of the 30% is being treated like, you know, it's an overwhelming movement here in San Francisco. But it was the teachers union that dragged feet on reopening schools when the suburban schools, the Sacramento schools, the LA schools had come to terms with COVID. And I respect the concerns of teachers about being forced into a classroom that doesn't have adequate ventilation uh, and being exposed to kids who were unvaccinated, uh, many of them still are. And so there was a personal risk there. But fundamentally, it was the union that refused to put teachers back in the classroom. And so this was uh, another effort to uh, cut the heads off of progressives in San Francisco and make them a laughing stock, mm-hmm. funded by a conservative tech billionaire whose money is behind charter schools. This is the same billionaire who is funding the attempt to recall our progressive district attorney, which I'll get to here in a second. And this is part of a long move since Gavin Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco to prevent a real progressive from gaining power or, uh, heaven forbid, becoming mayor. So there's a whole progressive prevention, well-funded effort that the corporate media and, uh, you know, uh, James Carville and Mike Pence would never know about. And that's what is really behind both of these recall attempts. So let me now turn to the uh, district attorney recall, which is scheduled for the primary day on June 7th. Chesa Boudin was elected by the voters and was very clear that he was going to prosecute police who uh, committed misconduct, including violent and fatal behavior that he was going to uh, reduce the prosecution of petty crimes, that he was going to try to end the war on some drugs by promoting diversion and other approaches. And almost from day one, this same group of anti-progressives targeted him for recall. They are blaming him for every problem that San Francisco has. Same thing here with our, our new DA. Right. Yeah. So Friday night, your old buddy, Bill Maher, waded into the San Francisco issues. He, he just talked a little bit with the panel about the school board recall. But, you know, he has that opening interview that's, what, seven, eight minutes long. Mm-hmm. And he brought in a woman named Brooke Jenkins. And to the uninitiated, she seems like a fair-minded former prosecutor who quit her job because Chesa Boudin is making San Francisco so dangerous. Well, in a minute, I want to tell you who Brooke Jenkins really is and what kind of a prosecutor she's been. But I hope you have the link that I sent you for the video piece, if you can pull that up. Yes, hang on. Uh, Brooke Jenkins is a very active member 
of the committee to recall Chesa Boudin. Bill Maher didn't bother to mention that. It was a grotesque omission that made her look like just a, an upstanding good citizen of San Francisco who was denied her uh, opportunity to clean up the crime here in the city. And she spewed a number of lies that are also contained in this one minute spot that was produced for the committee that she's part of. And uh, you'll, you'll see her, she's on camera three times speaking. Her name is shown, but she is an attractive uh, Latina looking woman. And uh, she lies about uh, Chesa Boudin's responsibility three times in this one minute video. Go okay. ahead and play it. I will set it up. This is a clip that I will get right, I promise you. Hang on. <laughs> I'm almost there. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to do this right. Watch. San Francisco can have criminal justice reform and public safety, but District Attorney Chesa Boudin is failing on both. The safety of San Francisco is dependent upon Chesa being recalled as soon as possible. I didn't support the Newsom recall, but this is different. Chesa takes a very radical perspective and approach to criminal justice reform, which is having a negative impact on communities of color. I never in a million years thought that my son, let alone any six-year-old, would be gunned down in the streets of San Francisco and not get any justice. Chesa's failure has resulted in an increase in crime against Asian Americans. The DA's office is in complete turmoil at this point. For Chesa Boudin to intervene in so many cases is both bad management and dangerous for the city of San Francisco. We are for criminal justice reform. Chesa's not it. Recall Chesa Boudin now. So <clears throat> what you hear there is this chorus of voices. And Chesa Boudin is not responsible for the increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans. That is a flat out lie. Right. And Brooke Jenkins claimed that the safety of San Francisco is dependent on his being recalled and that he is a radical. Well, he's doing what he told the voters he would do. About a third of the DAs have left the office. Some of them were fired and some of them left of their own free will. And Brooke Jenkins left after a scrappy little online publication from Davis, where the university is located halfway between here and Sacramento, it's called the Davis Vanguard. And they had a reporter outside the courtroom when Brooke Jenkins tried to coach the testimony of a girl who was under the age of 10. And the girl was a key witness against a man. Uh, she was the daughter of the man's boyfriend and had been, had been accused of molesting the girl. Well, Brooke Jenkins was trying to rehearse her testimony because twice when she had been on the stand, she refused to speak. And so this is, is not progressive. It's not justice. And yet the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, has been promoting the recall, particularly with a columnist who appears twice a week named Heather Knight. And to her credit, Heather Knight this past Sunday published a lengthy front page story about how San Francisco police 
are laying down on the job. There is a case where a pot shop was being robbed at 4.30 in the morning. Two police cars pulled up and watched the thieves ransack the store, jump in a car, and drive away. They took no action. In another case, a guy was ripping up and setting fire to a parklet. That's one of these things mm -hmm. put in the street, you know, for COVID reasons. This was a really nice parklet with sofas and a wood-burning fireplace. <laughs> and the cops watched while this guy did that. The cops stood and watched when the swarms of people came to Union Square in that orchestrated effort to bust the luxury goods stores. And there have been very few prosecutions since that event, which caused national embarrassment to San Francisco. It's the cops who are not investigating and charging people, and then they blame the DA because he hasn't convicted them. Well, short of calling a grand jury, the DA can't just charge people with crimes on his own accord. He needs help from the police department. And at the same time, the, the day before the school board recall, a trial started against a police officer who had brutally beaten a man who had been falsely accused of harming his girlfriend in public. The girlfriend said, no, he didn't try to harm me. The police misunderstood. But they beat the guy. And in order to throw that trial, the police chief, who is trying to keep control of his officers by supporting a very radical police officers association, that's the cops union, he's pandering to them by uh, uh, the way Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal with Iran. The police chief pulled out of a, a memo of understanding with the district attorney's office that was negotiated before Chesa Boudin took the job. And he pulled out saying that the DA had played unfair in sharing the evidence about this cop who is on trial. And so the politics of San Francisco don't fall neatly into this left, right, or left and moderate uh, paradigm that we hear from Mike Pence and the corporate media and uh, you know people like James Carville. And I just encourage people, before you believe Bill Maher, before you believe this woman, Brooke Jenkins, who has a personal vendetta against the district attorney, dig in deeper, read the Davis Vanguard, <laughs> right. and understand that this is a very political uh, kind of opportunism. And I wanna end by saying, that we've got some serious problems in San Francisco. The tenderloin is out of control. The uh, fentanyl overdose deaths uh, exceed the total number of people who've died of COVID in San Francisco in the last two years. But the cops are not doing their jobs. And they sit there and watch this open air drug market as people are shooting up in the street and pooping in the gutter. And then they blame the progressives. They blame right. Chesa Boudin. And it's, it's a shit show that uh, is then picked up for national consumption. And you can tell it gets me a little worked up. It gets me worked up. We, we do have to wrap it up. I'm keeping Dave Cyrus waiting. But this really gets me worked up because 
You cannot blame the defunding of the police on the rise, the rise in crime on the defunding of the police because nobody's police departments have been defunded. Los Angeles and Austin, it was on the ballot. It was on the ballot in, in Minneapolis. It never passed. Nobody's defunding the police. So right there, you can't blame the rise in murder rate on defunding the police. And there's a uh, criminologist at a Fordham University named John Pfaff. And he's uh, he came out with a study last week that shows murder has gone up in equal rates in cities with or without progressive prosecutors. The, the murder rate has gone up. Uh, there's no difference between the murder rate in Philadelphia, where they have a progressive uh, prosecutor, and the, uh, the suburbs of Philadelphia, where they don't have progressive uh, prosecutors. This is what The Economist wrote, quote, the reality is that the murder wave has affected every part of America, rural, suburban, and urban, unquote. It's, e it's been equally spread around the country, and uh, people use it to, they're using the deaths, the, the increase in crime, to further their own agenda. You want to blame the murder rate on defunding the police? Let's first try it. Before yeah. <laughs> we let's just see how that works. It might yeah. be the guns. It might, just might be, be just might be that more guns were sold in the past two years than at any time in American history. And study after study shows that when in the states that have a high gun ownership, the murder rate goes up. But we can't we can't get rid of guns people's jobs that would that would destroy jobs peter b collins go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of this man's podcasts radio shows and interviews you're the best you really are thank you david thank you i hope to see you next week happy president's day favorite president Ooh, fdr i guess by default Least favorite, <laughs> least favorite president? Bush, Bush the second. I might yeah. agree with you. It's a toss up. Bush, yeah. yeah. I mean, Trump, Trump is his own, uh, yeah. own mess. But, uh, you know, Bush, Bush was uh, a very dangerous man who uh, got two terms to do his damage. Yeah. Trump's favorite president, by the way, Jefferson Davis. <laughs> Thank you, Peter B. Collins. When we come back, we will be joined by the brilliant comedy writer. Sorry to keep you waiting, Dave Cyrus. Are you still here? Did we, we didn't lose you, did we, Dave? We will be back. But first, we are supporting AmazonLaborUnion.org, Christian Smalls. Our friend Christian Smalls is out on Sat Island right now, trying to get the vote out, trying to create Amazon Union, Amazon Labor Union. Go to AmazonLaborUnion.org and give him money. I don't ask you for much. When I ask you to give people money, these people have been thoroughly vetted. So give Christian Smalls $5 to help support 
him and AmazonLaborUnion.org. We will be back after this. Chairs in this Bessemer shop. The back and outdated don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins that said, vote no. But maybe this year Union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemer floor. I'm hoping the Union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. chairs ain't no chairs that's uh new music from professor mike steinell who will join us we're running a little behind schedule and let's now go i don't know where we're going dave cyrus joins us and i have to change his introduction i always 
There you are. Hey, Dave Cyrus, how should I introduce you? You're a comedy writer, a comedian, a screenwriter. You're you write how about for just SNL. your friend. What? How about just your friend? I don't have friends. I know. I was being very sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. comedy writer's fine. I don't care. What do you got going on? Eh, well, it's a busy time. You know, lots of stuff going on. Anything like Ben Burgess was on earlier. He's got something brewing that he can't talk about yet. Do you have something brewing that you can talk about? I know. You... Uh, actually, no, I don't think I have anything I can talk well, about. Well, There was something I, I... that was exciting that you told me. Yeah. I mean, that was a while ago, um, but I can't talk about it. So it doesn't really matter, does it? We're just teasing your audience right now with, them imagining how great my news could actually be compared to what it actually is. No, it, it was pretty good news. Uh, well, yeah, I feel like we're just being a big old tease right now. I know. I was almost, be... if I did happy for others, I would have been happy for you. But when you, t just to make you feel good, I was bitter and envious and had trouble sleeping when you told well, me. Well, it probably won't happen anyway, so don't worry. Oh. It's not, it's not a done deal. Don't worry. Do you, do you, was... do you root against people? No, no, I, I wouldn't say that unless they like unless they did something, unless there's like a reason, you know, but I mean, I, I feel like I like to I want people to do well. I want people to be happy. You know, if that's what you mean. When you pick I, up, um, do you do you do you read Variety and The Hollywood Reporter? No. Why would I do that? They're great. The Hollywood Reporter is they've turned The Hollywood Reporter around. Black Wolf. Remember Black Wolf? The Dragon Master. Yes. yes. The Dungeon Master. Excuse the me. Dungeon no, Master. Wait, yeah. Was it Dragon Master? It was Dragon the Master. The Dragon Master, Black yeah. Wolf, the brilliant Black Wolf. God, yeah. God bless him. Good guy. Great guy. Yeah. He he said you should read yeah. The Hollywood Reporter. They're doing the most amazing reporting about capitalism and industry. I did not know that. Yeah, I really recommend The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, I'm trying to do a better job reading financial pages. Trying to I don't it. like doing that. I don't want to know about finance. Right. And that's why just, most people too close don't. to math. Right. And that's why most people, that's why they're able to steal our government and our country from us. They, they make, yeah, that's, that's true. Because, you know, it, boring things are sometimes the more important things to know about. And then people take advantage of that. I mean, look, that's been the problem with left and right forever, hasn't it? Uh, a lot of people just don't want to learn nuance. They don't want to know details. Right. And so people take advantage of that and they create simplistic versions of reality that just sound and feel right, but aren't. Right. Um, I actually have something I'd love to talk about, if you don't mind, David. Absolutely. Have you spoken today? I, I, I apologize. I have not been listening to all 14 hours of the show. Well, you're lucky. Have you mentioned Bonds for the win? The what? Bonds for the win. What is that? Okay. That is a subject. Uh, something going on right now. Basically, you know how a lot of parents are trying to destroy the school system. Yes. They are angry at schools. They're showing up. I, have a, I don't know if I told you, I have a friend in California who went to a school board meeting and there were people rambling about critical race theory and how masks give you carbon dioxide poisoning and just, you know, just, you know, crazy people who are just trying to take advantage. So bonds for the win is a or you can go to a school board meeting or just listen to Jimmy Dore. But uh, I guess. Yeah, well, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are being uh, irresponsible and uh, opportunistic 
with people's fear right now. So Bonds for the Win is an organization that started a few months ago. It's similar to those sovereign citizen things where like te- where parents would show up to these teacher conferences and show up to the school and they make demands. They say, you have to do this, you have to do that. So most schools have something called surety bonds, which are uh, bonds they have to buy. Basically, it's almost like a slush fund in case you get sued. In case you commit a crime, they have to have uh, you know the money in place. And some places don't have that. They just have regular insurance. So what these uh, parents are doing is they're filing bogus legal uh, challenges to the school. None of them have worked. The FBI has made it clear none of these are legitimate legal, uh, have any legal authority. None of them are actually uh, anything but sort of nonsense. But they're being used to choke the schools because the schools have to respond to them. They, you know, even though they legally don't have to, they kind of, they're basically trying to bankrupt the school with paperwork. So it's, it's sometimes called paper terrorism. And uh, it's a very disturbing thing. And let me just give you examples of what we're talking about here. We're talking about be, schools being told that teaching kids about homosexuality or sex ed violates a 1964 law against distributing pornography to minors. Hmm. They're telling parents that they're telling the schools and the parents that uh, making a child wear a mask violates the Nuremberg trials yes. on medical experimentation. Right. And I'm talking about some in some cases, the only people required to wear masks were unvaccinated students who had been exposed recently. That is what they're putting these bonds about. Now, if you if you let me go forward, yes, I have please. something very interesting about about bonds for the win. Do you know who founded bonds for the win? Bonds for the win. Is it, is it W-I-N? It W-I-N, yeah. Bonds it's just a dumb for, slogan. Uh, give me, it was, okay, it was, let me set up, hang on. Uh, give me three guesses, okay? Okay. You, uh, it's not a famous person, but go on. Is it, let me just get my buzzer here uh, and we'll put some money in the jackpot okay who funded bonds for the win uh founded 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 is it founded and funded devoe the devoe family no 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 that that sounds right betsy betsy devos i'm I'm guessing you mean uh, devos is it devos yes but yeah yeah that no not her though i'm sure they're pals uh peter teal no, but that's a good one. Um, I'm sure, you know, he if he could get blood out of those schools, he would he would t- definitely be more interested. Who f- founded Bonds for the Win recently? Uh, I'm gonna go with Paul Blart Mall Cop. No, no, but I should since you mentioned it, I should bring up that on Cameo there is a Paul Blart Mall Cop lookalike who farts on command named Paul Flart. That's funny. It's not, actually. All right, one more. Guess. Give just, me a hint, and I'm going to get it now. It's not Kevin James. Okay, I'll give you a hint. It's someone you've definitely never heard of. Oh, have I met him? Uh, well, it's someone you've definitely never heard of, and you don't really retain information anymore, so it's possible. Somebody I never heard of. Yeah, this is oh nobody. that kid I had in Nebraska. Yes, yes, exactly. My son in Nebraska, who I, I deny his existence. He funded this. 
The kid uh, I never yeah, heard yeah, of? Sure. Who, so who is Bob it? What's the correct Wynn answer? Was thought was founded by a woman named Mickey Clan. K L Mickey Clan K L A N N. Is that short for is she shorten? Is it for Clan Clansman? Well, there's a lot. There's so many different ways you can do a joke out of that name. I was just gonna just throw that out there and then later say, but kudos on her for dropping the last N or for adding that N to throw us off, I meant. Um, but so, yeah, so her name is K-L-A-N-N. Um, but that's not really her fault, I guess, uh, as far as I know. Um, so Mickey Clan, uh, here's what else, because you know I've done this before where like I deal with conspiracy people and mm-hmm. my first question is always, what else do they believe? Right. Mickey now, by Clan. the way, we should this should be a regular segment on the show where you come on because in the past you had in a previous life that was your thing. You would yes, I was an anti conspiracy guy. Yes, yeah. um, anti hate group. But yeah, so Nikki uh, Clan uh, believes that AIDS and COVID are hoaxes, and that both are the same test. She has never explained how she believes that, but I mean, obviously, there's no real reason behind it. She's also a flat earther. And it's really not a huge coincidence. You're, you're breaking up. Someone who's obviously. What? You're, you're breaking up a little. Oh, sorry. You said she's saying, a flat earther. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I was just saying, you know. I, yeah, it's not exactly a huge coincidence that a flat earther who doesn't believe that diseases exist is the person who's trying to tell people not to let your kids wear a mask or get vaccinated or even get tested for COVID. Uh, this is, you know, this feels like it's not really about any of these problems. It just feels like people who are terrified of change and progress and science and wearing a mask. It's like it's like giving into the culture war to them because it's something that changed. It's something that changed in their lives that they want to reject is what I what I feel like, because none of it's like why for it just when you look at the fact that it seems like everyone who doesn't want their kids to wear masks also is really concerned about race theory. Those things have nothing to do with each other, except for the idea of unless you are just terrified of your children learning or experiencing anything new outside your home which is, of course, the big irony of these parents. They don't want their kids to stay at home for schooling, but they also don't want their kids learning anything they wouldn't learn at home. Right. Interesting. And, you know, it's, yeah, I just think that it's, uh, I think that part of it is, you know, kind of just a a general sense of narcissism of not wanting to believe that these elites, you know, $30,000 a year teachers are the elites to them, are, uh, you know, ruining their kids. Um, You know, how how are you going to believe that a teacher can teach your kids something when you think you already know everything they need to know. And that's what a lot of these teachers are saying. There's, that's the new kind of attitude. It's the new kind of thing they're saying at these, these school board meetings. They're saying, I don't want to co-parent with the school board. My kids should only learn what I want them to know. But a lot of parents believe that the average parent knows everything their kid needs to learn in school. And if they believe that, it means they do not know even close to how much their kid needs to learn in school. Right. Right. We have to win this war. They're they're waging the, the Republicans, the right, 
they drill down. They don't believe in a federal government. They believe in state government. They're taking over a majority of state houses. Then they drill down to the granular level, to the school boards. Yes. And you change the and schools, you change the culture. Mm -hmm. And also the people who are doing this, the people who are founding these organizations who are bombarding schools, basically just trying to get rid of public schools in general. I mean, these are basically segregationists to me. Yes. I see them as the exact same people who are trying to stop black kids from going to their schools. They don't want anything to change. They don't want to feel guilty. They don't want to acknowledge that there's a possibility of progress in the world. And I was going to say like the. Uh, well, I agree with you, if I, if I may agree with you the the uh, segregationists after the civil rights acts of 64 and 65 uh, couldn't fight integration so they introduced school choice uh, vouchers exactly they introduced yes. and private schools there was a, a rise in in private schools religious schools homeschooling yes and as yes exactly and as john oliver actually pointed out recently the people who are attacking these schools, usually it's a quick skip and a jump to school vouchers. That it's clearly this is about trying to, uh, you know, dissect schools, let parents have their own choice, which, by the way, don't forget what that's all about. It's about not wanting to pay for poor kids that aren't yours to go to school. It's, it's about, about not, it's it's also about wanting about, to only pay for your own child. It's also about capturing private business, capturing schools using public money and turning it over to private corporations charter schools and and yes absolutely and, because and, then it's yeah. the, the school is privately run it funnels right. all that public money right to the private sector but right. also i wanted to point out a lot of these people putting together these sovereign citizen groups and these you know things like bonds for the win they're trying to run for office and they're trying to use this attention to run for office because this is all a power grab for these people. This is nothing but a naked, ignorant power grab. When someone who, who spends most of their time on YouTube telling you not to get you know, any vaccination, not to use a thermometer because the mercury is going to give you poisoning, that is not someone who should be a leader. But they can be in this world where just being loud and obnoxious is enough to get attention and attention alone is the commodity. We are rewarding these brain lunatics simply because they have the quote unquote bravery to make fools of themselves. Right. That's how Trump got elected. People were impressed that he was willing to look that stupid. Right. There is a fringe minority that has guns and bullhorns. They do not represent the American people. It's it's just a, it's a minor, minor faction. And because they're so loud, they drown out the, the reasonable voices. Most Americans, well, you look at these truckers, 90% of truckers are vaccinated in Canada. They, they agree with these mandates, but it's, it, all it takes is a couple of renegades to create a movement that looks bigger than it actually is. Well, that's the thing about loudmouths, isn't it? they really think they deserve what they want. And I do think we have a crisis of confidence. We have too much confidence in this country. We have people who have no right to believe in themselves as much as they do. And that's where they right. get off saying, I know more than a teacher or a doctor or any, or any person that exists. Uh, you know, and, and I think being a parent gives you an excuse to do that because it makes you feel like you're not being narcissistic because it's about your kid, but it is.
Yeah. Thing, no, the we thing do is, to there's nothing wrong. Di- there's nothing wrong with questioning the medical community, but you should be questioning the medical community. You shouldn't be doing it uh, third third hand. In other words, I shouldn't be talking to you about Fauci. I should be talking to Fauci about Fauci. You know, it's it's when it's when Joe Rogan talks to the genius Tom Segura about Fauci that is irresponsible. I've seen those yeah, conversations. Or where he gets, yeah, or where I've seen people quote uh, Jordan Peterson on uh, climate change. It's like Jordan Peterson's not a climate change scientist. He's a weird psychologist or whatever. He's just a, He's just the only person willing to say, don't worry about it. So that's why he gets a voice. Yeah. It's a joke. And now, by the way, I am not calling for the deplatforming of Joe Rogan. I am calling for people to call him out for the danger to the community that he that he is. If you have a platform, uh, your responsibility is to cite this article in The New York Times that went point by point last week. This is what Joe Rogan says. This is why he's dangerous. This is what Joe Rogan says. I'm not calling for the deplatforming. I'm calling for people to say, do not listen to Joe Rogan's medical advice. He is a danger to the community. Oh, you're for censorship. No, I'm for correcting people's math and science. I mean, I don't, I mean, I think Joe Rogan agrees with that. You know, what? Joe Rogan, I, I think Joe Rogan agrees he doesn't want people relying on him for medical advice. I'm not defending the misinformation that's come out of a show. I'm just saying that's there's nothing cute, unreasonable about saying that's a cute trick he plays. What? That's a cute trick. No, I know he plays. It's I, false I'm, aware, I'm aware that it's not fair. No, huh? I get it. But uh, he believes but he's is, right. A, he believes he's right. Probably, you know, yeah. the more people who tell you you're right, the more you start believing it. And I think we see a lot of people who surround themselves with yes men. And they get a little weird. They start really believing their own hype. And it that's where people get dangerous is when, right. and that's sort of what happens on the internet in general with these echo chambers. We allow people to just get constantly reinforced with whatever idea exists. There's not an idea in the world anymore that you can't find an echo chamber for. There's places where you'll get ridiculed by a room full of people if you say the earth is round. Yeah, And that gets to some people. And some people just don't have the wherewithal to fight that. And it's sad, but I mean, that's what's happening with masks and vaccines. That's why you have professional athletes who think there's, who don't feel embarrassed to say, look at how many professional athletes have died of vaccines right. when it never happened once. Yeah. I don't People believe in engaging. really lazy I, about this lately. Yeah, I don't understand. Uh, there's some glib neoliberal comedic hacks who say, uh, just engage with people like Joe Rogan, no, uh, use your platform to just say, I'm not dignifying what he says. He's a, he's a fraud and he's dangerous. It's like discussing the N-word. It, it's like discussing anti-Semitism. It's like discussing Holocaust deniers. You don't engage with a Holocaust denier. You destroy the Holocaust. You use your platform to destroy the Holocaust deniers. You destroy people who use the N-word. You destroy people who 
are spreading lies about ivermectin. And by destroy, I mean yeah. you use your platform to call them out. Joe Rogan is inadequate. He's an inadequate man in every, he's just inadequate. I'm not going to, I wouldn't engage would with you him. Want, would you want to argue with him? Would, no, would I, want no, I wouldn't. Would on a personal level, would you want to have that argument? No, because- Or do you feel like you want to have it, but you think it's the wrong thing to do? I, w I won't argue with an anti-Semite. I won't argue with somebody who says things like, like Joe Rogan says, how come black people get to use the N word, but we can't? I, I, there's nothing to, there's nothing to, to argue about. You say, I, I, I told my, that's something I told my six-year-old son. That's something I told my six-year-old son and his friends, why black people can say the N word and you can't. I'm not gonna dignify but it's a very it's a very stupid thing to say. I agree with that. But I think I'd be a hypocrite if I agreed that we should refuse to engage with these people because, as you mentioned earlier, my career started with me forcing conversations with hate groups because my attitude was, I don't think I'm going to change their mind, but I want to change the mind of the people who are interested in what they have to say. Yeah. And you're, but you're I giving, that you're giving I, it's I, like I going on Tucker Carlson. When you go on Tucker Carlson, you're lending credence to a Cretan. You're, you're saying, oh, he's fair-minded and open, and it's his playing field, so he's going to destroy you. But doesn't part of you want to bury Tucker Carlson rhetorically? No. Doesn't part of you want to get in the muck with him and make him feel stupid and, no. and point and, and go after what he says? Doesn't, no, don't he's you incapable. Want that? These people are incapable of change. They don't. Oh, I agree. I don't, I'm not Have you to ever won him. an argument? I'm trying to humiliate him to win over someone who's watching. That's at least that's the attitude I had. You, when you've I was seen the clip conspiracy people and hate groups. Did you see the clip? I, he's a European economist, I believe, who just came on Tucker Carlson and demolished Tucker. And you know what happened? It didn't air. They cut it. They cut it. I can't well, remember yeah. the guy's name. I'm sure the chat room does. You can't win with these well, people. I mean, that that is a extenuating circumstance. I'd rather it be in a sort of even no, playing field. No, no, but you, like I kind of like the idea of arguing with monsters. Yeah, that's. I want to have that. Yeah, but that's not about saving humanity. You you Maybe don't not. dignify idiots, dangerous idiots. You say I'm canceling Spotify unless you get rid of this. Then that's that's not cancel. That's First Amendment. That's boycotting. You just say, I, like, I canceled Spotify. Right, that's your choice. That's people my choice. I'm not, I'm not, vote with their money. I, I, I don't support people who support misinformation. We have a million, we're going to have a million Americans dead from COVID. Somebody says, take ivermectin, and people take ivermectin as opposed to getting vaccinated, they're going to die. You've got blood on your hands. Right, but some people took ivermectin and then didn't die. Right. So right. that's the scientific method, right? Right. And so that's, I just is that choose... The, isn't that the clinical method of knowing if something works? Right. So I've got $10 to spend to stream my podcasts and music, and I'll pick some other evil corporate empire than Spotify to prove a point. I don't believe you stream music. I think you have 
four vinyl albums you play and that's it. That's not true. I was listening to the Pixies okay. today. I was listening to oh, Sinatra. Nice. I was listening to, now I add filthy lyrics. Everything mm -hmm. is- I do about, like the Pixies a lot. Yeah, any song that's playing is, I sing along, but I add cock and fart and shit to the lyrics. That's my- so what if we, what if you, instead of going on those platforms, what if you just like ambushed Tucker Carlson with a camera? Would you think that, I mean, that wouldn't work. He wouldn't talk to you, but does he ever do other interviews? Like, don't, I, I, I mean, cause I mean that like on an emotional level, I want the argument. I right, want to argue with that's Rand for Paul. You. I want to argue with Mitch McConnell. Right. That's for you though, but that's not going to move the needle. I mean, I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I don't. I don't know if you're right or wrong. You probably you very well maybe. I just know that like I feel like my maybe my confidence, maybe my my hope is that if you put these two people in a room, the better idea wins. And that I I'm not I'm, I'm this isn't really this isn't about deplatforming or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying in general, I want that fight. And you know, I like I like watching English Parliament when they scream at each other. You know, I want to see people get in each other's faces. I want, I would love nothing more than to watch someone, you know, than to watch a shouting match of real ideas between Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi or, you know, someone better than Nancy Pelosi. But, but as have you ever watched an art? Did, have you ever seen Boris Johnson during uh, questions say, you know what? You're right. I'm, I, I'm wrong. You're right. Have you ever seen somebody say I'm wrong? No. But like I said, so I'm that's, not playing that would them. be insanity. Isn't it insanity to watch the Sunday morning shows, these hard hitting interviews and think Mike Pence is going to crumble under the Nora O'Donnell's questioning? It, it's never happened. No, they play no, out no. the you clock. don't expect that. But you have those little moments. You have those moments where people win or lose, and they no, follow. No, they don't. No, and you get you get told. I was reading about Prince Andrew's interview that he did two years ago on Newsnight. It destroyed his life. Well, you know, and he finished up, and he went, "That's great. Let me give you a tour of Mum's office. Let me give you a tour of where Mummy." greets the prime ministers. He was utterly convinced that he cleared his name after that Newsnight interview. And everybody called him and said, you were great. Nobody ever knows they screwed up. Rarely does somebody know that they lost a debate. Maybe, maybe a couple of times. But, you know, Romney knew he lost the debate with uh, Obama 2012, Candy Crowley, when he accused Obama of not calling uh yeah that was that was exactly attack. yeah that was a moment because and, and the worst thing is that you remember of course romney won the first debate romney everyone yes. agreed romney won that first debate yes and then obama adjusted right and won again but, but obama had that had that moment yeah where getting caught in a lie like that or not, not a lie but a mistake mistake uh is very is the kind of thing where especially someone like romney who is not a bullshitter Right. Really, he's not a guy who's going to slink away from that. He's gonna he he can't do anything. But like, oh well, I guess so. You know. Uh, did you, you see know, the Romney? Like, you know, did you ever see? Did you see that documentary about him, Mitt, on Netflix? No, it's great because they 
they're there. I think it was at Hofstra, that debate. And he said, Barack Obama, I, you know, he he didn't declare Benghazi a terrorist attack. And Obama masterfully said, proceed. And Candy Crowley oh, yeah. corrects him. You, you saw it on Obama's face. He was extremely happy in that moment. And, he knew he caught him. And, yeah. And, and in the documentary, oh, no, it was a very Nick, cool moment. Yeah. Yeah. Was, they go, oh, man, <laughs> we just got our ass kicked. But rarely does that happen. Rarely do you get to see that. Yeah, I mean, we we all remember how famously badly Trump did in really both first debates. The first debate with Clinton, the first debate with Biden, both were his first debate performances ever. And both times his attitude was, you know, people would say, well, you know, if you turn off the sound and just look at it by body language, he looked good. And of course, it's a very stupid thing to say, but you forget that's what the majority of his fans are processing. They're not really listening. They're just looking at, at at body language like dogs. and it's confirmation bias you you watch the debate you see what you want to see when you watch the debate very few people are yeah, swayed sure. yeah but let, let's face it after that first, remember the first debate with with clinton and trump you had everyone on the left saying hillary just destroyed him that was that was beautiful he looked like a complete idiot and then you had everyone on fox news on the right saying Maybe it was a tie. You know, it was, they knew they didn't they didn't think that went well. But, you know, they just knew that they're that the people who vote for Trump don't care about policy and arguments and, and debates. They wanted a wrestling match. The, he and was the dancing like, oh. bear. And who cares how the bear dances? It's a miracle that he can dance at all. Let's keep him. But let's keep playing the music. But here's let's, an example. Well, real quick example, what you're saying about you can't convince the person, but it's really about the audience, because look at Putin right now. Putin today had to announce he's invading Ukraine because uh, because the areas that are rebelling, he wants to declare free. Now, By the way, he's Putin relying on the element of surprise. I'm joking. Well, that's the the point is right. Biden saying this over and over again. He's going to do this. He's going to do this. We knew he wasn't going to stop Putin from doing about you can't. But what it the did person, was but it's really it about the audience because look really stupid. It made Putin look like a child because you have because he didn't know how to pivot away and do something different. He just did the exact thing that everyone was saying. Watch, he's going to do it. And a, a con man does not want to hear someone be like, watch this. He's about to lie to you. Yeah, because the thing is, they still have to they have to finish their thought, which is the lie. So I think that it's still good because how many people would have believed Vladimir Putin when he said, Oh, this area, we, we need to go in there right now. This is so terrible. We need to save these people. How many people would have believed that if they had not first heard everyone being like, this lunatic is about to make up an excuse to invade this country, and then magically within three days it happens? Right. Sometimes you have to just play to the people who are still on the fence. Have you ever been consumed? Yes, you are. Everybody is consumed by hatred for somebody who did something right yeah sure the the most powerful way to deal with it it's a cliche is to ignore not dignify that individual and minimize i agree with that i I'm think sorry? that's a that's a very good point and that's very that's a very good point for right this moment actually in terms of but me or politics uh I, neither but i can't really I can't expand on that. Go oh, on. okay. So somebody, if somebody's messing with you, 
the only reason you mess with somebody is to get inside their head. So the secret is don't let them get inside your head. Everybody knows this, but they need to be reminded of this. And the only way you can convince that other person that they're not in your head is by getting them the F out of your head, which is the hardest thing to do. You got to, if somebody is screwing you over and there's nothing you can do about it, uh, you don't let them take up place, take up space in your head. It's really hard to do. Uh, well, I have enough people, people who take up things. space in my head. I don't need to also have Trump and, uh, or, you know, who, who's the Joe Rogan, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, they don't take up space in my head. No, I know that you're already full. What? No, I know that you're in terms of things to hate. You're already full, full. I'm loaded. I'm yes, loaded. It's spilling it's out, coming of out my ears. The people I hate. I think hatred is a good thing, but I always say hate on somebody who's not your own size. Hate somebody who's smaller than you. Either, you know, intellectually, morally, physically. Don't physically. hate somebody yeah. who is bigger and more successful, who you're powerless against. Because you're not, that's yeah, insanity. I'm gonna, yeah, no, I'm going to keep hating Trump. That's because, yeah, that's, uh, all, that's always good to lives. hate him. Yeah, but you know, that's not, but I'm talking about it in your personal life. Find somebody, find a rodent, a human rodent, and... That's somebody you can really hurt. By the way, I have a business plan, Cyrus, that I, that I think Go you on. and I could, I think we can make money, and I'm being serious. Mm -hmm. If you want to succeed in show business, pay me to root against you. If you're a, a if you're a new comic, if you're a screenwriter, a director an actor and you have some money and you've got a project that you want to succeed instead of getting a publicist pay me the money and i will root against you i will seethe in the corner for three hours a day i'll pray that you fail and you will have a you'll win emmys oscars you'll be an egot before you even in a year, you'll be an EGOT. Just pay me what you would pay a publicist, and I will just. Well, I mean, I, I'll root I haven't won you. an Emmy yet. I mean, I haven't won any major awards yet, and you've been actively saying you don't want me to succeed for six years. No, I I actually root for you, but if you pay well, can you me, stop. Stop rooting for you. Yes, yes. Pay me to. You, you want you want an Emmy? You want a Peabody? You got to pay me. Sure. Everybody I mush. ever root against. You're the Bronx Tale mush. What's that? That's the guy that anytime you bet on something, he would lose. So if people saw that he had bet on something they also bet on, they would, they, would, they would know that they had lost. But, you know, that's you, except he was a professional actor. We could bet, and, you know, on, you just, you, we can do an dabbled. Oscar pool and, and anybody... Who do, you, who do you like in the Oscars right now? This will be perfect. No, who do, you like in the who Oscars? do I hate in the Oscars? 
you got to give me the the, okay. the actors who are up for an award, and it's who I hate the most. That's the person who's going to win. But I don't give that information you know, out for free. This is this is how I pay my bills, nuts and berries. People people hire me to root against them. I, I'm absolutely just, serious. Just psychic irony. That's all it is. It just if you like something, it means it's going to fail. If you hate something, it's going to do great. No, you need me wishing bad for somebody. Whenever I wish bad for somebody, they go on to lead a very. It doesn't work for. In other words. It, it doesn't work for me. Hatred okay. doesn't well, work for me. If it did, I would tell you. But I'm telling you, the people I hate are incredibly successful. Well, that's also because, David, let's be honest with ourselves, you are not a hateful person. You just don't have a lot of anger inside you. So you have very little to give out. You know, there are people out there who actually have passion. You know, you're just sort of, you know, you're just too, you're just too easygoing about politics. You're, you're talking about politics. I'm just talking about in life in general. Yeah, no, no. I've seen the way you interact with your family. Obviously, you don't. You you do have hate somewhere, but you have to understand that like no one's paying attention. Whoa, 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 whoa. To hang what on, you're, hang on. I ne you saw no one's me yelling. It was a lawyer I was yelling at. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes. Sorry, that was it a lawyer directed at it was my not your ex-wife. I was actually referring to uh, other family members. But my point was. Um, that the thing is, no one's paying attention to things you hate. I mean, you've seen the ratings of the show. The world is not aware of what you think of things. What do you mean? You don't move needles. You don't actually affect your environment. You're like Schrodinger's cat. You just exist and no one is 100% sure if, you, if you're alive or dead. Couldn't Schrodinger, I mean, didn't he make any noise? I'll be honest. I do think the Schrodinger's cat thing is total bullshit and a and fake philosophy. So I'm not going to argue with you on that because yes, it's either alive or not. It's right. it, I do find the Schrodinger's cat. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I apologize. But it's it, it's nonsense. Yeah, I uh, subscribe to the Schrodinger cats. Schrodinger's cats tapeworm. Anyway, let's. We have to wrap it up. Uh, you, you, you go to. You get corned beef at Schrodinger cats. I love. It's it's all. It's, it's bad for my arteries. But when's the last time you ate a cats's? I don't think I've ever eaten a cats's. Maybe ten years ago. Yeah. Let's to talk Essen. tomorrow. I go to Essen Deli. It's okay. What does Essen mean in Yiddish? Yes. I don't know. I don't. Does it mean I, I don't know Yiddish? Does it mean eat? It probably it, it probably just means like to not tip. There you but go. I, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Perpetuating a stereotype with anti-Semitism on the rise. You went for Is it? I feel like it's pretty static. cheap joke. You know why you told a cheap joke? Because you're a cheap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I won't say it. Yes. It's not just with money, is it? Okay. No. You Let's know, talk tomorrow. It's good to see you. Where are you? In uh, LA or Brooklyn? No, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm just, you know, living living my life. Living the life. Getting through things. You know. Every, by the way, everybody's unhappy.
everybody's unhappy. And anybody who says they're not unhappy is lying. Nobody's happy. Mm -hmm. And and I, if look, you're actually you're... happy, you should be arrested. You're a sociopath. That should be the minority uh, report, part two. Just walk around New York City uh, and anybody who's really happy, lock them up because they're, they're criminals. They're sociopaths. Look, I think if you're unhappy, you should do something about it. You should be proactive, do something for yourself, get out of the house, go to a Kinko's, print up a few thousand fake legal documents and ruin your kid's school. <laughs> there you go. Let's go to a board of ed meeting. That's a good it's idea. It's got to feel empowering. I, I, they're doing it for some reason. They're certainly not changing anything. I think they just powerful. And they but like why to don't we like, about the take idea it to the next level? Why don't we show up Look, and take it like, you know, do the stuff about the Nuremberg laws and but just take it to its to it's so absurd you get the people cheering for you and you just start saying things that are just complete. I mean, it already is over the top, but even there's more nothing you could say that they would disagree with. If I went up to that school board and I said, my children don't need to know the Civil War happened, they would applaud. We should do this. We need to send you yeah. to a, to yeah, a school sure. board meeting. I will go. I will go to a school board meeting. I don't worry. I'll make sure I fit in. I'll wear like little culotte shorts, a big lollipop, one of those hats. You know, I'll make sure I look like a child. Don't worry. Could you do it next Thursday and and video, like bring your camera and do it live? Go to a school board meeting and create a scene? No. I have a career, David. What is wrong with you? What can oh. I get on CNN? <laughs> All right, no, I don't, I don't. Um, it's a good idea. I've, I've wanted to do something like that for a while. So maybe let's see how how far down this rabbit hole I go. And who knows? Maybe you'll see me on the news, but I'll record it for you. I, I think that would be a great idea saying, you know, I, you're, you're teaching. Uh, they can't be mad that I don't have a child there because a lot of those people don't have children in those schools. They're just right. showing up. You're teaching uh, that that I, you're teaching that fascism is bad. You're teaching World War Two that that we defeated fascism. Uh, that's political. And that's well, there are a lot of those places, their anti CRT laws say that you have to have books that show the other side of any argument, such right. as slavery or the Holocaust. So we should just expand that, you know, where are the alternate math books, where are the alternate science books, which I right. guess is the Bible. Yes. But yeah, no, I, th I think there, I think this is very ripe for trolling. I agree. We should really be making these people pissed off. We should really be annoying the shit out of these parents who are, are honestly just going to school saying, I don't want to teach them, but I also don't want you teaching them. You know what? This is something I, I'd be great at this. Yeah. See, this is what I've been saying this whole time. You want to fight. No, 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 no. I want attention. I just want. Yes. yes I want, and I want to feel alive. And the only time I feel mm -hmm. alive is when people hate me. Maybe I should take yeah. up cutting. Are you going to cut yourself? I don't know. I hear it's uh, all right. It's really, honestly, cutting is for people much younger than you. Yeah, don't do it. Because when they drag the right. No, 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 because no, no, when young no, people get, drag a razor across their arm. Damaged. Let me finish. Let me finish, David. You and I both know if you tried, the folds of your skin would just get bunched up and wouldn't even get through it. 
you have to have young, taut skin for cutting. Yours would just get, it, it would be like trying to, it'd be like trying to put a toothbrush through a carpet. It just would get bunched up. And it, I'm just saying, don't do it. Right. I will get dinged and deplatform for telling people to cut themselves. But if I tell people to cut other people, it's fine. Don't cut, you can't, yeah, don't right. cut yourself that they'll ding me. But if you tell people to go cut somebody else, it's perfectly fine. Dave Cyrus, follow him on Twitter at Dave Cyrus. Dave Cyrus. Yes. S-I-R-U-S. We'll talk to you. Thanks, uh, David. And congratulations on all your success. Let us now go to Denton, <sighs> Texas. <laughs> Let us go to Denton, Texas, where Professor Mike Steinell is standing by. Are you there, Professor? I'm here, David. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. And How's my volume? It, it sounds okay to me. Okay, good. Hey, That's good. Uh, I don't know if you've no I don't know if you've noticed, but we've. Yeah, you played uh, "Ain't No Chairs." I love that. I think you played it last week. You played the slow. I played the slow version. The slow ballad version. Yeah, and, I'm not real crazy about that one, but that's yeah. all right. And, uh, but. I am cleaning out my computer. I'm debating whether or not I should spring for a new one. And anyway. Never hurts to have a new computer, David. I know. You don't want to scrimp on computers. I know, but. You know, They're good. They're very good. I know, but this is kind of a new computer. How now? How really? How new? How I would say I bought this three years ago. Well, maybe out of you know what I can't do. I, I can't don't know. Green you screen. You can't green screen. I cannot green screen. Do you have a green screen? I have a green screen. I've tried it, and I get all this fuzzy background. It looks like crap. And how's I thought, mine look? Yours looks great. You got to light it. If you could I, see, I have a. I'm lighting you have, it. It's got to be stretched. I, I got I bought a green screen that's taut and stretched like nobody's business. I was going to mention somebody's facelift. I was going to go after Bob <laughs> Costas's facelift, but that would be me. Yeah. But uh, I think Bob Odenkirk's had some work done. I was looking at pictures of him. Well, he looks pretty good. We love him. We, we're, we're glad he's okay. Hey, um... <clears throat> I, I did bring a game. We don't have to play it. Yes, I love that. Oh my but, God! Um, I I left. Dan, I I got completely detracted. Go ahead, Dan. Uh, I think Dan left. Sorry. Uh oh. Okay. I did send a song. I sent. Uh, yes, the I C have it. The yeah, the Feldman CV song. But um, you know what I did uh, last week? I um, I got a I. I got the audio version of uh, Fahrenheit 451, which I'd never read. And uh, it's really great. That's Tim Robbins. I don't know how you feel about him, but he does a great job. If if you want to listen to a really good reading of an audio book, you know, I've, I've been working on my audio book, trying to get it, uh, everything. You know, I have trouble with certain words like asked, asked, A-S-K-E-D. I really almost can't say it. You know what you should asked. do? You should have me do your books on I'm surprised you don't do more voiceover. Because I, I can't pronounce words. 
You did pretty good. Nah. You did pretty well. Nah, yeah, I, I screw up. You got a great voice, you know. Um, but anyway, so then then today on my walk, um, I listened to a. Uh, you ever listen to Best of the Left? I I used to. Yeah, they they do good stuff, and they have a they've done a few clips from your shows. I think recently they used to, but not, not recently. But 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 I, I did hear one. I did hear one a while back, and they do uh, obviously um, the Ralph. They do clips from Ralph Nader right. all the time, and uh, but anyway, there was a whole thing about uh, this this business of all the books being banned, and and uh, so. The game I brought was know your banned books. Oh, good. <laughs> but you know, I'm I, I have I want to get my book banned because, well, you know what happened to Mouse, right? To, to Mouse, yes. The minute they banned it, sales skyrocketed. It right. has never, you know, it went to the <laughs> to the top. So I figure, what we ought to do is is uh, you know, like I think you should try to get your show banned. Well, well, maybe they, it is what already. They do, we just I've don't noticed, know it. <laughs> what I've noticed, everybody, there's a trick that everybody says now. What's that? I've been deplatformed. Like, I, I'll watch YouTube, and people say they've deplatformed me here on YouTube. And I'm thinking, well, I'm watching you. And what they mean is they've been demonetized. Oh, so they all say they've been demonetized. Please send money. So, <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. So, they're, they're, hey, by the way, uh, good stuff on Payday Report. Mike Elk is doing better. Yes. And, um, you know, I worked really hard today to try to get this um, a woman who is organizing a bus from Atlanta to go to Bessemer on Saturday. They're going to do a big rally. And maybe I'll have the information for that on uh, there's a Bessemer rally on uh, Saturday. Um, my good friend, Kenny Snodgrass, who listens to the show and he's he worked in, in the fields with uh, Cesar Chavez and uh, 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 Dolores Huerta. He thinks maybe we can get Dolores on the show I would if love you want to try to work on that. I would love anyway, that. She's she's wonderful. I'll, I'll work on it. He's he's a close friend of hers. And uh, please. He, yeah, he's a great guy. Um, but anyway, so a lot of these. So you're going to quiz me. What, so what do I, I'm saying names. Okay. So we got these names. Let me get and, the sound. Um, let me get, put some money in the kitty. You know who's here? I think she might be here is Professor Marianne Cummings. Okay. Well, if and you want to do that, that's fine. Um, Professor Marianne, if you're, you, you were at a meeting and you weren't here for your segment, but if you want to compete with me. Professor Marianne. And Lee says, uh, is goulash Ukrainian? Maybe so. Okay, I don't see. But anyway, um, so here's the deal. I've, I've got a list of books. The American Library Association, some people should go to their website. They list the, the top 10 books banned last year. They go back to in the, the 90s. When you say top banned. 10, like the 10 best books that have been banned or the most Banned. Yeah, the most popular books that have been banned each year, like there'll be like 400 books. My mother was a, a school librarian at a time when the school board, somebody in somebody on the school board tried to ban John Steinbeck's The Red Pony. And she kind of fought it. And then um, it did get banned and she was supposed to pull it. And the person who had it checked out brought it in. 
And she said, just keep it. I can't pull it if it isn't on the shelves. So uh, she was pretty neat. But uh, anyway. Um, now, isn't so the anyway, right wing, aren't they the ones who talk about freedom of speech and cancel culture? Well, that's what's so, so ironic about it is that. Yeah. But actually, there's this group called uh, Moms for Liberty. And it's, it's like it's similar to the Tea Party. It's organized from wealthy donors there was a thing on the show i think who was i can't remember pacman uh david pacman yeah it was from the pacman show and he was talking about the the big it's big it's funded by billionaires who basically want to just they want to produce chaos in the public schools so that they can do away with public schools exactly. you know or, or do away with the tax burden of public schools right. but anyway i was surprised how many great books are banned and I have the website over here. If you want to know why they were banned, it each. Well, let me like see. Let example. me. Yeah, let me. So oh, here's the game. Here's okay, the let game. me put some money in the kitty. OK. All right. I'm playing against. These are, there's a very easy because it's, it's pretty obvious for most of them. But I'll tell you the name of the author and you tell me the book that was banned. Oh, OK. OK. Number one, J.D. Salinger. Catcher in the Rye. Absolutely. So that's one, uh, that's one, I'm one for one, correct? Yeah. Okay. So I'm out of sync here with my, with my thing. So let's jump down. Uh, Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey, I'm going to say, uh, oh, I'm so tired. Electric Kool-Aid acid test. Wrong. Uh, Ken Kesey. For most of these people, it's their most famous book. So there you go. What is it? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, my God. I forgot. And that was banned. Somebody had a problem with it. You know, it's all, it's profanity and um, and uh, usually uh, sex that gets a ban. Okay, now here's the top of the J.D. Challenger we got. Uh, Scott Fitzgerald. Well, it can't be The Great Gatsby. Uh, it is The Great Gatsby. No. Yes. Hang on. I'm one for three now. Yeah. John Steinbeck. Well, you just said the red, po the red pony. That's not on the list, though. Grapes of Wrath? Yes. Well, well get the hell out of here. Two for four. Hang on. Too much profanity. I got that. But who would ban the Grapes of Wrath? You want to know? Well, yeah, maybe I yeah. can. T okay, grapes of wrath. Let me get it up over here. Uh, actually, it was of mice and men. Ah. Banned in Grand Blanc, Michigan, 1979. Challenged in Greenville, South Carolina, 1977. Banned well, does in it make fun of Scottsboro. Mentally challenge people. Well, there's some. Uh, it's it's actually. What, what are the reasons here? Profanity, mainly profanity, but it's pretty tame. Like, yeah, I mean, and these people that are doing this, do they watch TV? Do they have HBO or Showtime? Come on. Right. Or Netflix. Like they haven't heard these words before. OK, here we go. J.D. Challenger. We're back to the top of the list. Scott Fitzgerald. Did you do that one? Yeah. Did I do F. F. Scott Fitzgerald was oh, the Great Gatsby? I got that. right. Yes. Harper Lee. 
Well, she only wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. That's the one, yeah. All right. Thomas Walker. I'm three for four. Uh, Alice Walker. Alice Walker. I'm ashamed to... Did she write... I wouldn't have known this one either, but... Yeah, that's it. Very good. Okay. Four for five. Four for five. I didn't read The Color Purple. I saw the movie. Does that count? Margaret Mitchell. Well, I'm going to assume Gone with the Wind, and maybe that should have been banned. Yeah, that's 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 the one. All right, so what am I, five for six? Yeah. Richard Wright. I think he just passed away, actually. Richard White Wright. Inv- Wright, Invisible Man? Correct. All right. That's on six for seven. Two for George Orwell. George Orwell, banned. Two of them. Well, I mean, the two books, I would think, are the easy guesses are Animal Farm and 1984. That is correct. Give yourself the dinger. But that's, that's easy. Jump seven for eight. James Joyce. James Joyce. I could say the Dubliners. That would be not the one. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ. Leopold Bloom. Is that not Ulysses? What? What? The, what, what? What? I'm so tired. You said it. You said it. Ulysses. Yeah, that was the one. Okay. Eight for nine. By the way, we had that wrong. Richard Wright. Eight, uh, Richard Wright did not write The Invisible Man. I think Ralph Ellison did. Is that correct? Richard Wright wrote Native... Great, wrote great, native... Native Son. Native Son, yeah. So okay. you should just take that back. Seven you, for nine. Yeah. Okay. Kurt Vonnegut, two books. All right. So obviously... Uh, uh, although Joseph Heller wrote Catch-22. Give yourself the ding. That's on the list there. Well, hang on. Oh, okay. So Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse-Five. That's one of them. Okay, hang on. Nine for 11. Uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, Kurt Vonnegut... What's the one? Meow. Meow. (laughs) What? I don't know. Cat's Cradle. I wouldn't have gotten that. So that I read that. This I've read a lot of Von. I read most every Vonnegut. Mm. I like his writing. Okay, so I'm nine for twelve. Yes. Okay. Ken Kesey, I'm looking at the list. Uh, I got that one. Kurt Vonnegut, we just did. Jack London. Uh, Jack London. Um, Jesus, I'm so... Um, like I say, most of these are this most their most common book. Yeah, most I'm try- I, 
I can't think of his book. What is it? Call, Call of the Wild. Call of the Wild. How are we doing? Is this, is this entertaining? Yeah, it's to me it is. It, just, it, it okay, reminds good. me how stupid I am. <laughs> I'm always... You know, um, when I was growing up, we played authors. We had those c cards, you know, and you and you had to. It was like um, a matching game. It was like um, go fish, but you had to make books, you know, and then mm -hmm. you had to guess. Anyway, I it was I I learned all the names of these books that I never read, like the Deerslayer. Who's read the Deerslayer? You know, James Fenimore Cooper. The, I've never read the Deerslayer. Okay, uh, Vladimir Nabokov. You'll you'll get this one. Yeah, that would be Lolita. You bet. And you know, it may be when you, <laughs> looking back. I'm 10 for 14. Uh, I don't know if, if he wrote it today. I don't know if he could get away with it. Really? Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. James Baldwin. James Baldwin. Uh, I don't know. Go Telling on the Mountain. Okay. Hang on. Upton Sinclair. By the way, who who names their baby Upton? <laughs> uh, Let's name our little baby Upton. <laughs> uh, <coughs> Let's see, Upton Sinclair. I always confuse with Sinclair Lewis. So yeah, who who ran for governor of California? I think the other guy. So Upton. I'm not sure. Okay, so Upton Sinclair, who wrote The Jungle? Upton Sinclair. Who wrote Babbitt? I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Uh, Dodge. Uh, I'm going to go with Upton Sinclair. I can't imagine The Jungle being banned. Yep, that's it. Really? Yeah. 12 for 15. Here's, here's one you may not get. Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston. Let me think of her book. Uh, I have no idea. I, was I wouldn't I was have known it either. She doesn't um, exist? No, it, it, it exists. Is it a man or a woman? I think it's a woman, I'm sure. Caddyshack. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Caddyshack. Um, <laughs> it's not Caddyshack. It's not Caddyshack. Showgirls. Um, their eyes were watching God. That book should be banned. <laughs> Just for being unreal. How come I don't it was, know it? If it, how it good was, could uh, it be? Had if, it was sexually ex explicit. Well, what was? When did it come out? Um. Well, it was banned in 1997. I think she's a. F she might still be alive. That maybe. doesn't no. count. A book that. Tony Morrison. Tony Morrison. Um, Tony Morrison. Two of them. Beloved. Yes. Right. Dingy dingy. Uh, so now I'm 11 for 15. Yeah, thirteen. No, I'm twelve for. She had another book too. Sixteen. 
I wouldn't have got this one. You wouldn't have believe. gotten it? I would not have gotten this next book. Uh, I'm moderately well-read, but not yes. well-read. Uh, Tony Morrison. I got a beloved uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> she didn't write that. She didn't write that. Oh, okay. Uh, a Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Okay. I thought Moses wrote that, but anyway, I, I might have been no, wrong Solomon about that. Wrote the Psalms of Solomon. Okay, see, tw- I'm you're 12 for the 17. I'm not doing well here. I think that's all of them. But you know, I wrote a little song. So you left one, well, you Lady Chatterley's lover, D. H. Lawrence. Oh yes, you're right. <laughs> so what am I? 13 for 18. Pretty good, David. Oh, William Golding. We didn't do that one yet. William Golding, Lord of the Zippers. There you go. You got it. I think that's not quite the title. (laughs) 14 out of what, 19? So I'm thinking that the secret to being a successful author is to get banned. Yeah. You know, you got to get... So I've written a song about... I want to be banned in Boston. Why do they? Why do they always get banned in Boston? Uh, the, it was very puritanical. Really? Yeah. Have you ever been there? <laughs> well, it used to be puritanical. They, they you know, now, it, but uh, there was a time when, you know. Okay, let me try this little song. See if it works. I slapped it together while I was listening to a very good show today. I heard most of it. I had to slip out for I agree Jeopardy. With you. Yeah, it was a good show. Some shows are good. better than others. This is a good one. Yeah. Because well, you're I, we're dragging it down to the... It would have been nice if Professor the... Marianne Cummings were here. I'm not, <laughs> I know she's somewhere. But, uh, okay, this is I Want to Be Banned in Boston. It has a little, little harp in the front. Can you hear me, David? I always start with the harp upside down. I want to be banned in Boston. So I can be a hit in Austin. They like it down there. I want to be banned in Boston. So I can be a hit in Austin. I want to be ripped off the shelves by moms for liberty. I'm going to make some dough on all that negativity. I want to be banned in Boston. I want to be banned in Boston So I can be a hit in Austin I want to be banned in Boston So I can be a hit in Austin I want moms to burn my books in Tioga I want to craft some controversial stuff Oh, I've got messed up 
I was going to ride Thai yoga with yoga. By some ladies who like to do yoga. Anyway, I'm, this is my lyrics. They're kind of messed up. I want to be banned in Boston. I want to be banned in Boston. Be a hit in Austin. I want to write some problematic fiction about a kinky sex addiction. I'm going to make Catcher in the Rye seem like apple pie. I want to be banned in Boston so I can be a hit in Austin. I want to be banned in Boston so I can be a hit in Austin. I'm going to write some modern prose. I want to be burned in Kansas City. And if it all goes well, who knows? I might even use the word. <laughs> I want to be banned in Boston. Be a hit in Austin. I want to be banned in Boston. To be a hit in Austin. I'm gonna invent some new age hero who uses profanity. And just to tip it in, I'm gonna make him a gay manatee. I wanna be banned in Boston. Be hit in Austin. I want to be burnt in Waterloo. I want to be shelved in Chattanooga. I want to be pulled down in Winnetka and canceled in Santa Cruz. That's all I got. Professor Mike Steiner, did you read the article in the Times? Was it yesterday about rhyming? How they've changed rhyme schemes and how words no longer have to rhyme the way they used to? No, was that in uh, where, where? Was that in the arts section? Maybe it wasn't the New York Times. Maybe I got to read that. You know, it may not have been the New York Times. It may have been. I hate to say it. I apologize. The Wall Street Journal. I apologize. That's, 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 that, has a, that has some worth. As long as you don't read the editorial page. If, yeah, if you, right. But it if, has a lot of good information. If, if you want a critique of capitalism, read the Wall Street yeah. Journal, the Financial Times, Bloomberg. It, uh, it's eye-opening how critical the financial pages are of yeah. Uh, our did you did you did you read Dalfit yesterday in Sunday Review? I like him. I, I skimmed him. I, I accidentally read David Brooks. So. I, oh, God. Yeah. What, what did Dalfit <laughs> write? Well, here's the thing. He was talking about the thing in Canada and he brought up this very interesting thing about a book written in 1958 about the meritocracy and how that was what that was going to eventually be. And he talked, he talked, I don't know if he invented these two terms. He says, the world now is the virtuals and the practicals. And he says, if you're like a professional, you're dealing in a virtual world, you're on your computer, mm -hmm. you know, you're not. And then there's, there's the practicals. And sometimes the practicals are 
wealthy. I mean, you can have a plumbing company and do great. You can be, but he says there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the the people that have risen, you know, like in the meritocracy. And you're talking about, you know, universities today. And there was a really good rant about, do you, you mind me calling it a rant? What just don't call it late for the revolution. What about uh, Berkeley? Well, that was that was last week. I guess it was Friday. I was listening to that on my walk. Okay, yeah. Today, what was today about? Okay, I I heard that too. I have no idea. (laughs) Who knows? But anyway, um, the the virtuals and the and the practicals, and he said that they're they just they. We're far apart, you know, and he says a um, lot of practice, you know, he says the virtuals have imposed restrictions that some of us don't feel. You know, I we're I can't we haven't eaten out and that, but we're not it has in no way affected our income, this pandemic. But if you're a practical, you know, you know, if you're a plumber or maybe a construction worker, you know, it's, it's a completely different thing. He says, um, you know, um, and, you, you know, uh, Trudeau is barking up the wrong tree, he says, by trying to appeal to people through the virtual world. They're going on TV. They're going on social media to try to convince people who don't they're they're reality is not in those situations they may watch tv but their reality is what's going on day to day as they work yeah and that's not just you know it's worldwide i i I get that if you're a truck driver you gotta wear uh, a seatbelt, and nobody's saying that you can't drive your truck we're just saying get vaccinated why is what does that have to do with your work well, it's, it, all of that's been mutated. I mean, uh, it's so crazy. You know, it's it's how that slipped. It's like um, critical race theory. Good. One of the guys that was talking about the book banning was on uh, Best of the Left. I think it was on the Pacman show. No, I can't remember who it was. They don't ad- identify who's talking all the time until the very end. But he said that after Obama, a lot of people did not like the put. Well, no, he says. It's basically after George Floyd, there was a huge push for diversity to try to get more diversity in education. And he said people couldn't push back on that because they would be considered racist. So they seized upon this thing that's really not in the mainstream at all, critical race theory that's 40 years old. That's just a theory, you know, and it's a school of thought, but it isn't widespread and it isn't being taught widespread. But I think they invented this boogeyman and it resonates and it's a way that people can get into the discussion, their anger about um, how they feel about uh, diversity, you know, a lot of people are threatened by diversity. Yes, of course they are. And it, it gets back to the hypocrisy on the right. Joe Rogan, who I consider right wing, just because he says he's a lefty, he voted for Trump. There's, <laughs> If you vote for Trump, you're right wing. Yeah. So, you know, when he gets caught saying the N word 500 times and comparing well it wasn't five i don't think it was 500 but well 
It might as well have been, because if that's what yeah. you're saying. Once is bad, once it, is bad enough. If that's what we hear when the mic is hot. Right. Yeah. And calling Planet of the calling Harlan Planet of the Apes, he says, "Well, I hope we can use this as a teaching moment." Uh, but then they want to teach critical race. Like whenever somebody gets busted being a racist, let's use this as a teaching moment. We need to have a serious yeah. conversation about systemic racism when they get busted, and then then they try to teach critical race theory, which they're not actually trying to do. You you ban it from our schools. We're you know, we're all for the First Amendment, by the way. Freedom of speech, no censorship, unless it's critical race theory. Like it's it's okay yeah. for me to say the N word. Don't don't sanction me for saying the N word. Sanction me for teaching critical race theory. That's yeah, the, uh, this, this is kind of funny. In, in the American Library Association, they listed that, that uh, Fahrenheit 451 was banned or tried to be, somebody tried to ban it, and they had a little note. Evidently, they failed to see the irony of that move. <laughs> oh, my God, you're right. You're right. It's, 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 that's the whole thing about Fahrenheit right. 451. That's a, that's a brilliant novel. I, I'm yeah. going to... Um, I'm going to check out more Bradbury. That was written in 53. The thing I don't understand is all these parents who want these books banned, their kids can't read anyway. What are they worried about? (laughs) Ah, That's pretty harsh. But I mean, here's the thing. The thing that's in those books, they're hearing, you know. And isn't it better to have a thoughtful book teaching you about, you know, uh, gender issues rather than the crap you might hear at home and you know we had a neighbor my mother used to joke about this we had a neighbor she's a lovely woman but her kids um you know they i learned all the bad words from uh, my neighbors and because my folks never said them but anyway she came over one time and she says lois i don't know why my kids cuss so goddamn much <laughs> 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 she knew she was to being see funny. the irony of that. I think you know? she knew. I think she knew she was being funny. <laughs> Maybe so. I, that's she one was of the a things lovely I've lady. Discovered. I loved her. My, I loved I, her. I realize my mother is hysterical. A lot of well, things. that's good. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, all right. Let's you play. play the let's CD play this song. Yeah, let's play this. This is uh, this is not a new song. No, I, I looked it up. This was last played um, in September. You got me going on this because you said I want pumped gas and Sausalito. And so I thought I would write a song about all the different jobs you've had. My curriculum vitae. Is that what it's called? There you go. Yeah, I think you says, you, you pronounce that very well. This, this is called Feldman CV. Yes. This is my resume. <clears throat> this is. You, you can present this to the right. networks. Okay, when I'm looking for work, work. I'll just play this song. That's all you got to do. And they'll hire me. Maybe so.
Salito I sold a fat man a burrito Wrestled a big black bear Sold my body on Times Square I've been up Yeah, I've been down I've been around In Vegas, I dealt ACDuce While I listen to Debussy Watched a lot of I Love Lucy Once I looked like Gary Busey Not the old one, the young one, this handsome I've been up, mm, I've been down I've been around in the Yucatan I was Dennis Miller's wingman I was an usher at a cockfight I had a fling with Walter Cronkite mm, I've been up yeah I've been down
That is fantastic. You're amazing. You are always good to put the apricot jello on your man boobs. That's yes. what I always say. I forgot about dealing AC Ducey in Vegas. Mike Steinell is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019. So many books. He's written <laughs> The Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2. Building a Jazz Vocabulary, Running the Changes. He's got Saving Charlie Parker and the Lake House coming out soon. Go buy his latest CD, Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet, featuring Rosanna Eckert. It's on Origin Records. You can get more information by going to MikeSteinel.com. Fantastic. See you, David. Thank you. Bye, everybody. We're gonna go Have a to good night. You, we're gonna go to Rodrigo right after we listen to some more music from Professor Mike Steinell. As we encourage everybody to go to AmazonLaborUnion.org and support our good friend Christian Smalls, who is actually building a uh, a union that I think is gonna. I think it's going to succeed. Uh, I just got to find. I got to find it. Hang on for one second. All right. Where am I? Come on. Not going to happen tonight. Where are you? What happened? Here we go. I love this song. <laughs> Chairs in this Bessemer shop. Back in our day, don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are coming, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my rate and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go They gave us all pins and said, vote no 
But maybe this year Union can give us a little more And put some chairs on this Bessemore floor I'm hoping the Union might make things right Some days I just don't have the strength to fight This plant down here can take its toll It'll break your body, it'll crush your soul Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop I think that's perfect. I think that song is perfect, but what the hell do I know? Give to AmazonLaborUnion.org. Go to AmazonLaborUnion.org and support Christian Smalls as he forms the first Amazon Union out in Staten Island. They're voting there. They're voting in Bessemer. And uh, they're voting in Staten Island. We support Christian Smalls, founder of AmazonLaborUnion.org. It's freezing out in Staten Island right now. He's out there every day organizing his workers. Support Christian Smalls, AmazonLaborUnion.org. Hello, Rodrigo, are you there? Let's go to Mexico. Rodrigo. Okay. All right. Uh, there you uh, are. Are you asleep, Rodrigo? I didn't call on you last uh, week. I'm here. Okay. Don't get too excited. I'm watching. <laughs> Don't get too excited being on the show, Rodrigo. Calm down. It's not that big a thing. So easy, my I... friend. Easy. Whoa, whoa! It's just a little, just a little podcast. I can <laughs> tell you're overly excited. You're trying too hard. Be cool, even if you're a little nervous. Pretend you're not. I'll try. Yeah. Um, Are you? You're a little hyper so... here. Have you been uh, drinking a lot of coffee and sugar? No, I was watching. Windows 10 restart everything because... You, you were watching what? I was watching Windows 10 reload all the windows. You were watching Windows 10? Reload all the windows, yes. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, what is on your mind, sir? Uh, I have a few things, so stop me if I run out of time. Could, um, you, could, you, could you speak up? And I need you to calm down. You are way too hyperactive tonight. Just calm down. 
We just we Weird. just had Mike Steinell on. We're cool. This is cool jazz. You're you're trying way too hard. I don't know how to come down to you. Oh, it's just your <laughs> Okay. What's on your mm -hmm. mind? So I wanted to tell you why the anti-vaxxer movement is so dangerous, politics aside. Uh, I, I'm sorry, can you say that again? You wanted to tell me what? Why the anti-vaxxer movement is so dangerous regardless of politics. Can okay. you hear me okay now? I can hear you, yes. Okay. We will probably lose 5 to 10 million people to COVID-19 before all said and done. And after that, all we have to worry about is whichever next variant replaces Omicron and COVID-19 will simply become the new flu, or that's what people think, except long COVID. COVID-19 is not that different from the flu, except for the people who get long COVID, not because it's man-made or anything like that, but because this virus, this virus, sorry, only recently jumped to humans, and after a few mutations, it began to leave trash DNA behind on many people who recover from COVID-19. So unless we figure out how to get our shit together on this, every single living human will keep getting one or the other COVID-19 variant until hundreds of millions of people have different versions of long COVID, and that is going to look really bad. And that's the case where we get lucky and COVID-19 doesn't suddenly mutate to become more dangerous than B.2.0 Omicron, which is the more contagious and dangerous one currently going around. Meanwhile, the wife of Farron Cousins from Ring of Fire, she works as a special needs teacher in Florida, and she may lose her job because someone accused her of teaching CRT. A uh, quick note, I've said on Twitter and previous shows that we shouldn't be worried about the things the State Department wants us to worry about when they want us to worry about them. And friend of the show, BJ Prashad, recently wrote an article about this. The Western Allied Nations bullied the world while warning of threats from China and Russia. I posted a link on the chat. Uh, we need to be able to hold two thoughts in our head at the same time. For example, the Clinton-Obama people running the U.S. government can be tricking us into believing Russia is going to start a war with NATO three days ago, and Putin can be a petty tyrant who passes anti-LGBT plus legislation with the sole objective of keeping the Orthodox Church happy. And if we take it a step further, Putin's popularity rises a little whenever the U.S. media starts bleating mindlessly about Putin trying to regain the Russian Empire, which he's apparently doing, but based on the 1820s Texas model. Also, uh, because the left isn't promoting independent progressives, this year, Juliana Forlano and Marianne Williamson ended up working with Brianna, Joy Gray, Crystal Ball, and Katie Halper, who have some very problematic friendships since we are being generous. The congressional candidates Marianne is promoting this year are Jason M. Cole, Mike Ortega, Rebecca Parson, Amani Oakley, Sergio Alcubilla, Nina Turner, Moad Resi, Christine Olivo, Sherwin Asami, 
Ruth Luévanos, Daniel Lee, Ali Dalsimer, Cristina García, Eric Smith, Alexandra Hunt, Derek Marshall, Neil Gualia, Melanie Dorrigo, among others. One of these three people has three jobs. One of them is an actual scientist. Many of them are immigrants or children of immigrants. And of course, Pearl Prescott is running for the 8th State Senate District in Pennsylvania. Have we booked him yet? I, I thought we we talked about this on office hours. I thought we, we booked him. We talked about this. I don't know if you talked to him. Okay. He should have been. And All right. Stay. He's running for the 8th State Senate District in PA where the Republican Dr. Oz is running for a different state senate seat from his house in New Jersey. Jessica Cisneros is running again in Texas to unseat Lipschitz, Henry Cuellar, and if you want actual representation, you should find one of them and help them get elected. Okay. And I hope we can get some help for them before they are led astray by the quote-unquote leftists who think defeating AOC is a bigger priority than defeating Pelosi. Speaking of which, I've mentioned this a few times before, but I hope I'm not being too ambitious trying to explain it in three minutes. Um, the reason the Tucker Carlson's and GB Doors of the world are obsessed with AOC is the same reason a young idealistic lawyer who participated in the Nixon Watergate paperwork became the enemy of all the left. Decades ago, Bill Clinton's overpriced consultants spent years hammering into Hillary Rodham Clinton that Bill lost an election because of her, because their Kansas voters didn't want a first lady who worked and advised the campaign. They wanted a trophy wife. And if Hillary had been friends with Bernie back then, she might not have given in and done her best to become that trophy wife. But this wasn't enough because once Bill Clinton became president and Hillary Clinton tried her best to help Ted Kennedy pass the children's health insurance program, Fox News began the 30 years long campaign to demonize Hillary, which is the main reason so many millions of people who get their news from Facebook and Fox News or Newsmax or OANN actually believe Hillary was running a pedophile trafficking ring from the basement of a pizza place that doesn't have a basement. This is the playbook the right, the playbook, sorry, the right and the FBI informant left are using against AOC because AOC is simultaneously the all-powerful crazy Marxist that is leading Biden down the road of turning the United States into Venezuela and also the ineffectual sellout and traitor who cannot stand firm to help the people. Even after we saw that when the squad stands firm and refuses to back down, Pelosi can find enough Republicans to pass whatever she wants without the squad. The narrative continues to be, quote unquote, the squad let us down, AOC is a sellout. Great. I, I, I have to cut, we have to do a commercial, so. Okay. So if you could wrap it up, because we have to go to our sponsor. And as I mentioned before, this is proof of how much the left has been successfully propagandized because AOC isn't even the dangerous one or even the leader of the squad. AOC gets serious, actionable death threats every couple of months. 
I don't even know how often Rashida Talib gets serious death threats. Cory Bush has been shot at for being an activist, and her old car has the bullet holes to prove it. And Ilan Omar doesn't have any conservatives who not so secretly want to sleep with her, so she only gets death threats. She gets serious death threats many times a week. And yet, when was the last time any of you even heard a lefty say, fuck Cory Booker or fuck Ro Khanna? There's dozens of supposed progressives in Congress and the Senate with worse voting records than AOCs, but the entire Jimmy Dore left remains obsessed with AOC and the squad and only rarely mention other people who could vote more often with Bernie and the squad without endangering their seats, but do not. There are more examples I could mention of the left subconsciously embracing propaganda that is so all-embracing in public mind. But I hope everyone will learn that we should question not only CNN, but also the stories we tell each other about who is on our side and who is not. Okay. I got to do our, I got to cut to our sponsor. Thanks, Thank you, um, Rodrigo and Mexico. We'll be right back the after the, let me, we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. The AIDS diet plan helped me lose 28 pounds. AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight. Yet AIDS lets you taste, chew, and enjoy. And the appetite suppressant in AIDS is not a stimulant. AIDS helped me to lose 18 pounds, and it doesn't contain anything to make me nervous. Question, why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS? AIDS helps you lose weight without making you jittery. <laughs> That's an actual commercial from the early 80s. I love that. All right, we have two more callers. Benji, your hand is next, and then we'll go to Sharon. Benji. Hey, how's it going, David? <laughs> Great. Benji, you're our man in Florida. Yes, sir. Hey, I didn't talk to you last week, man. How was your uh, Valentine's Day? Uh, it was, you know, what you'd expect. How was yours? Not bad, man. I was I was going to surprise my wife and bring her flowers at work, but uh, I just couldn't get my hand through the glory hole. <laughs> no, no, I took good care of my wife, man. I got hang a real on, nice hang card. On. Let me, let me, hang on, hang on. What? You took, what? You no, took I was going to bring her flowers at work, you know, surprise her. You know, I got big hands. I couldn't get them through the glory hole. I man. know. I, I heard you. But, but yeah. no, I took good care of my wife, man. I went and, you know, got her a real nice card and a dozen really fresh batteries. <laughs> But not for me, man. She uh, she brought home a friend for a threesome. Oh, I'm I'm not young anymore, man. I told him flat out, you know, one of y'all got to wait till tomorrow. <laughs> now I asked my uh, I asked my wife why she married me. She said uh, she said she married me for my sense of humor. I said I thought it was because I was good in bed. She said, "See what I mean? You're hilarious." <laughs> no, hey, I do got a couple Florida stories for you tonight, man. Uh, oh, good. This. This week, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis was jokingly asked if he would support a bill to prevent school children from learning anything about this year's Super Bowl halftime show. <laughs> he got pretty angry with that question. I so, could uh, see, yeah, I could see that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Two things he hates, man, more than anything, is being called a racist and, and black people. <laughs> yeah. Now, also, a Florida congressman slash pimp Matt Gates was in the news this week, too. Oh, really? So, yeah, his girlfriend is 17 years. Actually, that's her age. <laughs> she testified before a grand jury this week. You know, she wasn't real happy about that either. You know, not about testifying. She was just really upset because she had missed JB cheerleading trials. Ah, that's sad. No, hey man, that's, that's I'm gonna cut it short. That's all I got tonight, man. But, uh, <laughs> all right. Hey, hello to producer Don for me. 
I, I, I will. I will. I will. I will. I mean, Dan, him too. Don, yes. And finally, Sharon, where are you? Oh, I thought. Oh, I thought she raised her hand. Uh, did she? Did we, I thought I saw another hand. Nope. No. All right. I want to thank. Uh, who is this? That's Rodrigo. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, why don't you start from the beginning and we'll just do it again for safety. I'm kidding. Uh, what? Well, well, sorry. What? I wanted to offer my two cents on Russia. On Russia. Russia. Let's hold. Let's do it on Thursday if you if you don't. Okay. Mind. Thank you, my friend. That is our show. I want to thank the people who make this possible. Everybody in the Zoom room in our virtual studio audience. If you would like to join us, go to my website and hit the button that says attend a live taping and all you need is Zoom. If you would like to attend office hours, please go to my website and sign up for office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. While you're over there, please sign up for my newsletter. This show is put together by a lot of uh, great people. Dan Frankenberger, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, the Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, and Hannah Fartman. I'm leaving some people out, but they come to the meetings on Wednesday to help figure out how to get the show made and how to keep office hours going. I'm probably leaving Professor John out and all the mods. So thank you to everybody who uh, keeps this keeps the show going. Subscribe to this program wherever you get podcasts. And we have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Invisible Ninja, who with Andy Brown and Sarah moderates the chat room. Invisible is cutting up these episodes and posting them on YouTube. The YouTube channel is thanks to uh, these guys and gals. It's actually uh, interesting, very interesting. They've, uh, they're cutting it up into digestible bites. So thank you for that. And it's a great way to, to share the content. Please share this show with people who you think would want to join this community. That's it. Thank you to all our guests who uh, uh, made this show today, starting with Jason, Ben, Howie. Uh, let me see. Dan isn't here. Howie. Howie. Uh, David Cobb, uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein, uh, Peter B. Collins. We didn't have Professor Mary Ann. She was busy. Dave Cyrus and Professor Mike Steinel. I think I did it. Thank you all for listening. I will see you all. Um, Thursday. We tape this Thursday. I will see you all. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. Yeah.
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. The Taylor Dirty Joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Bell Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Liam McEnany, your friend David told me about how you thought you had to pass gas on the number four bus, but it turned out to be more than gas. Man, Liam McEnany, that has to be tough. Wearing white shorts on a Manhattan scorcher smack dab in the middle of rush hour with your girlfriend standing right next to you. I feel you, Liam McEnany. I really do. But it's a reminder of how precarious life is. One moment you think you're taking your lady downtown to your favorite Korean barbecue, and suddenly one blast out of your leaky balloon knot, and poof, everything changes in a second. Poof. It's all over. Poof. Ronnie Bilge, dripping down your legs, Liam McEnany. You look for your girlfriend. Poof. She's gone. In the blink of a balloon knot. Won't even return your phone calls. I feel for you, Liam McEnany. Reminds me of 9-11. Beautiful fall day. I was planning a walk in the park with my second wife, Judith Nathan, who turned out to be a voracious harpy. And the next thing you know, well, I don't have to tell you what happened that day. It's all in my book. Leadership. I guess the point is, Liam McEnany, never take anything for granted. Cherish each moment. You never know. You just never know. One day you're with a woman who you can't figure out where you end and she begins. And then poof, intestinal air completely betrays you by turning solid. Poof, she's gone. Poof, all that's left is a memory. Okay, take care, Liam McEnany. And next time you're riding the bus in white shorts, remember to exercise constant vigilance because... Things don't always turn out the way you planned. Bye, Liam Nakanini. You sound like someone I would like to get to know. 9-11.